This is Audible. Welcome. You are about to embark on a unique learning adventure from the great courses. Our courses are crafted to be entertaining journeys, both comprehensive and fascinating. They're designed to expand horizons, deepen understanding, and foster epiphanies in a broad array of subjects and university-level disciplines. The lecturers are university professors and subject matter experts, carefully selected by the great courses and its customers for their intellectual distinction and exceptional abilities to teach. By listening for less than an hour a day, you can finish even the longest course in just weeks. Browse our catalogs or visit our website at thegreatcourses.com. And imagine how much you can learn if you spent just 30 minutes a day for the next year in the company of some of the greatest minds in the world. These lectures are titled "The Black Death: The World's Most Devastating Plague." Your lecturer is Dr. Dorsey Armstrong. Dr. Armstrong is a professor of English at Purdue University and an expert on medieval literature. She received her A.B. in English and Creative Writing from Stanford University, and her Ph.D. in Medieval Literature from Duke University. Dr. Armstrong has written extensively on Arthurian literature and Sir Thomas Malory's Mort d'Arthur, and is editor in chief of the celebrated academic journal Arthuriana. In addition to Arthurian literature, her research interests include medieval women writers and late medieval print culture. Lecture One: Europe on the brink of the Black Death. Hello, and welcome to this Great Courses lecture series on the Black Death. My name is Dorsey Armstrong, and I'm delighted to be your instructor for this course for a number of reasons. First and foremost, of course, is that the subject matter is absolutely fascinating. The plague that raged through Europe in the 14th century. Changed just about every single thing about medieval society, and indeed, in large measure, it produced the modern world we live in today. In order to convey the impact of the plague on the medieval world, I want to zoom in, as it were, to one particular moment in time and one particular place: Florence, Italy, in late January, 1348. If you're a Florentine in the mid-14th century, things are pretty good. Your society is stable and economically sound. There is complex social and political infrastructure. The city is wealthy because of its extensive trade networks. It's governed by a more or less representative body of leaders who take it seriously to regulate the safety and well-being of its citizens. The city itself is a leading patron of the arts, with some of the greatest artistic minds the world has ever known, commissioned by city fathers to beautify public spaces and buildings, like the Guildhall. The news in Florence in late January 1348 would have been preoccupied with some horrific stories coming out of Sicily. Some mystery illness was apparently wreaking havoc there. That was far away from daily life in happy, prosperous Florence. And then, a few people got sick. No real cause for alarm. But by mid-February, 
more and more people were getting very sick and dying. But unlike other illnesses that this city had experienced over the centuries of its history, this outbreak didn't burn itself out or slow down. It got worse. People dropped dead in the streets or died in their houses, and no one knew they had died because there was no one left alive to notice. Beautiful public spaces that in mid-January had been places to meet friends and have a conversation were open, stinking mass graves by March. Practically overnight, Florence had gone from being a jewel of a city to a charnel house. And as we'll see over the course of the next 24 lectures, the experience of Florence was going to be far from unique during the years the Black Death swept through the medieval world. I must admit that as I was writing these lectures, I did at times find myself overwhelmed by the horrors of the plague, especially when it came to reading first-person accounts and letters, some of which we'll explore later in this course. But as I'm sure every one of you listening and watching right now feels, it is worth it, and indeed it's critical, that we study the past, including the parts that make us uncomfortable or depressed, so that we can better understand our present and prepare for the future. As I have said on numerous occasions, one thing I love about studying the Middle Ages is that it often feels utterly foreign and alien. And then, in the next moment, a character in a medieval story or the writer of a chronicle of the Middle Ages says or does something that is completely recognizable and familiar. And it reminds me that people then and people now are more alike than not, even if our settings or our contexts then and now are radically different. But when it comes to the Black Death, it often becomes difficult to see those connections and similarities because the horror of that experience was unlike anything that had ever occurred in living memory. And people's reactions were understandably coming from a place of sheer terror and despair. Consider this eyewitness account of Giovanni Boccaccio, writer of the Decameron, who described how every morning in the towns and cities of Italy, the corpses of those who had died in the night would be placed out into the street. And eventually, funeral beers, sometimes nothing more than a rough board, would go through the town to collect them. Quote, it was by no means rare for more than one of these beers to be seen with two or three bodies upon it at a time. Many were seen to contain a husband and wife, two or three brothers and sisters, a father and son, and times without number, it happened that two priests would be on their way to bury someone, only to find bearers carrying three or four additional beers that would fall in behind them. Such was the multitude of corpses that there was not sufficient consecrated ground for them to be buried in. So when all the graves were full, huge trenches were excavated in the churchyards, into which new arrivals were placed in their hundreds, stowed tier upon tier like ship's cargo, each layer of corpses being covered over with a thin layer of soil till the trench was filled to the top." End quote. To many, it seemed as if the end of the world was surely at hand. Indeed, one chronicler, leaving a blank space at the end of his history, noted that he did so in case anyone should be left alive who might wish to make a record of events that had transpired. It's clear that leaving this space was a desperate, defiant action of optimism, 
because it didn't seem likely that anyone would survive. An event with such staggering effects is clearly worthy of greater understanding. And in this and the next 23 lectures, we're going to try and do just that. So let's get to it, the Black Death. Okay, right off the bat here, let's deal with two common misconceptions. First of all, it is not called the Black Death because parts of the bodies of people who were infected turned black. Most people who have a passing knowledge on the subject know that the plague was often called the bubonic plague because in one form it produced large lumps or buboes around the lymph nodes, so at the groin or armpit. And people seem to have assumed that the term black death refers to the color of those buboes. Nope. The term black death is used to suggest the horror of the epidemic, not the color of its symptoms. It was a dark, black, terrifying time. But here's another misconception we have to get rid of right away. No one in the Middle Ages called it the Black Death. It was the Great Mortality, or the Great Pestilence, or even in some cases in England, Blue Sickness. But it was not called the Black Death until centuries after it initially spread through Europe, and later historians looked back and tried to write about it. In the next lecture, we'll get down to the details of plague's epidemiology, how it was transmitted, and which form of plague, bubonic, septicemic, or pneumonic, offered the most or least suffering, the quickest death, or a slim possibility of survival. Side note here, if I ever time travel back to the Middle Ages, and I am so unfortunate as to contract plague, I would opt for septicemic, as it was usually pretty quick. But for now, I want to put those details aside and try to get a sense of the big picture of how the Black Death affected, changed, and completely remade medieval society. And in order to do that, we need to understand what the medieval world looked like on the eve of the plague. So let's try to get a snapshot of medieval Europe in the early 14th century. Let's say around 1340. All right, now obviously I'm going to have to oversimplify here quite a bit. Scandinavia is not exactly like England, is not the same as France or Italy or Germany in 1340. But we can use some broad strokes here and get a sense of how the medieval world was ordered. If you needed to shorthand it, you could do a whole lot worse than saying that most of the Europe of the Middle Ages was Christian, agrarian, and feudal. Let's take those terms in order. So, Christian. Here, the important thing to recognize is that in the Middle Ages, there is no such thing as separation of church and state. Indeed, such a separation would be almost inconceivable if you tried to explain it to a 14th century person. The church owned more property than any other entity. The church was deeply intertwined with education at every level, especially at the universities. The church had many business, production, and trade interests. And the church was deeply engaged and concerned with the politics of the day. The passage of the year, the month, the week, the hours, all of this was ordered and marked by church rituals. Many people went to Mass every day. Indeed, going to church then, in the Middle Ages, might be considered the equivalent of, say, brushing your teeth today. It was simply part of the daily routine. 
the tolling of church bells to call monks and nuns to prayers for matins or vespers or compline or prime or any of this seemingly endless set of prayer times would also structure the day for the community surrounding an abbey or chapel. The church festivals and feast days kept time with the passing of the seasons. Indeed, have you ever considered why Lent occurs when it does and why it is the kind of observance that it is? In other words, why do observant Christians fast or restrict their diets for six weeks right before the celebration of the resurrection on Easter? Well, those six weeks in most years would usually just happen to be the time when the storehouses were most empty as the spring crops were not yet ready for harvest. Meat might be in short supply because everybody is waiting for the ewes to deliver their spring lambs, so not much slaughtering is happening. In other words, the church helped make a virtue of necessity. Easter thus would become not just a celebration of the resurrection, but also a celebration of newly full granaries and fresh meat and the first vegetables ready to be pulled from the cottage garden. Which brings me to the second word I mentioned, agrarian. Before we had what we think of as the Middle Ages, there was the Roman Empire. Before it definitively ceased to exist in the 5th century, Rome had been a society that had both busy urban centers and farmland that fed its citizens. As Rome started to transform into the entities that we think of today as the countries of Western Europe, urban centers went into serious decline, and the majority of the population turned to farming, in many cases subsistence farming, as the dominant way of life. Here's what that might look like in practice in an English village in the 14th century. The houses, church, and trade shops would all be gathered together in a cluster that would be surrounded by plowland, what we call the open field system. Next to or behind each house would be the vegetable garden and maybe a space for small animals like chickens. The fields outside the village center tended to be long, thin strips. This was because most plows were pulled by oxen and was very hard to turn a team of oxen. So better to go as long as you could and turn as seldom as needed. The villagers might share the task of plowing each other's fields as they would harvesting. And when the crops were planted, the small children of the village might be set to the task of scaring away the birds that would want to eat the sown seeds before they had a chance to sprout. Villagers had to coordinate things like crop and field rotation to make sure that the earth was given a chance to lie fallow and rest. Surviving court documents of the period show fascinating glimpses of the kinds of disputes that were likely to arise. If one farmer harvested or plowed a little too far onto his neighbor's strip, or if one stubborn villager refused to give the same hours of labor to plowing and harvesting, or opted to plant cereal grains when rotation called for beans. And this was actually a key concern, as planting beans would put nitrogen back into the soil and keep the earth, quote, in good heart. And of course, in addition to needing to work their own land, most peasants in the Middle Ages owed a certain number of days of agricultural service to the Lord. Which brings us to our third word, feudal. Now, there may be some of you listening or watching out there who gasped or did a spit take when I said feudal, 
because you're probably aware that there was a time when medievalists referred to the word feudal and its related word feudalism as, quote, the F word. Although for decades it had been used to describe medieval society, research in the last 20 years or so seems to indicate that it wasn't the case that medieval people actually used the word themselves. Indeed, it wasn't until the 17th century that the word came into common use. But like Black Death, it's a convenient shorthand to describe a society that was structured in terms of bonds of service, support, loyalty, protection, and hierarchy, which the medieval world definitely was. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, it means that, for example, you have a king. How does he get to stay king? He pledges to offer his support and protection to the nobles just below him in the social order. In return for the right to be granted lands and titles, the nobles then pledge their loyalty to the king and swear to fight for him in wars and the like. They are vassals, and the system in which they are participating is also called vassalage. Then those nobles have lower-ranking men who pledge the same thing to them. So let's say the Earl of Chivalry is a vassal of the king and holds his titles and lands of the king, or in what is partly the origin of the word feudal, in fee from the king. Then someone else, Lord Knighthood, pledges himself to the Earl of Chivalry, and he in turn gets certain rights and privileges for becoming that man's vassal. This goes on down the line until we get to the peasants, who have the right to work land and keep for themselves a portion of their crops they harvest as long as they give an agreed-upon amount of the harvest or certain number of days of labor to their lord. In a feudal society, everybody is thus connected to everybody else along the lines of a pyramid structure. Additionally, medieval society was organized in terms of an idea known as the three estates model. According to this long-entrenched philosophy, people were born into one of three social orders, those who fight, those who pray, and those who work. Those who fight, the nobles, were supposed to provide the protection to the rest of the social order. Those who pray, the clergy, priests, monks, nuns, etc., were supposed to be busying themselves with helping to save humanity from sin. Remember the point I made a moment ago about medieval society being Christian? And then, these first two orders were supposed to be supported by the labor of those who work, the peasants, who enjoyed the protection of the nobles in the earthly life and the prayers of the clergy to help them in the life to come. One was not supposed to aspire to move out of one's order. Indeed, in the 14th century poem Piers Plowman, the title character chides a knight who says he is so eager to help out humanity, he'll start plowing a field if only someone will show him how. No, no, says Piers, you're a knight. You're supposed to protect me. As long as you do your job, I'll do mine. In the sixth passus of this famous dream poem, Piers says, Ich shall swinka and sweta and soa for us botha, and labora for thee while thou livest all the lief time, in covenant that thou cape holy church and miselva for wasters and wicked men that thus world striven 
and go hunt hardalecha to haras and to foxes, to boras and to bacchus, that breaketh adun mene hedges, and fight by falconus to call wild foolus, for they common to me croft, me corn to de fula. End quote. In modern English, that's I shall work and sweat and sow for us both, and labor for you my whole lifetime, as long as you live, as long as you promise to protect Holy Church and me from wasters and wicked men that trouble the world. Also, that you go hunting often for hares and foxes, for boars and wild bucks that break down my hedges, and that you send out your falcons to cull the population of wild birds, for they come to my farm to devour my grain." End quote. That passage demonstrates quite clearly the ideal of the three estates. People belong to the order to which they were born, and if society is going to function properly, then there's no moving outside one's estate. Now you may be wondering, how does someone become part of the second estate, those who pray? The answer, in 99% of the cases, is to be born into the first estate as a second son or younger daughter. You see, by the time we get to the 14th century, most nobles and high-ranking landholders had figured out that the only way to maintain a family heritage and power in terms of titles and lands and income was to practice primogeniture, in which the eldest son inherits everything. Dividing lands and titles equally among heirs usually meant that within a generation or two, there'd be a lot of cousins, each clinging desperately to a tiny parcel of land, fighting among themselves for position, and no one would really have anything worth fighting over. So second and third sons and younger daughters for whom there was no money or goods suitable for a dowry, they would become monks or nuns and live out their lives in what could be quite comfortable and sometimes somewhat worldly religious houses. So here's the part where I ask you to answer the question, what do you think the percentage breakdown of the three estates was? How many people in society fought? How many prayed? How many worked? When I ask my undergraduates this, they hopefully suggest that it might have been something like 33% each. Or maybe those who fought were 25%, those who prayed were another 25 and the workers were 50%. In reality, however, it was something like 5 5 and 90%. So the majority of the members of medieval society were those who worked at the bottom to allow the top 10% to live off the fruits of their labor. And as you might imagine, in terms of literacy, that means that the few people who could read and the fewer still who could read and write were mostly concentrated in that 10% at the top of the social order. And one of the most frustrating things for a medievalist is that this means in practice that of the few documents that do survive from the period, almost none are focused on the concerns, loves, disputes, and quotidian matters that affected the great bulk of members of medieval society. Now, this had begun to change a little by 1340 for a few reasons. One was the rise of a merchant class, which was able to develop in part because of a population boom that occurred between 1000 and 1300. Over the course of those three centuries, the population of Europe doubled from about 75 million people to around 150 million. 
This was due to a few factors, one of which was a period of global warming called the Little Climatic Optimum, or the Medieval Warm Period, or the Medieval Climate Optimum. And this increased the growing season. Another influence that allowed the population to increase was that several advances had been made in agricultural practices. But what this meant was that in the blink of an eye, relatively speaking, there was a sudden land crunch. With the practical doubling of the population in just three centuries, pretty much all arable land that could be worked was brought under the plow. And with this land crunch, many people found themselves driven to the cities to find a way to make a living. And we have, for the first time since the fall of the Roman Empire, urbanization on a significant scale in places like London, Paris, Rome, Florence, and Milan. An increase in trade and the movement of goods to and from far-flung locales served to create a new class that didn't quite fit into the three estates model. While the merchant class should technically belong to the 90% of those who work, the members of that class started to look a little more like the top 5%, the nobles, or those who fight. For one thing, a shrewd businessman could make enough money to dress himself and his family in clothes of the highest quality, clothes that might make others mistake him for a minor lord, and he might send his children to one of the schools that were now available, perhaps for the practical purpose of learning math and reading in order for that child to participate successfully in the family business, but maybe because he aspired to more for his children. And indeed, for the first time, more was possible. William Langland, the author of the poem Pierce Plowman, from which I quoted before, appears to have been a cleric in minor orders. He may have attended one of the cathedral schools that by this time were educating not just members of the nobility, but also the children of well-to-do tradespeople of the period. Some people think Langland may have had his education at the Benedictine School in Malvern. And of course, there's Geoffrey Chaucer not only the greatest English writer of the 14th century, but arguably the greatest writer of English, period. He was born in London around 1343 to a family of vintners who had been doing very well in the wine trade. His was clearly a nimble mind. I feel like I'm understating that. A nimble mind. And with a solid education under his belt, something that would have been unlikely for someone in his position 50 years earlier, he went on to make a successful career for himself in civil service. But as we'll see in a later lecture, it was the arrival of the Black Death that actually helped give him his first literary break and turn him into the father of English poetry. So that's a very broad picture of what life looked like in medieval Europe around 1340 on the eve of the Black Death. We have a society that is predominantly Christian, agrarian, and feudal. And again, I use that word for the sake of convenience, as it combines the elements of loyalty, service, protection, and hierarchy into one handy term. Medieval society is also rigidly committed to the idea of the three estates, those who fight, those who pray, and those who work. The ideal, as expressed by Langland, is that everyone stays in their order, being the best knight or best monk or best farmer they can be. If all the members of society did that, then everything would run smoothly. 
This ideal was starting to come under a little bit of pressure, however, with the rise of the merchant classes, who in some cases had more money than some of the lesser nobles and could live better than they did. But this pressure didn't present a real crisis to the social order yet. Many historians, such as David Herlihy, have argued that without some sort of external factor coming into play, society in the Western world would have continued on more or less like this for a few more centuries. And thus, what we think of as the modern world, with its enlightenments and scientific discoveries and literary and artistic renaissances, that world would have been much longer in coming. In other words, the theory goes that as horrible as the Black Death was for those who lived through it, the world that rose from its ashes was a better world with more possibilities for those who had survived its horrors. For one thing, the rigid boundaries of the Three Estates ideal would be blown to absolute smithereens in the aftermath of the plague. It seems an interesting little twist of history that the plague, in the opinion of most historians, moved westward along trade routes, and those merchants and tradesmen who had been so eager to move goods along those routes were the ones whose families benefited in the long term once the ravages of plague had abated. With up to half the population dead, the great nobles didn't have enough labor to work their lands. The peasants who had been tied to a particular land or manor found that they could walk down the road and offer their services to another nobleman who might, in his desperation to get the harvest in, be willing to pay a large cash wage. The nobles, rich in titles and land holdings but cash poor, started to marry into the merchant class. The merchants, of course, were delighted to see their sons and daughters work their way up the social hierarchy. Indeed, Chaucer's granddaughter, Alice de la Pole, became the Duchess of Suffolk. When the first wave of plague had passed, it was a brave new world that emerged. The medieval world in 1340 and the medieval world in 1360 were two very different places. So what exactly was this great pestilence, this great mortality that so fundamentally altered Western medieval society and set it on track to become the world we live in today? Was the plague that ravaged the world in the 1340s the same as the 6th century plague of Justinian that had taken such a toll on the Byzantine Empire? And if so, where had it been hiding for some six centuries? Or was bubonic plague only part of the answer? What about theories that anthrax, cattle murin, tuberculosis, and other diseases were active players in the wave of death that visited the medieval world in the middle of the 14th century? Could the plague have actually come from space, hitching a ride on comets and meteorites? In the next lecture, we're going to explore the epidemiology of plague, examining recent scientific theories as to the exact nature of this horrible disease that helped transform the medieval world into the modern one. Lecture 2. The Epidemiology of Plague For about a decade, in the middle of the 14th century in Europe, it must have seemed like the world was coming to an end. A horrible plague made its way westward, killing a third to a half of the population of the medieval world. Eyewitness accounts describe bodies lying in the streets and 
mass graves in churchyards so full and so foul that people who needed to walk past them held cloths dipped in something strong-smelling, like a concoction of herbs or sweet-smelling flowers in front of their noses. The disease was a mystery, seeming to exist in a confusing variety of permutations. Some people developed excruciatingly painful swollen lymph nodes, buboes, at the groin and armpits. Most of these people died, but some, about 15 to 18 percent, recovered. Others developed fevers, rashes, and blisters, and died in agony, but usually very shortly after those symptoms appeared. Still others seemed to suffer from something in the lungs, tubercular in nature, and they died after a sometimes lengthy and always miserable illness. In some cases, the disease moved so quickly that it was reported that some people could be dancing in the morning and dead by noon. It swept through entire families, and neighbors, relatives, and friends reportedly shunned those who showed any symptoms. Some priests even refused to minister last rites to those who were taken ill. Others, some clergy, some doctors, and some average people, bravely and heroically attempted to offer physical and spiritual comfort to those who were sick, often paying with their own lives for their kindness. I always like to say that people then and people now are more alike than they are different. And as you might expect, in the face of such a catastrophe, various people reacted in dramatically different ways. Some people turned earnestly to religion and prayer, even punishing their flesh with self-flagellation in an attempt to atone for whatever sins of the body had caused God to visit such a punishment upon humanity. Others gave themselves up to hedonism and licentiousness, figuring that if they were going to die, they might as well enjoy themselves up to the last minute. If it sounds terrible, well, it was. But here's the thing. Most scholars now believe that as awful as all the surviving evidence suggests the Black Death was, in reality, it was probably even worse. While overall the death toll was about half the population, in some places, it was probably a whole village or an entire community. Imagine your typical neighborhood, say 10 square blocks, with everyone living in it in a more or less okay state of health. Now imagine that two weeks from today, half the people in that neighborhood are either dead or in the process of dying. What would you do? Would you stay and help? Try and get you and your family away? Would you shut yourself inside, hoping that within a week or so, the illness would burn itself out? All of these were reactions medieval people had to the experience of plague. And the thing is, most of those who witnessed the horrors of the plague either died or had no means to record their observations. Remember, only 10 to 15% of the population were literate in the Middle Ages. Most of the actions of those who lived through the plague, the kindnesses and cruelties neighbors and families showed to each other, the majority of those stories are lost to time and memory. The Black Death of the 14th century 
was such a traumatic event and was such a watershed in history, it's difficult to imagine that there could ever have been anything like it before or that there ever would be anything like it again, except that there was. In the 6th century, the so-called Plague of Justinian had contributed to the final disintegration of what was left of the Western Roman Empire. And in the 19th century in Asia, plague would once again cause death, suffering, and panic. Indeed, it is the 19th century plague and modern medicine's attempts to understand it that would ultimately offer us some answers about the Black Death and the earlier plague that occurred in the 6th century. So in order to understand the epidemiology of plague and how it impacted the medieval world, let's start by examining what scientists were able to figure out by studying the disease in the modern era. The year is 1894, and the place is Canton, China. Starting a few years earlier, there had been outbreaks of plague in Yunnan province and in India. While these outbreaks were not as severe as either the 6th century plague of Justinian or the 14th century Black Death, they were still pretty darn scary. Estimates suggest that somewhere between 50,000 to 125,000 people were infected. 80% of those who contracted plague would die from it. Two scientists working in Hong Kong, a Japanese student of Robert Koch named Shibasaburo Kitasato and a Swiss-French student of Louis Pasteur's named Alexandre Yersin almost simultaneously managed to isolate the cause of plague in the laboratory after careful examination of tissue samples of those infected. Kitasato was a little quicker in discovering the source of plague, but Yersin's description of the bacterium was more thorough and accurate, so to him went the naming honors of this newly discovered pathogen. From 1894 on, the bacterium that causes plague has been called Yersinia pestis in his honor. A few years after isolating and identifying the bacillus, Yersin identified rats as the prime carrier of the disease. And in 1898, a scientist named Paul Louis Simond argued conclusively that the disease is transmitted to humans when fleas jump from a rat to a human being and bite that human being. What this means is that plague is zoonotic. Like smallpox and some other diseases, it originates in animals and then somehow jumps from animals and infects the human population. Here's how it works. Many kinds of rodents can carry plague, and the fleas that feed on rats, guinea pigs, and other similar animals, like squirrels, can become infected with plague. But just because a flea is infected doesn't mean that it's infective. The way that fleas become infective is due to a feature of their alimentary system. They have not only a stomach or a ventriculus, but also a proventriculus, which acts as a kind of valve that regulates the food that the flea is ingesting and trying to get to its stomach. When a flea feeds on a plague-infected rodent, the nourishment doesn't pass to the ventriculus as quickly or as easily as it would if a flea were feeding on a non-infected rodent. In fact, what happens is that a blockage of bacteria and blood forms in the proventriculus so that nourishment can't get to the flea's stomach. Now you've got a very hungry flea 
who starts biting more aggressively and frequently in order to get some nourishment. But the blockage in the proventriculus just gets bigger and bigger. Finally, the flea system realizes what's happening and regurgitates the blockage out of the proventriculus. And where does it go? Well, it goes directly into the system of whatever the flea is feeding on. And if it's a human being and the flea has jumped there from a black rat, then the starving flea will aggressively regurgitate and feed. Studies conducted in the 1970s suggested that it was crucial that the biting flea be a rat flea, and also that the fleas typically found on humans don't really transmit plague. The proportion of plague in the blood of an infected human didn't seem to be enough to cause a blockage in the digestive system of fleas that are usually found on people. So the theory went: you had to have rats as hosts, and then those hosts needed to die. So the rat flea was forced to find a food source that it would not typically have chosen, and in this case, that source was humans. Now you're probably thinking two things right now. One is that is more than I ever wanted to know about the digestive system of fleas. Number two might be, so why isn't plague happening all the time everywhere? Why did it show up in such dramatic fashion in the sixth century? Disappear for the better part of a millennium, reappear in the 14th century, disappear again, and then about 600 years later, reappear briefly in the modern period. No one has a really good answer for that, although there are some fascinating theories: some compelling, some a little out there, and some totally terrifying, like that plague comes from space. And there are some that contend that plague wasn't really plague at all, but something else entirely, or a combination of different diseases. At the very least, however, we can say that although the same bacillus seems to have been primarily responsible for the three plagues—the one that occurred in the late antique world, the one in the medieval era, and the one in the modern period—their epidemiology and etiology seem to differ a bit. Suggesting that the bacterium itself has undergone some evolutionary shifts at different times in its existence. We'll talk more about this and those alternate plague theories in a later lecture. But for now, we're going to focus on what mainstream science has thought about the nature and epidemiology of plague for most of the 20th and 21st century. Okay, so let's say you've been bitten by an infected and infective. Rat flea. What happens next? Well, in most people, large swollen areas develop around the lymph nodes, usually at the neck, groin, and armpits. These lumps are called buboes, and it is from this word that we get the most common name we use for the Black Death, the bubonic plague. Now, here's the good news: if you get the bubonic form of the plague, you have around an 18% chance of surviving. Well, that doesn't sound terribly encouraging. It's much better than the zero percent chance you have of surviving the two other forms, septicemic and pneumonic. In this respect, bubonic plague is very similar to another zoonotic disease that's been in the news of late, Ebola. Indeed, much recent scholarship on the Black Death has taken as a starting point the latest Ebola crisis, drawing comparisons between medieval and modern reactions to such a horrific disease. Now, of course, Ebola is a virus, 
not a bacterium. But it seems to have jumped to humans from fruit bats initially, just as plague seems to have jumped from rats to humans. Until recently, survival rates of Ebola were pegged at just under 10%. But the recent outbreaks have allowed medical science to experiment with different treatments and learn more about the epidemiology of the disease. Although it's always preferable to learn such things in a lab rather than in the real world, survival rates of Ebola are now supposedly hovering around 30 to 50%, which is much better odds than the bubonic plague. Until the recent Ebola outbreak, the comparison that scholars most often drew was to HIV-AIDS, yet another zoonotic disease. This one seems to have jumped to humans from certain types of monkeys in Africa sometime in the 20th century, and many scientists think the initial source of transmission was human consumption of infected primates, also known as bushmeat. Like Ebola, and unlike bubonic plague, HIV is a virus, not a bacterium. But here's one of the most fascinating things researchers have uncovered. It appears that 10 to 20% of those people descended from the medieval population of Western Europe have a natural immunity to HIV. Those individuals who have a natural immunity carry a gene mutation known as CCR5 Delta 32, which prevents the HIV virus from entering the cells of a person exposed to the virus. On the face of it, this seems rather odd. HIV emerged in Africa in the modern period and the CCR5 mutation has been traced back to as far as 2,500 years ago in Europe. So why would some Europeans have immunity to a disease that no one in Europe had ever encountered? One really intriguing theory, among all those plague theories to which I alluded a moment ago, is that some of the plague in the ancient world in the Middle Ages was not bubonic plague at all, but rather a virus that produced a hemorrhagic fever. Those who survived this plague may have been carriers of this mutation, and then this immunity was passed on to their descendants. Some scholars have argued that, in fact, the disease that produced this immunity in European populations was not some mysterious, as yet unknown, hemorrhagic fever, but was actually a form of smallpox, a disease that has plagued humans for 10,000 years, and which also seems to be zoonotic in nature like bubonic plague, most likely jumping to humans from infected rodents. But unlike plague, and again, like HIV and Ebola, a virus and not a bacterium. A definitive answer hasn't yet been reached, but scientists are working on it. If nothing else, these examples demonstrate how interconnected the past and the present are and how the study of one can help to shed light on the other. And if this theory is correct, then it makes the picture of the plague that swept through Europe in the 14th century all the more horrific. Because you didn't just have the bubonic plague. You had some sort of fever that caused your internal organs to liquefy, and maybe there was some smallpox lurking, and who knows what else, as I'll discuss in the next lecture. But for now, let's get back to those variants of Yersinia pestis plague that we are fairly certain were wreaking havoc in the medieval world. I've already described the bubonic form of the plague, in which infection was signaled not only by feeling absolutely horrible, but was also announced as plague 
and not your run-of-the-mill medieval illness by swellings at the neck, groin, and armpits. With this form, human-to-human transmission seems to be almost impossible, although it may have occurred in some instances when doctors or caretakers tried to effect a cure by lancing the buboes. First-person accounts of this process from the period indicate that the pus that came out when this operation was performed was disgusting not only in appearance, but also, and particularly, in terms of the smell. A few accounts relate that the doctor and others in the room were so overcome by the stench that they often fainted or vomited. But again, this seems to be the one form of plague that you might, just might, survive. So what were the others? Most medieval scholars and scientists agree that there were two other primary kinds of plague, pneumonic and septicemic. Pneumonic plague was the second most common form of plague, and, as its name suggests, in this case, Yersinia pestis has set up shop in the sufferer's respiratory system rather than in the lymphatic system, as is the case with the bubonic form. It starts usually with a patient zero, who's been infected with the bubonic form of the disease, which then makes its way from her lymphatic system into her respiratory system. What is terrifying about this form of plague, and that's not to say that the other forms aren't also terrifying, but what's uniquely terrifying about this form of plague is that it is now easily transmissible from person to person. A doctor or friend or relative taking care of someone infected with the pneumonic form of plague is going to be coming in contact with blood, sputum, saliva, all containing the bacterium, and they will usually themselves become infected. Unless, of course, someone is alert enough to recognize this for what it is and put on a hazmat suit. And of course, right now you're thinking, well, there were no hazmat suits in the Middle Ages, so those people were definitely out of luck. But in fact, somewhat by accident, plague doctors did come up with an early form of hazmat suit. The most important part was a bird-like mask that covered the doctor's face. The beak of this head covering was filled with fresh-smelling herbs and flowers because it was popularly believed that plague infection was due to some sort of bad-smelling miasma. So a lot of people figured if they could hold something good-smelling in front of their faces, they could avoid infection. Indeed, as many of you probably already know, Some scholars believe the children's rhyme, Ring Around a Rosie, is all about the Black Death. Quote, Ring around a rosie, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. End quote. The argument goes that the references to the flowers alludes to the practice of people filling their hands and pockets with fragrant blooms, roses, posies, etc., in the hope that the sweet smell would act as a barrier against plague. And of course, ashes, ashes, we all fall down, is acknowledging ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And eventually, everyone's going to die, one way or another. While some have suggested that the connection to plague is tenuous and a modern invention, others believe firmly that this rhyme reflects the reality of the plague world. In a later lecture, I'll talk more about what theories people developed to explain the plague's appearance and the strategies and cures they deployed in order to combat it. But be warned, that plague doctor suit is creepy looking and will give you nightmares about human-bird hybrids if your imagination is prone to such wanderings.
But for now, let's get back to pneumonic plague and the terrifying fact of human-to-human transmission that this form brought with it. Also horrifying, the way you died was usually because you were drowning in your own blood. Now, the good news here is that from onset of symptoms to death, it's usually just two days. The bad news, the suffering is intense. And there's less than 1% survival rate. And even that statistic might be a tad optimistic. I don't want to contemplate how long those two days must seem to a person who is dying of pneumonic plague. The third and least common form of plague is that known as septicemic which is an infection of the blood. Like pneumonic plague, this form can start out as bubonic, and then the infection can move to a different bodily system. When plague bacteria enter the bloodstream, they cause something known as disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC. In these instances, tiny blood clots start to form throughout the body, which results in something called localized ischemic necrosis, which is just a fancy way of saying that portions of your body tissue start to die off due to lack of circulation. I know, this sounds super pleasant, and it gets better. If you've got septicemic plague, and it's pretty well advanced, your blood starts to lose the ability to clot properly. If your blood doesn't clot, it starts to seep into other parts of your body, like your skin and internal organs. This produces red and black patchy rashes and bumps on the skin that look rather like lots and lots of pimples, but all over your body. Most scholars think that these visible indicators are what medieval people meant when they said of a dead person that he or she bore the sign of the plague. A final common sign of advanced septicemic plague is the vomiting of blood. But taking the optimist's perspective, here's the good news. If you've contracted septicemic plague, you could die within 24 hours of showing symptoms. In some cases, people are reported as having been feeling fine at 9 a.m., not so good at noon, and dead at 4. Although we began this lecture talking about the three major outbreaks of plague in the 6th, the 14th, and the 19th centuries, it's not that plague completely disappeared in between. Indeed, it periodically flared up again after the initial waves of infection, and in the case of the Black Death of the Middle Ages, kept reappearing in milder forms with some regularity in Europe until about the 17th century. What's really interesting to me is how, while the basic epidemiology seemed to be the same in subsequent outbreaks, the nature of plague did seem to shift or evolve a little bit. For example, In England, toward the end of the 14th century, there was a wave of plague that seemed to target only the healthiest people, the elderly and the very young, who were usually the first victims of an outbreak because they were either the weakest or had the least developed immune systems, were spared in this outbreak. But healthy people in their late 20s were almost completely wiped out. And of course, plague still exists today. Every year, there are about 5 to 10 cases in the U.S., and in 2015, there were at least 15 cases, usually due to people coming into contact with plague-infected rodents in mountain or wilderness areas. And if the doctors can figure out what it is quickly enough, the plague can usually be easily cured with a course of antibiotics, usually streptomycin or gentamicin, although a few others are sometimes used. 
Fortunately, because plague is so rare these days, doctors don't always recognize it when it appears, and there have been some deaths from plague in the U.S. in the last several decades. This is why when you go hiking in the mountains, you sometimes encounter warning signs at trailheads advising you to stay away from animals, especially those of the rodent variety, and especially those that are dead, because a dead animal is no longer a viable host for the fleas that have been feeding on it. And even if they are rat fleas, who don't prefer humans, in a pinch, they'll happily jump to a hiker or camper who happens to be in close proximity. So it's due to the plague outbreak in India and China at the end of the 19th century that medical science was able to identify the cause of plague and figure out its modes of transmission. And, doing some historical detective work, scholars seem pretty certain that the two earlier, more devastating outbreaks of disease in the Western world are a pretty good match for the epidemic that occurred in 1894 in Asia. For example, let's look quickly at the plague of Justinian. Contemporary accounts suggest that the disease originated in China and then moved with rats along trade routes to Egypt and Constantinople. The plague first appeared around 541 and is called the Plague of Justinian because the emperor himself contracted the plague but was lucky enough to survive. The historian Evagrius Scholasticus wrote an account of how he also contracted the plague, describing it in textbook fashion, right down to the buboes at armpit and groin. He survived, but when the plague subsequently returned in new waves, most of his family and servants died. Especially hard hit during this outbreak was the city of Constantinople, capital of what had been the eastern half of the Roman Empire, and which at this point was well into its transformation into the Byzantine Empire. The historian and scholar Procopius wrote that in that city, up to 10,000 people a day were dying, and the bodies were stacked up in the streets because there was no place to put them. It's hard to gauge the accuracy of these accounts, but scholars guess that the plague may have claimed up to 40% of the population. The impact of the plague was certainly wide-ranging and resonated throughout the medieval world. Justinian's attempts to reunite the Roman Empire crumbled in the wake of the plague's devastation, as there were not enough able-bodied men to serve in the military and not enough active farmland to be taxed to pay those military forces. For the next two centuries, the plague would make periodic reappearances, landing body blow after body blow to the social infrastructure at precisely the moments it seemed to be recovering. Indeed, some scholars believe that the plague of Justinian hastened the transformation of the Roman Empire into the fledgling nations and communities that would eventually become France, Germany, England, etc., with no central military or bureaucracy in place, smaller entities like the Goths in Byzantium, the Lombards in Italy, and the Anglo-Saxons in England were able to claim lands and powers that they could not have otherwise. By the time of the last occurrence of this wave of plague, which happened in about 750, the European world looked much different than it had in 540. The Black Death of the 14th century seems in most ways to be the same disease that Justinian and his empire had suffered through, and the same also as the third pandemic that reared its ugly head in Asia at the end of the 19th century. But when it comes to the second pandemic, 
the great mortality of the 1340s. There are a number of puzzles and inconsistencies that keep scholars up at night. There's enough reason to wonder if perhaps there were other factors at work that caused this outbreak to be the most devastating the Western world has seen in all recorded history. In the next lecture, we're going to explore some of the more interesting theories that complicate and expand our understanding of just what exactly was happening to the medieval world in the 14th century. Lecture 3. Did plague really cause the Black Death? In many of the other courses I've done for the teaching company, the medieval world, great minds of the medieval world, turning points in medieval history, I invariably talk about the Black Death. After all, it radically shaped the Middle Ages, certainly had an impact on many of the great minds of that world, and absolutely was the biggest turning point in the whole thousand-year span of the medieval period. But whenever I tried to end the course with the Black Death, I'd get a call or an email from one of my producers, and the conversation would usually go something like, we don't think we can end on the plague. It's just too depressing. Can we move that lecture a little earlier? So you can imagine my sense of triumph when they contacted me a few months ago and said, um, yeah, we don't suppose you could do a whole 24 lectures on the Black Death, could you? When I pointed out that that would probably be quite depressing, they were like, yes, but you know what? Our customers seem to be really interested in it and they want more which just goes to prove what I've been saying all along. Teaching company customers are an intellectual and inquisitive bunch who can handle the Black Death just fine. So let's get back to it. We know that starting around 1346, in the part of the world we've come to call Western Europe, a devastating plague swept across the continent, moving east to west and wiping out up to half and maybe more of the population. This scourge was all the more terrifying because news of the plague was spreading west ahead of the bow wave of the disease itself, and people knew that it was coming. Even worse than that, there seemed to be utterly no defense, although people came up with all sorts of desperate strategies to try and ward off the disease. I've mentioned how some people carried flowers or strong-smelling herbs in front of their faces, believing that this might ward off the illness. Although there was no theory of germ transmission yet, others took the commonsensical approach of refusing to use spices or purchase fabrics and other goods that had come by ship from plague-infected areas. And of course, this makes sense, given what most scholars believe about how the plague made its way west. The predominant theory is that a climatic event in China around 1346 caused the black rat population to have to leave its primary habitat and move into areas that brought the rats into contact with humans. When the rat population had a sudden die-off, the fleas on the rats jumped to human hosts. Then, so the theory goes, the humans and rats and other animals brought the plague with them along the trade routes that were moving east to west in the medieval world. And as you learned in lecture one, 
The medieval world in the mid-14th century was becoming a crowded place, with an increase in urbanization the likes of which had not been seen since the glory days of the Roman Empire. Between the years 1000 and 1300, the population of the medieval world had doubled, in part thanks to a climatic warming period known as the Little Climatic Optimum. Advances in agricultural practices meant that more people were able to eat and eat well, and thus to survive and reproduce. But by the mid-14th century, in a classic example of a Malthusian crisis, demand was outstripping supply. There were suddenly too many people. The fight for land became a fierce struggle. People crowded into cities as a merchant economy began to challenge the traditional three-estate social order that had existed for so long. What this meant was that if and when a disease like the plague were to appear on the scene, its devastation would be all the greater because the population as a whole had very little in the way of any kind of natural defense. They were already weak and, in some cases, starving or at least malnourished. This explains, in part, why when the bubonic plague made its way through the medieval world, its impact was so devastating. Yet, in recent years, several scholars have made the argument that this can't be the whole explanation. And many have suggested that while plague may be partially responsible for the high mortality rates in the middle of the 14th century, the virulence and speed with which death swept through Western Europe doesn't completely make sense if we assign just plague as its primary cause. As I mentioned in the last lecture, scientists have discovered that about 10 to 20 percent of the population of Western Europe has a natural immunity to HIV-AIDS, and that the mutation accounting for this seems to be connected to having an ancestor who survived the plague. At first, this doesn't make any sense at all, as the plague is bacterial and HIV-AIDS, like the latest terrifying disease to show up, Ebola, is viral. Unless, of course, what was sweeping across the continent was not only bubonic plague, but also some kind of hemorrhagic fever. That sounds like a deadly one-two punch if ever there was one. But there are other theories about different exogenously occurring events that contributed to the devastation of the great mortality. And we're going to talk about more of these in this lecture. One of the first medieval scholars to really aggressively question both the causes of the Black Death and raise questions about its impact was the late great historian David Herlihy, a specialist who worked extensively on medieval Italy, which was especially hard hit by the plague, Hurley-He made use of some surprising and understudied contemporary sources related to the plague, and he drew some really fascinating conclusions. Now, one thing Hurley-He noted is that almost nowhere in the accounts of medieval plague's advance does anyone mention an epizootic event. This would be a massive die-off of the rats, who are the black fleas' primary host. And this die-off would be what would cause the fleas to jump to humans. 
In the case of the 19th century plague in India and China, several accounts attest to a die-off there as preceding the onslaught of plague. So the question becomes, did medieval people just miss noticing this die-off? It seems unlikely as they sought explanations for the epidemic sweeping through the medieval world wherever they could, and they would turn to erupting volcanoes on other parts of the globe, a particular alignment of the planets, and earthquakes as possible causes. But it seems strange that they wouldn't consider a recent epizootic event as connected. Herlihy also was one of the first to raise the point that the speed with which plagues swept through the medieval world isn't satisfactorily explained by the argument that the Black Death moved along trade routes. Unless we're dealing with pneumonic plague, humans can't infect other humans. So a very large number of infected rats and their fleas would have to be hitching rides westward in caravans and onboard ships for the mainstream theory to hold water. Also, plague seemed to move in seasonal cycles getting worse in the summer, disappearing for a time in the winter, and then reappearing again with warm weather. Epidemiologically, it would make more sense for winter to be the worst time of infection. Everyone is indoors, humans and rats side by side, and there's greater chance for all those people huddled together to pass the pneumonic form of the plague to each other. But that's not what tended to happen that there were multiple forms of plague and arguably diseases other than plague moving through the world at this time is suggested by the medieval physician Guy de Choliac, who was at the papal court in Avignon in 1348. He described a wave of illness that produced the typical buboes that give bubonic plague its name, but he also described an illness that produced high fever and coughing up of blood which was extremely contagious, and this form of illness usually killed its victims within three days. If we look at the details of this description, it sounds much more like some virulent form of tuberculosis than it does plague. There are other factors complicating the argument that what struck the medieval world in the 14th century was only bubonic plague. For example, we know that in Florence, Italy, starting in 1377, so this is after the first big wave of plague had already ravaged the region. In Florence at that time, those who were responsible for preparing bodies for burial would note in the Libri dei Morti, or Books of the Dead, what had been the cause of death when it could be determined. Quite a bit later, by 1424, if someone had died of plague, there would be a notation in these books that read de segno, or with the sign, meaning the sign of the plague. And then, for good measure, there would often be a big P in the margin of the book as well. Even though these notations were occurring well after the 1348 outbreak that is the main focus of this course, all the evidence suggests that people considered these later epidemics recurrences of what had happened in 1348, and they weren't thinking that this was some new disease. They had simply come up with a new way of recording it. 
But now here comes the head scratcher. What was that sign marked with the P exactly? It was so obvious and so well known to the people who had been living through this epidemic for decades by the point they started making notations that not many scribes bother to tell us what the sign is. In Viterbo, Italy, there are mentions in the surviving documents of lenticuli or petechiae or marks on the body that look something like freckles. In medieval England, we hear references to the blue sickness, which seems to indicate that sufferers of the epidemic would develop bruised-looking patches on their skin. What's noteworthy here is that many of these descriptions don't mention buboes at all, or they do so only very occasionally. Based on the inconsistencies and divergences in the description of what exactly was killing off half the population of Western Europe, scientists started re-examining the evidence with renewed interest in the modern period, especially in the late 20th century. In 1984, an epidemiologist named Graham Twigg published what was, at the time, considered a radical rethinking of the causes of the Black Death in which he argued that most of the medieval epidemics were not the plague at all, but in fact, they were caused by exposure to anthrax. Right now, I am sure many of you are thinking, anthrax, isn't that the white powdery substance that disgruntled people kept sending in the mail to members of Congress a while ago in an attempt to poison them? Yes. That was anthrax. And you would not be alone if you had assumed, from the way these attacks were reported, that this was a purely synthetic substance cooked up in some sort of lab out of Breaking Bad. But actually, anthrax is a bacillus, like Yersinia pestis, and it is found to be naturally occurring on every continent, including Antarctica. Infection usually occurs when grazing animals inhale the Bacillus anthracis spores. The infection jumps to humans if we consume meat from infected animals. You can also contract anthrax if you come into contact with the clothing or shoes of someone who has encountered anthrax spores out in nature. It's the hardiness of the anthrax spores that has attracted modern interest in them as biological weapons. In fact, live anthrax spores have been discovered in the soil covering an animal that died of that disease 70 years after the fact. In the mid-19th century, Louis Pasteur, yes, that Louis Pasteur, came up with a vaccine for anthrax. Prior to that, it was a regular occurrence for thousands of animals and humans to die from anthrax every year. While anthrax is considered to be under control in most of the developed world, infection still does occur to this day in parts of the globe that don't have much in the way of a veterinary infrastructure. So what happens if you come into contact with anthrax spores? Well, if you inhale them, you usually have some flu-like symptoms for a few days, then severe pneumonia and respiratory collapse, symptoms that sound an awful lot like the pneumonic form of plague. And if you eat infected meat, you have serious GI issues and end up vomiting blood, 
which sounds a lot like the symptoms sometimes associated with all three forms of plague. And even more to the point, boils and lesions often show up on the bodies of those who are infected with anthrax. You can imagine that in the days before photography and medical textbooks, people might not have been looking too closely at the details of the lesions and or buboes that appeared on a patient. And they weren't calling for a consult with an expert in the field at the biggest medical school. If you were a medieval person, I imagine you would think fever, blisters, boils, discoloration, blood vomiting, it's got to be plague. And I imagine you wouldn't press too hard when it came to the specifics. Really, all you needed to know at this point is that chances are the person you're looking at is going to die. And since you're looking at him or her, your prospects don't look too good either. Historically, it's estimated that fatality rates for anthrax were around 85%. In the modern period, if anthrax is diagnosed and treated quickly, the fatality rate is closer to 45%. Again, that sounds a lot like plague. And if you've got such hardy pathogens that they can still be found in the soil, covering a deceased, infected animals decades after its death, and if you think about how the medieval population probably dealt with diseased animals, and by this I mean they probably dragged the corpses what seemed like a safe distance away and then forgot about them after a generation or so, well, if you think about it that way, then you can also see why anthrax might seem to be a logical explanation for why the plague would flare up again every decade or so after its initial wave swept through the medieval world. Historian Norman Cantor points out that anthrax spores have been found in a plague pit, or a mass grave, dating from the Middle Ages in Scotland. And there's evidence that meat from slaughtered murrain-infected cattle was sold in villages in England shortly before the first big outbreak there in 1348. There are some scholars who have found much that is persuasive about this theory, but have more cautiously proposed that while anthrax may be the cause, it would be safer and more correct to argue that some sort of cattle and or sheep murrain may have been a contributor. That word murrain, originally and appropriately, is a medieval word that at first just meant death. But it underwent linguistic specialization and came to mean any disease that affected cattle and sheep. Now to my mind, one of the most interesting, out there, and terrifying theories about plague is that it comes from space. This theory was first proposed in 1979 by Fred Hoyle, an astrophysicist who had had a long career at Cambridge University, and Nalin Chandra Wickramasinghe in their co-authored book, Diseases from Space. They continued to develop their theory in later books, and it essentially goes like this. Darwin's theory of evolution is correct up to a point, but the elements indigenous to Earth are not enough to contribute to the development of flora and fauna on our planet. What the recipe for life on Earth has needed to develop as it has is something external, exogenous. The term for this is panspermia which is the idea that the seeds of life exist all through the universe, and those seeds move through the galaxies as parts of comets, asteroids, and other such bodies, 
And when those bodies crash into a planet like ours, sometimes carrying with them bacteria that can cause disease, we have what Hoyle and Wickramasinghe call vertical transmission. Once that disease establishes a foothold on Earth and finds some reservoirs or hosts it can hang out in, then horizontal transmission from animal to animal or person to person or animal to person can occur. Hoyle and Wickramasinghe argue that bubonic plague seems to be, in their opinion, a likely candidate for a disease that was vertically transmitted from space. They claim that this explains why plague appeared in the 6th century, then again in the 14th, and then again in the 19th, with such long gaps in between outbreaks. Where was Yersinia pestis hiding all this time? The answer? Not on Earth. Just as planetary objects like Halley's Comet pass by Earth in regular intervals, so too might some other heretofore unremarked comet-like body be swinging by Earth at regular intervals, raining down the plague bacteria, which finds its most willing hosts and its first hosts in black rats. Indeed, while the authors acknowledge the role that the black rat played in the outbreak of the Black Death, they are also quick to point out the flaws in the theory that these rodents were the main means of transmission. Quote, to argue that stricken rats set out on a safari that took them in six months, not merely from southern to northern France, but even across the Alpine Massif, borders on the ridiculous. What remarkable rats they were to have crossed the sea and to have marched into remote English villages, and yet to have effectively bypassed the cities of Milan, Liège, and Nuremberg. There was no marching army of plague-stricken rats, the rats died in the places where they were, end quote. As you might imagine, mainstream science hasn't had much to say about this, so I decided to ask a friend of mine who knows more than I on the subject. Dr. Chris Patil, a biologist who also is one of the select 100 people who are currently training for the Mars One program, which aims to put the first colonists on Mars by 2026. Now, while Dr. Patil is not an expert in this particular subfield, he obviously has some experience with things biological and things space-y, and he says he might cautiously agree that the idea that life on Earth, at least some of it, may have originated elsewhere has some points in its favor. There's a lot of meteoric traffic among the inner planets, he notes, and there are plenty of microbes that could survive the journey through space. But at the same time, the specifics of Hoyle and Wickramasinghe's theory is considered very fringe by the scientific community at large. And pretty much every mainstream scientist feels that the theory doesn't really hold water and certainly can't be proved. There is good reason for there to be such doubt surrounding the theory that Yersinia pestis is the prime cause of the Black Death, however. One point that scholars and scientists return to again and again, as you've seen, is the problem of the means of transmission. The black rat did not suddenly decide to migrate west, then south, then northwest, and back east again, all of a sudden, starting in 1346. And as I've also noted, there doesn't seem to be a logical correlation between outbreaks and the seasons. For example, 
some of the worst outbreaks occurred during really hot Mediterranean summers in Italy. But that's exactly when rat fleas were least likely to be thriving. Plague also was reported to have occurred in Scandinavia in the dead of winter. Again, those have to be some pretty hardy and mobile fleas. Scholars have tried to explain these discrepancies by making exhaustive arguments about all the kinds of fleas that might have carried the plague, from black rat fleas to gray rat fleas, human fleas, brown rat fleas, etc., etc. I won't go into too much detail here because I feel like we already know more about fleas than we ever might want to after the time I spent explaining their digestive systems. But just recently, in early 2015, a study came out of the University of Oslo suggesting that black rats, or any rats, may not have been responsible at all. The study, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, was serious and thorough, investigating the link between climate and plague outbreaks. And through dendrochronology, the analysis of tree ring data, they demonstrated that plague outbreaks in Europe don't correspond to weather in Europe. The outbreaks seem to have a correlation to weather in Asia, particularly corresponding to years when there were wet springs and warm summers. Okay, so far so good. Most scholars agree that the outbreak seems to have originated in Asia and then move west along trade routes. But these weather patterns are not conducive to breeding black rats. So the dominant theory seems to not quite fit. Unless you turn to another rodent that carries fleas. And that rodent, the authors argue, was the gerbil. Now, my first reaction when I heard this, as you might imagine, was, well, my kids are never getting a gerbil for a pet. My second reaction as a medievalist and scholar was to be intrigued and delighted at the fact that we're still able to discover new and possibly relevant information about something that happened around seven centuries ago. The authors of the study say that when there was a spate of weather that provided an ideal breeding climate for gerbils, and of course, they're fleas, this period was predictably followed by outbreaks of plague moving west, again, along the Silk Road and other trade routes, as has long been believed. The new information here is that they have been able to correlate the timing of the outbreaks again and again to ideal gerbil breeding seasons in the East. Bet you didn't know there was such a thing as ideal gerbil breeding seasons. Learn something new every day. So, the argument is that when each wave of the plague struck the medieval world, it was not a resurgence of plague found in the rat populations that were already in existence in Europe, but rather each outbreak was due to a new wave of infection coming from the East after the gerbils had had a particularly productive period. Again, there seem to be more than a few possible holes in this theory, but then no one theory we've examined adequately explains how and why the plague showed up when it did, moved as quickly as it did, killed as many people as it did, and then disappeared for so long. Many people have pointed out that for as deadly as the plague was in the 14th century, it seemed rather a weak shadow of the Black Death when it reappeared in the late 19th century. 
Yes, medical science was more advanced in the modern period than in the medieval, and the response in the 19th century was quicker and more globally coordinated when that outbreak happened in 1894 than it had been when the outbreak happened in 1346. But still, that modern plague was just a quick blip on the disease radar, while the medieval one, if we're going to continue with the radar analogy, not only would have lit up the whole screen, but would have fried all the circuits and hardware as well. To explain this, some scientists have proposed that the modern plague was caused by an evolutionarily much weaker form of Yersinia pestis. This would make sense, because the medieval form of plague was so virulent, it would seem that unless it evolved into a less deadly form, it was at risk of wiping itself out by killing all its potential hosts. In a series of articles that have been appearing since about 2000, several different scientists have written reports about what they've discovered using DNA analysis of corpses excavated from plague cemeteries, focusing particularly on what they've been able to discover by analyzing, for example, tooth pulp. Several of these studies have been careful to study skeletons from throughout Europe, not just from one particular area, to make sure they weren't generalizing from one aberrational mass grave. A study published by the journal PLOS Pathogens in 2010 found the DNA and protein signatures in a variety of skeletons from throughout northern, central, and southern Europe and also identified two previously unknown genetic branches of Yersinia pestis that were associated with specific mass graves. This suggests that the plague came into Europe in two distinct waves, and interestingly, these two variants now appear to be extinct. In other words, they burned themselves out. This theory goes some way to explaining some of the puzzles surrounding the plague, but as you can see from this lecture, there are still many questions to be answered. The good news is, science continues to make great strides in this area, and we can hope that in the future, more answers will be forthcoming. So thus far, we've examined what the medieval world looked like on the eve of the Black Death. Crowded, agrarian, Christian, with a long entrenched class structure that was just starting to shift a little bit due to an increase in urbanization and the growth of a merchant class that didn't quite fit neatly into the divisions of those who fight, those who pray, and those who work. We've also tried to answer the question of what the Black Death was or was not. Certainly the bacterium Yersinia pestis is a prime culprit with its three forms of illness, bubonic, pneumonic, and septicemic plague, wreaking havoc wherever they appeared. But most scholars agree that this alone can't account for the virulence and speed with which half the population of Western Europe was wiped out. Some reasonable theories about what else was part of the great mortality include tuberculosis, anthrax, a cattle murin that went zoonotic, leaping from animals to humans, maybe a form of smallpox, perhaps an as-yet unidentified hemorrhagic fever that bears some resemblance to HIV, and of course, germs from space. Now that we've gotten the preliminaries and the epidemiology out of the way, we're going to turn next to a timeline of the Black Death. The outbreak that would so devastate the medieval world would first rear its head in 1346 in the eastern city of Kaffa, and from there it moved westward and then northward 
through Europe, finally turning back east, ending up almost where it had started, so that by 1353, in the words of historian David Herlihy, quote, the plague had almost closed a deadly noose around Europe, end quote. An apt image, if ever there was one. So join me next time as we examine the first sustained appearance of plague, which also may be one of the very first recorded instances of germ warfare. Lecture 4. The Black Death's Ports of Entry In the middle of the 14th century, one of the most devastating events in human history wiped out half the population of Europe. But as we've seen, the most likely cause of this pandemic, the bubonic plague, caused by the Yersinia pestis bacterium, started in Asia and then made its way west, south, northwest, and then looped back around east, tightening around the medieval European world like a noose. So how exactly did the plague move from Asia into Europe? Well, we can answer that question in a general sense. It came along the trade routes. But in this lecture, we're going to get really specific. How did it first make contact with the European world? Using the first-person accounts of medieval people and some modern-day detective work, we'll get pretty close to having an answer, I think. When we think of the words trade and medieval Europe, it's usually one group of people who come to mind first. The Italians. The Italian peninsula, in its prime position, extending down into the Mediterranean and connected to the European landmass, had been a center of trade for centuries. And Italian merchants and sailors had gotten pretty good at moving goods and services among Africa, Asia, the Middle East, and Western Europe. It's important to clarify here, however, that it's not really correct to refer to these people as Italians. Italy was far from unified at this point in time, and in effect, it was a collection of city-states, each fiercely independent and with its own self-contained government, guild system, military, and economic interests. Florentines considered themselves different from Venetians, who were definitely different from Neapolitans, who were not the same as the Milanese. And Sicilians were their own thing altogether, and an even farther remove. In the year 1266, a group of Genoese traders and merchants established a center of trade at a place called Caffa, which today is called Feodosia. This port city is on the Crimean Peninsula on the Black Sea. In order to set up a trading center there, the Genoese had to enter into an agreement with the ruling people of that area, the Tatars, also called Mongols, also called the Golden Horde. If you look at a map of routes of Italian ships of this time, you can see why this stronghold was so critical to lucrative trading. From the Italian peninsula, Genoese and other merchants would move from the Mediterranean into the Aegean Sea, and from there through the Dardanelles into the Sea of Marmara, then through the Bosporus into the Black Sea, where they could put in at Kaffa. From there, they could move into the Sea of Azov, and the Genoese had also established an outpost in the northeast corner of the Sea of Azov, 
at a place that was then called Tana. From Tana, they could extend their trade route both overland into the Middle East and along the Don River into Russia. It was an extensive and profitable network, but relations between the Mongols and the traders were often tense. To give you an idea of how tense, in 1307, Toktai Khan arrested most of the Italian traders who were then in the Mongol capital of Sarai, and then he laid siege to Kaffa. He was upset because Genoese merchants had cornered the market on Turkish slaves, and they were selling these slaves to the Mamluk Sultanate, who would then train them to be soldiers, and those soldiers would fight in the Sultanate's interests against the Golden Horde. Everybody got that? What's important to know is there's a conflict between the Mongols and the Genoese. In any event, after initially resisting the Mongol siege, the Genoese decided to call it quits, which they could easily do. The siege was coming from land, and there was no blockade in the harbor, so they could leave by water. But before they left, in an act of defiance, they set the whole city of Kaffa on fire. A few years later, Toktai died, and his successor, Otsbeg, invited the Genoese back, recognizing that there was profit to be had from their relationship. It was Otsbeg who gave them control of Tana, which allowed the Genoese to expand their trade network. This, in turn, made them ever more eager to keep a firm hold on Kaffa. By the 1340s, Kaffa was both thriving and heavily fortified. It had two concentric walls of protection, and it's estimated that within the inner walls were about 6,000 households, and within the outer walls, about 11,000. It was a very cosmopolitan population, including people who identified themselves as Greeks, Turks, Venetians, Armenians, Jews, and Mongols. Now, in 1343, there was what amounts to a street fight between some of the Italian population of Tana and some of the Muslim population. Instead of dissipating, the violence escalated, and the forces of the new Mongol leader, Yanibeg, tried to arrest the Genoese who were involved. They, in turn, hopped in their boats and fled south and west across the Sea of Azov into the Black Sea and took refuge in Kaffa. Further escalating the conflict, Yanibeg decided to attack the city, and he laid siege to it off and on for two whole years. One reason the conflict lasted so long was due to the significant defenses presented by those concentric walls that I mentioned a moment ago. The other was that while Yanibeg pretty much ensured there was no movement in or out of the city by land, the Genoese, once again, and the other inhabitants, were still able to come and go and get supplies, in a limited fashion, by sea. This situation might have continued pretty much indefinitely, one supposes, were it not for something totally unexpected. In 1345, Beg's forces were ravaged by plague, which had started to make its way west. The Mongol forces recognized that they were defeated and that the siege was over, but before they withdrew, they engaged in what microbiologist Mark Wheelis has described as, quote, the most spectacular incident of biological warfare ever. They loaded up their trebuchets with plague corpses and launched them into the city. 
It is this event that many contemporary chroniclers identify as the first contact between the European world and the plague. It's this belief that informs the first-person account of one Gabriele de Musi, who wrote one of the first accounts of the plague's arrival in Europe. He wrote in Latin, in a text that has come to be called the Historia de Morbo, and it's clear that he undertook this task as a very serious attempt to record history and leave a formal account for posterity. De Musi was a lawyer in the Italian town of Piacenza, which was itself hard hit by the plague. He begins his account by reminding readers of the vengeance and punishments of God, stating that God had warned Christians to give up their sinning ways, and because they did not listen, the Lord then sent the plague as punishment. Now, this was a widespread belief in the medieval world, as one might expect. Here, in Rosemary Horrocks' excellent translation from the Latin is a key passage to which historians, scientists, medical professionals, and literary scholars alike have turned again and again over the years in an attempt to understand the nature of the plague. Here's what de Musi wrote, quote, O God, see how the heathen Tartar races, pouring together from all sides, suddenly infested the city of Kaffa and besieged the trapped Christians there for almost three years. But behold, the whole army was affected by a disease which overran the Tartars and killed thousands upon thousands every day. All medical advice and attention was useless. The Tartars died as soon as the signs of disease appeared on their bodies. Swellings in the armpit or groin caused by coagulating humors, followed by a putrid fever. End quote. Now, as you might guess, the thing that interests scholars here is the very specific reference to buboes appearing in those infected. This seems pretty clearly to be a case of bubonic plague. Indeed, you might actually call it a textbook description. Now, some have questioned why, if plague is spread by rat fleas and the army was infected, those in the city didn't also get infected. Rats are pretty famous for being able to get in and out of places people usually can't move between themselves. But remember, the Mongol army was not right up against the city wall. During a siege, you don't want to make yourself vulnerable to things being dropped on you from above, like rocks or maybe some boiling oil. So if you're laying siege to a city, your encampment is probably at least a good half mile or so away. In the case of Kaffa, it's too far for the rat population of the army to travel and get into the city. De Musi continues his account, quote, The dying Tartars, stunned and stupefied by the immensity of the disaster brought about by the disease, lost interest in the siege but they ordered corpses to be placed in catapults and lobbed into the city in the hope that the intolerable stench would kill everyone inside. What seemed like mountains of dead were thrown into the city, and the Christians could not hide or flee or escape from them, although they dumped as many of the bodies as they could in the sea. And soon, the rotting corpses tainted the air and poisoned the water supply. Moreover, one infected man could carry the poison to others 
and infect people and places with the disease by look alone. End quote. Now, obviously, to a modern and scientifically trained mind, there's a bit of hyperbole happening here, but only in the statement that the disease could be passed quote by look alone. The claim about mountains of dead and thousands of corpses may actually be more or less correct, given what we can surmise about the size of Yanibeg's army and the mortality rates associated with plague. And the description of the transmission of the illness to people in the city may also be correct, even if there were no fleas on these corpses. And there likely were fleas on many of them, but even if there weren't any fleas. Most of the bodies probably had open wounds, either from warfare or from attempts to lance the buboes, expelling the foul humors, in an effort to effect a cure. Now, those in the city may also have had open wounds. Certainly, there are going to be some cuts and scrapes, especially if there's a need for a large contingent of people to drag catapulted corpses to the sea and try to dispose of them. This open wound contact may indeed have caused infection in Kaffa. As you might imagine, there were plenty of people who said that plague-infected corpses being used as weapons was simply the last straw, and the survivors started leaving the city by sea and returning to their hometowns. Demusi relates that when the sailors reached their respective hometowns, quote. It was as if they had brought evil spirits with them. Every city, every settlement, every place was poisoned by the contagious pestilence. And when one person had contracted the illness, he poisoned his whole family, even as he fell and died, so that those preparing to bury his body were seized by death in the same way. End quote. Demusi then returns to his vengeance of God theme. Quote, We Genoese and Venetians bear the responsibility for revealing the judgments of God, because we had been delayed by tragic events, and because among us were scarcely ten survivors from a thousand sailors. Relations, kinsmen, and neighbors flocked to us from all sides, but to our anguish, we were carrying the darts of death, while they hugged and kissed us. We were spreading poison from our lips, even as we spoke. End quote. Now, this passage has long interested scholars who've been intrigued by the fact that it sounds like Demusi himself was one of those refugees from Kaffa who fled at the end of the siege. And assuming this is the case, his account has even more significance than at first appreciated. However, most scholars today believe that Demusi was actually in Piacenza the whole time, and that here what he's doing is writing in something like a spirit of fellowship with his countrymen, and also as one overwhelmed by the enormity of this catastrophe. But at the same time, scholars are also very grateful for the level of detail Demusi offers. Even going so far as to identify by name the man who let patient zero into Piacenza. This man is Fulco della Croce, who took in an ill sailor friend of his who had just arrived from Kaffa. Now, 
Poor Fulco probably never imagined the place he would someday hold in the historical record as the guy who, by giving hospitality to a friend, doomed first himself, then his family, then all of Piacenza, and arguably the rest of Italy, to the ravages of the plague. Debussy goes on to give several poignant descriptions of what life has been like in the city up to the time of his account. He talks about mass graves dug in colonnades and piazzas because there's no more burial room in the graveyards left. He talks about sick people abandoned by terrified family members, priests who are afraid to administer last rites, healthy people recognizing that there's no defense and making plans for their own deaths. And he talks also about the renewed turn to faith and prayers offered to particular intercessory saints. Many of these saints had languished in obscurity for some time, but now, all of a sudden, they were very much back in vogue. In a later lecture, we'll talk more about what it took to become a plague saint. And yes, there are some unique qualifications needed, but for now, it's sufficient to know that things in Piacenza and most of the rest of Italy looked pretty grim. Without a doubt, the siege of Kaffa is a stunning story, and as Professor Wheelis says, quote, the most spectacular incident of biological warfare ever, end quote. But at the same time, it's unlikely that this event was the sole means by which plague made its way into Western Europe. Also, we have to remember that because there was no real understanding of germ transmission or the mechanism of infection, Yanni Beg was probably trying to inflict more psychological than physical harm on the people inside the walls of the besieged city of Kaffa. At best, Yanni Beg might have been hoping to sicken and demoralize the citizens by causing a miasma to infect the city. This word miasma was a medieval sort of catch-all term to explain modes of infection. And it was believed that foul smells, like those emitted by corpses, could cause illness among a population. Wheelis certainly thinks infection by catapult corpse was possible, and it was possible and likely, too, that at least some of the refugees from Kaffa brought the plague with them when they fled. However, Norwegian historian Ole Jürgen Benediktov, one of the foremost authorities on the Black Death, feels that this form of transmission is actually unlikely. He believes that eventually the rodent population of the Mongol army somehow made it into Kaffa along with their fleas, and that's what caused the outbreak. Still, all scholars agree that Kaffa was, at the very least, one of the first places that medieval Europeans had contact with what would become the Great Pestilence. In any event, it's also pretty clear that the Black Death was coming into the medieval world by a variety of routes. Certainly, given the multiple trade routes that radiated out from it overland and by sea, the Italian peninsula was ground zero for infection. But it's not the case that Italy would have avoided plague if Yanni Beg had opted to burn his dead rather than turn them into projectiles. There's no question, the plague was already raging in China, Russia, across the steppes of Asia Minor, and it was only a matter of when, not if, 
the Black Death would rear its head in the medieval European world. But Kava makes a great story, and de Musi's account is fascinating and moving. And you just can't talk about the Black Death without spending a little time with the Historia de Morbo and the events it describes. Okay, so here's what we know so far. In 1346, plague activity was happening to the northwest of the Caspian Sea and the northeast of the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov. It struck Kaffa, and then in 1347, the area around Constantinople was hit particularly hard. As Constantinople was a major center for trade throughout the west and the east, it's very likely that traders coming from this great city were unwittingly bringing plague with them, whichever direction they were heading. Sailors and merchants, primarily from the Italian peninsula, brought it into the European world. If you look at a map of the spread of the plague, you can see clearly how it struck port cities first, and then these sort of pockets of infection spread to the rest of the continent. So in 1347, the Black Death shows up on Crete, on Cyprus, in southern Greece, and in Alexandria in Egypt. A look at the map of Italy and modern-day Croatia reveals even more emphatically the multiple points of entry for plague into the medieval European world. Dubrovnik, Split, Venice, Sicily, Pisa, and Genoa all were infected in 1347, as were Marseille, Aix-en-Provence, and Avignon in France, also Majorca off the coast of Spain. In 1348, the plague then spread inland from these initial entry points, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now, when you look at the map of these trade routes, a logical question to ask is how an infected ship's crew could survive such a long journey from Kaffa all the way to Genoa without everybody succumbing to the plague and being unable to continue. Our best guess here is that the ships in question had a large and diverse group of people on board. Not just the oarsmen and sailors, but also military troops whose job it was to protect the precious goods being transported from piracy and theft. The numbers must have been high enough that the infection couldn't make its way through everyone all that quickly. And if we're talking the bubonic form of plague, there could be survivors. As you'll remember from an earlier lecture, the bubonic form seems to be the one form of plague from which someone might recover, with survival rates around 18 to 20 percent. Also, while the sea routes look really long, we have to remember the ratio for medieval travel. 1, 7, 23. What this means is that if it took you 23 days to get somewhere on foot, it would take you seven days to go the same distance on horseback and just one day to cover that same distance by sea. And the distance from Genoa to Kaffa is 2,160 nautical miles. If we assume a conservative speed of five knots, then it would take about 18 days to make the trip between the two. More time, obviously, if there was bad weather or if they were stopping in various ports to offload and take on more cargo. But if sailing conditions were good, it might be possible to do it even more quickly. And if we're assuming that the refugees from Kaffa were in a hurry to get home, then they probably could have made it much more quickly. 
The trip from plague-infested Constantinople would have taken even less time, under two weeks in good conditions. So the plague may not have had enough time to fully work its way through the crew of a ship, and some sailors, indeed, may have been just starting to show signs of illness when they made landfall, prompting them to seek out treatment and hospitality from the closest friend or acquaintance they could find, like the poor, hapless Fulco de la Croce. As the plague made its first significant European incursion into Italy, it's no surprise that it was Italian writers, like Gabriele de Musi, who were the first to chronicle its progression. A middle-class Florentine named Giovanni Villani discussed the Black Death's appearance in his history, which is called the Nuova Cronica. The difference between de Musi and Villani is that, while the former was inspired to take up his pen because of the Black Death, the latter was already writing a history when the Black Death began to sweep across the Italian peninsula, and he included this in his account of the progression of historical events. Villani was inspired to write a history of Florence on the occasion of the Jubilee in Rome in the year 1300, on which occasion Pope Boniface VIII issued a huge number of papal indulgences in honor of Christ's nativity. Villani relates that on this occasion, it occurred to him that Rome seemed to be in decline while the fortunes of Florence were rising. Remember, there's nothing at all like a unified Italy at this time. It's all individual, independent city-estates. And he thought that someone ought to write a history of Florence, since one didn't exist. And he thought that he should be the someone to do it. There are a lot of things that are fascinating and important about this work, not least of which is that Villani chose to write in the vernacular Florentine tongue, the language of Dante, and what would become the basis for modern, standard Italian. And he gave accounts of events that had affected Florence but that seemed to go far beyond his primary subject. For example, historians agree that Villani's description of the Battle of Crecy in the Hundred Years' War between France and England is one of the most accurate accounts of that conflict. What's really amazing about this work, however, is the level of detail and the amount of data Villani gave. When recording events of Florentine history, he always lists names of people, streets, piazzas, bridges, and buildings in great detail. He provides tons of statistical data that might not have otherwise been available to historians. That, for example, Florence had 80 banks, 146 bakeries, up to 10,000 children attending primary school in any given year. He tells his readers how many pieces of cloth were produced by the Arte della Lana, or wool makers, a trade in which he had a vested interest, as he was a member of the Wool Finishers Guild, a banker and a minor politician who stood to profit from the production of wool in Florence. And in case you're wondering, the production was around 75,000 pieces of cloth per year. As a statesman and diplomat, Villani traveled far beyond the walls of the city, at one point negotiating the importation of grain into Florence during a famine in 1329. He also was one of the supervisors of the construction of Andrea Pisano's bronze doors for the Florentine baptistry. These are the bronze relief quatrefoil frames that would be so spectacularly exceeded and replaced by Ghiberti's famous Gates of Paradise. And from the year 1300 on, Villani was discussing these and other events in his Nuova Cronica. 
in late 1347 and early 1348, he turned his attention to the Black Death, which had appeared in Italy's major port cities around September and October of 1347, and which was in full force by December. His chronicle ends with the following paragraph. Quote, Having grown in vigor in Turkey and Greece, and having spread thence over the whole Levant and Mesopotamia and Syria and Chaldea and Cyprus and Rhodes and all the islands of the Greek archipelago, the said pestilence leaped to Sicily, Sardinia and Corsica and Elba, and from there soon reached all the shores of the mainland, and many lands and cities were made desolate, and the plague lasted till... And there it stops. Seriously, Villani left a blank space, clearly planning to fill in the end date of the great mortality. But he himself died of plague in 1348, and so the chronicle remains incomplete. Villani's brother, Matteo, went on to add accounts of events to the chronica until he himself died in 1363, also from plague. After that, Villani's nephew, Filippo, briefly continued the work. In a later lecture, when we take an in-depth look at the case of Florence and the Black Death, we'll return to the Chronica and other sources that describe how life was changed in that city. But for now, it's sufficient to understand that at the end of 1347, people living on the Italian peninsula were starting to recognize that this pestilence was not going to burn itself out quickly, and it was not going to remain contained or limited to port cities. The example of the island of Sicily made this clear. The plague arrived there when Genoese sailors docked in the port city of Messina in October of 1347. By the end of the year, the whole island was ravaged when citizens of Messina fled into the Sicilian interior to escape the plague. All they did was bring it with them and spread it more quickly. The same thing happened in Pisa, which was the main port by which Tuscany accessed the Mediterranean and its trade routes. So we see that the first wave of the plague struck Italy particularly hard, but what seemed like the end of days was only the beginning of horrors that would last for at least a generation. In this very first wave, the French port of Marseille was also struck. It's important to recognize this in order to understand how the Black Death continued its march through the medieval world in 1347. Marseille was the gateway to France for the plague, and from there to England, where the great mortality struck with astonishing virulence. Since Marseille was an important trading hub in terms of both sea and land routes, the arrival of the Black Death there in 1347 gave the disease an advantageous position from which to advance across Western Europe. Had Marseille avoided such an early exposure to the plague, it's possible that the great mortality's advance might have been slowed somewhat as news from Italy might have reached the westernmost points of medieval Europe a little sooner and allowed some countermeasures to take effect. But because Marseille was affected around the same time as the port cities of Italy, the Black Death gained a foothold and was raging across the landscape before people really understood what was happening. In the next lecture, we'll talk more about this first incursion of plague and the responses of those who encountered it. Lecture 5. The First Wave Sweeps Across Europe In 1346, 
at the port city of Kaffa on the Black Sea, a Mongol army laid siege to the stronghold of Genoese merchants from the part of Europe that we today think of as Italy. When plague ravaged the attacking forces, their leaders came up with a novel way to both dispose of the corpses and make one last desperate salvo in their bid to take the city. They catapulted the corpses over the city walls. According to tradition and the contemporary chronicler Gabriele de Musi, it was Genoese and Venetians fleeing Caffa who brought the plague to the Italian peninsula and from there to all of Western Europe. While it is true that the siege of Caffa is memorable as one of the first and most incredible instances of biological warfare in history, it's most likely not the case that this was the single entry point by which the Black Death made its way into Western Europe. The great city of Constantinople, at the crossroads of East and West, was already suffering from a serious outbreak of plague that had most likely made it there from Hubei province in China, where most scholars think the 14th century outbreak of plague originated. From these and other major trade centers, the plague moved by water across the Mediterranean and by land along caravan routes. Refugees from Kaffa may indeed have brought the plague home with them, but they were not the only ones carrying the disease westward. By late 1347, the port cities of Genoa, Venice, Messina, Marseille, and others were hard hit by the Black Death. In a matter of months, the sickness had radiated out from those areas as the first wave of the Black Death was cresting in Western Europe. Two really instructive examples are the island of Sicily, off the coast of Italy, and the island of Majorca, off the coast of the Iberian Peninsula, or what we think of today as Spain. These two areas that were affected very early on offer a sort of microcosmic view as to how the plague would later move throughout the rest of the continent. If you look at a map of the Mediterranean, you can immediately see that the island of Sicily is perfectly positioned as a trading center through which goods and people might move north to the Italian peninsula, west toward France and Iberia, east toward Eastern Europe and Russia, and toward what we today call the Middle East, and south toward North Africa. And you can see that since Genoa is on the northwestern side of Italy, it made sense that Genoese sailors and merchants who were heading home from the east would stop off in Sicily to drop off goods and resupply before the final leg of their sea voyage home. And according to a Franciscan friar named Michele da Piazza, it was the arrival of the Genoese that brought the plague to Sicily and ravaged that island in the earliest days of the first wave. While Michele is given to some hyperbole and a desire to make biblical allusions, for example, he numbers the Genoese ships putting into the harbor at Messina on Sicily as 12, a mythical number that most scholars think is there just because of its symbolic power. Michele also gives us some details that indicate his account is mostly grounded in reality. For instance, he describes the telltale buboes that erupt on the bodies of those infected, but he also says that anyone who even spoke to one of these sailors couldn't help but be infected. 
If that's true, then it's possible there was something else happening here other than just bubonic plague. Once the people of Messina realized what was happening, they expelled the sailors and their ships, but it was obviously too late. As people started falling ill, there was a run on confession and will-writing, which the documentary evidence supports. In the space of a month, we go from a couple of wills being written to dozens. And Michele's account relates details that become all too familiar when you study the Black Death. Parents refusing to care for sick children, friends abandoning their neighbors so that the dead bodies just stayed in the houses, mass graves being dug, and even thieves being afraid to enter the homes of the wealthy dead where jewels and other property were plainly visible and free for the taking because the thieves were sure that to cross that threshold meant certain death. Two groups that did, by all accounts, do their best to offer comfort were the brothers in the Franciscan and Dominican orders. Now, a quick review may be in order here so that we can understand the significance of this. Throughout most of the Middle Ages, religious orders of monks were usually attached to one particular monastery, and orders like the Benedictines and the Cistercians had to swear, among other things, to stability of place, meaning they stayed in their monastery and labored there in terms of both actual physical labor and prayer, in order to help the rest of humanity. In the 13th century, however, Francis of Assisi in Italy and Dominic of Osma in Spain each founded new orders of monks, which became known as mendicant orders, meaning that they wandered, or more simply, that they were deeply engaged with the world and not sitting behind monastery walls. But that didn't mean that they were completely free of attachments or had no home base. Medieval society was really not comfortable with the idea of people simply wandering freely from place to place. You often needed to be able to prove that you had a right to be out and about and going where you said you were going. So early on in the development of the Franciscans and Dominicans, the church essentially stipulated that there needed to be some sort of mother house or a priory that served as a base from which mendicant friars issued out and to which they would presumably return. While the numbers of people residing in such a place at any one time would thus fluctuate much more than, say, at a more conventional monastery or abbey, the plague still hit these foundations in noticeable ways. As Michele da Piazza tells it, quote, the Franciscans and Dominicans and others who were willing to visit the sick to hear their confession and impose penance died in such large numbers that their priories were all but deserted, end quote. The Franciscans and Dominicans left the priory in order to bring comfort to the ill and dying, and then they themselves were struck down so that there was almost no one to come back. Now, even though the theory of germ transmission didn't exist yet, medieval people were just as intelligent as modern people, and once they saw what was happening, they logically figured that they should try and get away from Messina and the disease. So many of them left their homes and camped out in the vineyards around the city. And some crossed the island to the cities of Catania, Syracuse, and Calabria. But of course, 
What was happening by all accounts is that they were bringing the disease with them. As Michele tells us, quote, But what did this resort to flight avail them, given that the illness already carried within them was consuming their bodies? Of those who fled, some collapsed in the roadway, in fields, on the seashore, at sea, in the huts of Mascali, in woods, in ditches, and in all manner of unlikely places, end quote. As you might imagine, these events caused even more fleeing and moving to and fro across the island. Indeed, one Duke Giovanni was so terrified that he started living the life of someone out of a Robin Hood story or like a ranger from the Lord of the Rings, wandering through the woods and wild, uninhabited places, roaming here and there, never staying more than a couple nights in one place, seeking out abandoned churches or other structures to house him. But finally, the plague caught up to him at the Church of Sant'Andrea, where he died and was buried in April 1348. The Duke's death marks the end of the first wave in Sicily. It had arrived in September 1347, burned its way across the island, and then finally started to peter out in April of the next year. Along the way, it took out religious leaders, government officials, and easily up to half of the general population. But the most important thing to note here is that it did not stay contained on Sicily. Historians estimate that at the very end of 1347 or early in 1348, the plague crossed the Strait of Messina and entered the Italian peninsula via Reggio Calabria. This would be one of the four major bridgeheads from which the plague would gain entrance into Italy, the other three being the port cities of Genoa, Pisa, and Venice. From these main contact points, the plague would radiate inward, and what happened on Sicily would repeat itself in what we think of today as Italy proper. And once again, the first-person accounts are full of horrors that it is hard for people living in the modern Western world to comprehend. For example, there's this heartbreaking account from Siena, Italy. Quote, And I, Agnolo di Tura, called the fat, buried my five children with my own hands. And there were also those who were so sparsely covered with earth that the dogs dragged them forth and devoured many bodies throughout the city. Every time I read that passage, it sends a chill through my body. So while many people imagine that the plague started in the east in China and then worked its way slowly west over land, that's only partially true. Part of what made the plague so devastating is that when it moved over water, it was hopscotching far ahead of the overland progression of the Black Death. And what this meant is that there were multiple bridgeheads or entrance points which allowed the plague access to a particular region and which made it almost impossible to escape its ravages. So as we've already discussed, it was the port cities in Italy, particularly Messina, Genoa, Venice, and Pisa, that were the initial sources of infection. But we need to remember that we're not only talking about Italy as we know it today, but also what we currently think of as Croatia, as many islands of the Dalmatian coast, along with the cities of Dubrovnik and Split, which were then called Ragusa and Spalato, 
were actually the property of the city-state of Venice. And the plague very early on moved into the port city of Marseille, which gave it away into France. From Sicily, the plague didn't just cross the Strait of Messina to the mainland. It also infected Corsica, Elba, and Sardinia. And then there's the case of Majorca, which is very similar to that of Sicily. Majorca, as most of you know, is an island in the Mediterranean off the east coast of what we think of today as Spain. But for the sake of convenience, when we talk about the medieval period, we'll call it the Iberian Peninsula, as it had long been a very diverse region, home to Muslim communities, Christian kingdoms, and long-standing Jewish settlements. So it was sort of carved up, like Italy, into a variety of self-governing entities that consider themselves vastly different from this community or that one just a few miles away. Majorca, like Sicily, was an important trading hub due to its position in the Mediterranean, and it had a thriving population of around 55,000 people. Our best guess is that the plague made it there in December of 1347, probably coming from Marseille, but its initial progress may have been slowed by cooler weather, a pattern we see repeatedly in accounts of the Black Death. But by March 1348, it was confirmed that the great mortality was ravaging the countryside of Majorca. And let's all pause for a moment to remember Guillaume Brassa of the fishing village of Ai, who was the first recorded victim of the Black Death in Spain. The plague raged on Majorca until about May 1348, when it began to die down a bit. As was the case with Sicily and the Italian peninsula, this also marked the moment when the disease leapt across the water barrier and made its way onto the mainland of the Iberian peninsula. Again, it was trading ships that seemed to have carried the disease with them, bringing the great mortality to the mainland via Perpignan in what is today part of France. And then the Black Death attacked Barcelona. Now, let me back up for a moment here and reiterate that not only can we determine the extent of the plague's progress and its virulence by examining documents like chronicles, which record the incidences of infection, but we can also look at the number of religious and political offices that suddenly became vacant. Let's take the example of benefices. Now, a benefice is sort of like an appointed religious office. The church was the biggest landholder in the medieval world, and what it would do is grant benefices, and usually this meant control of property or land, to individuals who would then carry out the work of the church and be supported by the income from these lands and properties. It was a variation on the secular feudal system in which a lord granted lands, titles, and protection in exchange for a vassal's loyalty and commitment to fight in support of his lord's interests. So in this religious world, whenever the holder of a benefice passed away, the church would grant the benefice to a member of the religious community who was both deserving of some kind of recognition or reward and or was believed to be someone who would work toward the salvation of the congregation or community attached to the benefice. So in Barcelona, in April of 1348, there was one vacant benefice. In May, there were nine vacant benefices. A big jump, 
but one that could have been attributable to a demographic blip that wasn't outside the realm of possibility. But in June 1348, there were 25 vacancies. And then in July, the full scale of the disaster is brought home by the fact that there were 104 vacant benefices. Not only were those who held the benefices obviously dying of plague, but so were those who would have been logical replacements. Like statistics surrounding the occupation of benefices, tracking the number of wills that were being written also helps us understand the scale and virulence of the plague. In Valencia, for example, we find about two wills per year that have been preserved for the period spanning 1340 to 1347. What this means is that there weren't that many people worried about imminent death, nor were there all that many people with sufficient property that needed to have a will actually drawn up. But in May 1348, we have surviving two wills for just that month. And then in June, that number jumps up to 21 wills, more than in the previous eight years combined. People's reactions, as you might imagine, were mostly informed by panic and in many instances, a turn to religiosity. We'll talk much more about the church and the Black Death in a later lecture, but it's clear that one way that the plague managed to move across the Iberian Peninsula so quickly was due to people flocking to holy sites on pilgrimage to ask God for forgiveness for whatever it was they had done to incur his wrath in this way and to pray for deliverance. Thus, the holy city of Santiago de Compostela in the far west of the Iberian Peninsula was subject to infection remarkably quickly after Barcelona and cities in that area had experienced an outbreak. If you trace the plague on a map, it looks as if it does a hopscotch move over most of the peninsula to suddenly show up in this holy pilgrimage site. By the end of 1348, the plague had made its presence felt in about 35% of the peninsula. Worse things were still to come, and in 1349, those communities that had avoided infection so far became subject to the ravages of the great mortality. The story is much the same in France. After an initial infection occurring in the port city of Marseille in 1347, the plague began to move inland, with particularly devastating effects in Avignon. Now, this is significant because Avignon was at this time the seat of the papacy of the church. Many of you will recall that while Rome had long been the seat of the Christian church in the West and Constantinople had been the seat of the patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church, in 1309, the headquarters of the Western Church left the Italian peninsula and moved to France, to the town of Avignon. This was because the Pope elected in 1305, Clement V, was in fact a Frenchman, and he felt more secure in his native France than he did in Rome. The next seven popes would remain in Avignon for a period of around 68 years, a time that is sometimes called the Babylonian captivity of the papacy by religious scholars. Indeed, one of the first religious figures to popularize this phrase and concept was none other than the great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther. The fact that the papal court had relocated to Avignon is why, when Italy was being devastated by plague in 1348 and 1349, 
Rome got by relatively unscathed compared to other city-states like Florence or Siena or Venice or Pisa or Genoa. With the papacy gone, Rome had sort of regressed into being a more rural, less cosmopolitan community than it had been when the popes were in residence. There was less commerce in and out of the city, and thus fewer streams of potential infection. But when I say relatively, I do mean relatively. By modern standards, Rome in 1348 was a charnel house. By 1348 standards, Rome was an oasis in a desert of illness and death. This was not the case in Avignon, as an account written by an anonymous Flemish cleric attests. He states that during the worst of the outbreak in 1348, quote, at least half the people in Avignon died, for there are now within the walls of the city more than 7,000 houses where no one lives because everyone in them has died. Therefore, the Pope bought a field near Notre-Dame des Miracles and had it consecrated as a cemetery. By 14 March, 11,000 bodies had been buried there, and in Marseille, all the gates of the city, save for two posterns, were closed, for there four out of five people died. They say that in the three months from 25 January to the present day, a total of 62,000 bodies were buried in Avignon, end quote. What's most horrifying to me about this account is that it is actually a letter. It's not a chronicle or a history, and the author says he is writing to his dearly beloved, maybe his family, to warn them to take precautions, try to live a life of moderation, and to be aware that the plague is on its way north. Another chronicle account, written about the plague in France after the first wave had passed through and burned itself out, contains a fascinating paragraph that actually inspired my current research project on twins and higher-order multiples in medieval literature and history. In the Chronicle of Guillaume de Nangis, written in Latin, in a section composed circa 1359 by a later chronicler, Juan Jean de Venette, we get the following fantastical comment about the events of the plague years. Quote, When the epidemic was over, Everywhere women conceived more readily than usual. None proved barren. On the contrary, there were pregnant women wherever you looked. Several gave birth to twins and some to living triplets. But what is particularly surprising is that when the children born after the plague started cutting their teeth, they commonly turned out to have only 20 or 22 instead of the usual 32 before the plague. End quote. Now, when I first read this, I remember almost dropping the text in surprise, and I wondered, is there any way this could be true? Not the teeth part, but that maybe in response to this demographic crisis, there was some weird spike in fertility? As far as my research tells me right now, this is in fact the opposite of what happened. Indeed, scholars such as David Herlihy have pointed out that the real crisis was that in the aftermath of the plague, Fertility did not pick up, and the population of Western Europe didn't even begin to reach pre-plague levels until the 17th century. Indeed, while the first outbreak of plague seemed not to discriminate based on age and gender, later waves seem to have been more selective. One is described as picking off the elderly and infants. That's not a big surprise. 
But then there was one outbreak that multiple sources describe as leaving the elderly and the very young alone, and instead killing the healthiest people who were in the prime of life, around their 20s or so. And of course, these are exactly the people who would be reproducing. So in terms of demographics, population took a double hit. In later lectures, we'll talk more about these subsequent outbreaks, and we'll spend some time specifically on Avignon and that city's unique plague experience. But at this point, we have a pretty good general picture of how the Black Death began its onslaught on Western Europe in late 1347, and how the areas that we today think of as Italy, Spain, and France experienced tremendous horrors, going in the blink of an eye from normal life to what must have seemed the medieval equivalent of a post-apocalyptic zombie attack. So let's take a step back and look at the progress of the first wave of the Black Death so far. While many people tend to imagine it as a line advancing from east to west across the European mainland, as we've now seen, that's really not quite right. Yes, the plague was moving along overland trade routes, but it was doing that much more slowly than it was moving along sea routes. So what we know is that in 1346, the plague shows up in the area on the northeast coast of the Black Sea, and then in early 1347, radiates north, south, and southwest. Its most important point of infection at this time being the area around Constantinople, which was a center of trade, commerce, politics, and religion. In other words, if the Black Death were sentient, it could not have strategized better as to where it wanted to be when it kicked things into high gear. As far as infection of Europe in late 1347 goes, there are key hotspots, which are all entry points or bridgeheads that allowed for the plague to start ravaging the mainland. I tend to be a very visual person and to have a rather quirky imagination. And the part of the Odyssey where Odysseus has to navigate between Scylla and Charybdis made an impression on me at a very young age. So the way I always think of this part of the infection progression is that there's this Black Death octopus-like sea monster in the Mediterranean Sea, and it's lolling around upside down with its head resting just above the North African coast. And in 1347, it reaches out with its tentacles in a kind of generally northerly direction to touch and infect Greece, the islands of Crete, and Cyprus, Dubrovnik, Split, Venice, Sicily, Sardinia, and the islands around it, then Pisa, Genoa, Marseille, and Majorca. And also one of its tentacles reaches kind of lazily over to the southeast and hits Alexandria in Egypt. So even though we often talk about the various waves of plague, it's important to keep in mind that in the initial phase in 1347, it's more like pinpricks on the geography of Europe, making multiple little entry points by which the plague will get a foothold, start to progress inward in multiple directions, and then those waves of infection really are waves, and they crash into each other, creating massive devastation. As we'll see in a later lecture, however, there were a few exceptions to that movement. Cities like Milan and Liège and Nuremberg that managed to remain plague-free islands in a sea of disease and suffering for quite some time. But again, those are exceptions. 
for most of the medieval European world, the Black Death was inexorable, inescapable, and impossible to defend against. The horror of the plague is so awful and so hard to wrap one's mind around that when I teach this material to my classes, I have to try and draw a connection to modern post-apocalyptic literature and TV shows like The Walking Dead that depict a world in which no one really understands what's causing this horror. And it may be the case that a friend or family member might become infected and need to be abandoned or executed. Those who have survived have to figure out what rules of civilization still apply and whether it's time to throw out the humanity playbook and just start from scratch as a means to ensure the survival of the human race. When is it a good strategy to continue to adhere to values of cooperation and assistance and empathy? And when is it a good idea to just throw up your hands and announce every man for himself? How long should you continue fighting to protect those still alive and plan for a future that may never come? And when should you just decide that the end is coming, so you're just going to go out with a hedonistic bang? Over the course of these lectures, we'll step back from the big picture from time to time and zero in on some case studies of particular communities and explore how they dealt with those questions I've just been asking. In the next lecture, we'll turn to our first of these case studies, the city of Florence in Italy. Lecture 6, The Black Death in Florence. In late 1347, an epidemic unlike any the medieval world had ever seen made its first inroads onto the European continent. It did this via commercial and trading centers in port cities on the Italian peninsula, the Iberian peninsula, and on the Mediterranean coast of France. At the same time, the Black Death was also moving westward overland along trade routes, albeit a bit more slowly. With mortality rates of up to 80% in many cases and no effective treatments or cures, as antibiotics were centuries away and the theory of germ transmission didn't yet exist, many who lived and died during the onslaught of the great mortality thought that the end of days had arrived. Now we have by this point a general sense of the devastation the plague wrought in its first wave on the mainland of Europe. But in this lecture, instead of broad and general descriptions, we're going to focus on one particular city to try and better understand the social, psychological, political, and economic impacts the Black Death could wreak on various communities. And we're going to focus on Florence, Italy, and how that society was devastated by the plague, and the interesting and varied responses that its citizens had to this onslaught. Florence is a logical place to choose as our first case study for a variety of reasons. Of all the city-states in Italy, Florence was arguably the crown jewel. Remember, while it might seem logical that Rome would be the place of greatest development and sophistication, with the relocation of the papacy to Avignon in France in the early 1300s, Rome had lost some of its luster and power. And indeed, 
from the 11th century on, the leaders of Florence had worked hard to be independent of Rome, and for that matter, to be independent of pretty much everyone else. While it's well known that Italy at this time was a collection of city-states and territories governed by various disparate entities, Florence was almost of a whole different order. One might say that it was its own nation. By the 14th century, Florence minted its own coins. It was very wealthy, and it had its own independent governing structure. So that, say, if a Frenchman or an Englishman in politics at this time would have diplomatic relations with Florence, they would have those completely separate from any sort of relationship with Rome or Venice or any other place in Italy. Florence's two major industries were banking and the wool trade, but there were many others, and for each of these, there was a very powerful guild system in place. Now, if you're not familiar with a guild system, the simplest way to think of it would be a sort of a cross between a labor union and a college fraternity. The guild leaders were some of the most important citizens in the community, and they had a say in matters pertaining to wages, laws, religion, charitable activities, pretty much everything. And it's appropriate, too, that we focus on Florence here because it and the lands surrounding the city proper that belonged to it, the Contado, were the most densely populated areas of Europe at the time that the plague broke out. Most estimates give the population of the city at around 100,000 people, with the Contado comprising an additional 300,000 people. These are population levels that hadn't been seen in Europe since the days of the Roman Empire. After Rome fell in the 5th century, most of the former empire had de-urbanized and had become more rural and agrarian again. By the 14th century, it seemed that finally the glories of the empire might be beginning to be recalled and restored, and it seemed fitting that it would be on the Italian peninsula that this should take place. And it's fitting that we focus on Florence because in all of the medieval European world, it was the most advanced community. Indeed, while the early modern period, or the Renaissance, seems to start in the 16th century in most of Europe, it got a head start on the Italian peninsula and was in full bloom by the mid-14th century. Literary giants like Boccaccio, Dante, and Petrarch, political and economic movers like the Medici family, artists like Giotto, Brunelleschi, Ghiberti, Donatello, these were all emerging out of 14th century Florence. I've asked it before and I will ask it again. What on earth was in the water in Florence in the 14th century and can I have some? I like to imagine that if the Middle Ages were one of those video games like SimCity or Civilization or any one of those other civilization building games, you would win the game if you reached a point where your civilization was the kind of place in which someone could have a career as a poet. Not as a lawyer who also wrote poetry, or a church official who composed some lovely hymns in his free time, but rather you could be a poet and make a living. Another benchmark do the political officials of this community think it's important and worthwhile to sponsor works of art to beautify their city? In medieval Florence, they did. 
the commission to design the famous baptistry doors of the Duomo was given to Ghiberti after the city fathers held a competition to select the best artist for the job. The building known as the Or San Michele, originally a grain market, became a chapel specifically for the leaders of the guilds of the city. And so important was art and aesthetics to the city fathers of Florence that they ordered each guild to commission and pay for a statue of the patron saint of their particular guild. And these would be placed in one of the niches all around the exterior of the building. And this fact demonstrates another important aspect of Florentine life, which is that this was a deeply religious Christian community and religious belief pervaded every aspect of life in Florence. This is an especially important consideration when we remember that when the plague struck, most religious people believed that this was God's punishment for sinful behavior. Now, I could go on and on here, but the point is, Florence was truly unique in the way that politics, the arts, faith, economic prosperity, and an urban environment all came together. So it's fascinating to examine how this most sophisticated, wealthy, and densely populated part of Europe coped with the devastation of the Black Death. As you may recall from an earlier lecture, the route the plague took to reach Florence seems most likely to have been through Pisa, with which Florence had a very robust trading relationship. The plague probably showed up in Pisa in late 1347 and then made its way to Florence in early 1348. City records show that by April, there were 60 to 80 deaths due to plague occurring each day. On April 3, 1348, the city leaders took reasonable precautions to slow the spread of illness. They ordered that the clothes of all sick people and those who had died be destroyed rather than sold or passed on to family members or friends, as had usually been the case. This may seem like common sense to us today, but at a time when everything was made by hand, shirts and boots and cloaks, especially those made out of luxury fabrics, were too valuable to simply be disposed of. The city fathers also ordered all prostitutes out of the city. This may have been more because of concern about moral failings and maybe a sign that some at the top were worried that sinful behavior had made God angry, so they were going to get the sin out of the city to maybe appease God's wrath. But at the same time, it's pretty clear that there was some understanding that prostitution could quite easily contribute to the spread of disease. And in a move that demonstrates that they were aware of the first entry points of the plague into Italy, the city leaders also forbade anyone from Pisa or Genoa to enter Florence. And if anyone was found in violation of this rule, a huge fine would be levied. As you might guess, however, this was not enough to slow down the plague. The number of deaths continued to rise, so in a move that is a further demonstration of just how advanced Florence's political infrastructure was, on April 11th, an emergency eight-person committee was established, kind of a medieval or early modern board of health, and they were charged with making sure these rules were enforced and also that burials were carried out properly and promptly. But in mid-June, the death toll rose to 100 people per day, and by July and August, 
Our best estimates are that there were 400 deaths per day from the plague. For all of 1348, it appears that the death rate was at least 20 times what would be considered normal. And scholars agree that by 1352, so within just four years, the population of Florence proper had dropped to less than half of what it had been at the start of 1348. Something like 60,000 people living in the city had died. As you may already know, those who did not die fled to the countryside in large numbers, which led to even further depopulation of the city. You'll recall in the first lecture in this series, I mentioned the introduction to Boccaccio's Decameron, a great work of literature whose existence may be a very slim silver lining amidst the horrible dark clouds of plague. The premise of this text is that ten young nobles have fled the city of Florence and headed out to the country to the estate of one of the young people. There, they intend to ride out the wave of death sweeping over their city, and to entertain themselves, they each take turns telling a story to pass the time. It's a premise Boccaccio borrowed from The Thousand and One Nights, and one that Geoffrey Chaucer would later borrow from Boccaccio. And it's a clever move that allows an author to gather stories from very different genres and combine them all together in one text. In any event, in his introduction, Boccaccio relates how the horrors of the plague had turned people into terrified, panic-stricken near animals. Neighbors refusing to give assistance to those who had once been their dear friends, and even worse, and almost incredible, in Boccaccio's words, was the fact that fathers and mothers refused to nurse and assist their own children as though they did not belong to them. He goes on at some length concerning how those at the lowest orders of society found themselves in demand, and in particular, a fraternity of grave diggers unexpectedly found themselves in a position to command respect and large wages. The details of Boccaccio's account would seem to be the stuff of horror fiction, if we weren't actually pretty sure that it must have happened like this. Quote, Many dropped dead in the open streets, both by day and by night, and many others, though dying in their own houses, drew their neighbors' attention to the fact more by the smell of their rotting corpses than by any other means. End quote. There were so many bodies all at once and not enough consecrated ground, nor enough laborers to dig the individual graves, that eventually there was no choice but to resort to mass graves. Indeed, in a comment that is both completely apt and totally horrifying, a Florentine chronicler named Marchione di Copo Stefani described the way that bodies were laid in mass graves, with a layer of dirt and then another layer of bodies, and then more dirt, as being similar to, quote, how one layers lasagna with cheese. The problem was compounded when those who were still alive fled to the countryside, as did the fictional nobles in Boccaccio's Decameron. Some of these people were already infected and brought the disease with them into the Contado, the lands around Florence proper that supplied the city with produce and meat. In many places, there was no one to tend to the animals, no one to bring in the harvest, so the crops rotted in the fields and livestock wandered around. And then there was the problem of how do you run what is essentially a small nation when more than half of its leaders are dead 
or have run away. As Boccaccio points out, quote, in the face of so much affliction and misery, all respect for the laws of God and man had virtually broken down and been extinguished in our city. For like everybody else, those ministers and executors of the laws who were not either dead or ill were left with so few subordinates that they were unable to discharge any of their duties. Here, everyone was free to behave as he pleased, end quote. So we have a situation in which the city of Florence was structured rather like a pyramid, with a small group of elites at the top overseeing the merchants and guildsmen, and below them was the base of the pyramid, those who worked primarily in agriculture. If each group sustains the same percentage of losses, and they pretty much did because the Black Death did not discriminate, then you can see how this might quickly become a problem. If we imagine a representative sample that has 10 people at the top, 100 in the middle, and 1,000 at the bottom, and each group loses 50%, well, you can see that the top tier is going to be less likely to adapt or to recover from its losses than the bottom simply because of sheer numbers. The top is also under considerable pressure because the goods and services from the lower tiers of society on which they've relied for so long have now suddenly increased in price dramatically. It's estimated that by the mid-1350s, the wages of skilled laborers had risen 200%. Unskilled laborers also benefited, but not quite as much. It's estimated they could command around three times what they had earned in the pre-plague days. The only people who were not better off of those who survived were a large portion of the nobility, especially those who had remained within the city itself. If we add just one more variable, which was that the nobles were more likely to have country estates to flee to and the wealth and means to do that, then your losses at the top of the social order might be more like 60 to 70% in terms of people still in place and doing their jobs. So this crisis of disease also pretty quickly becomes a crisis of politics and social order because so few people had to cope with a disaster that affected so many. What's so interesting and significant about Florence is that given all that happened in the first wave of plague, you might expect complete disorder and chaos and for the Florentine city-state to disintegrate into anarchy. But that's not what happened, although there were some moments when it looked like it might. Once the initial crisis was over, we see the city leaders attempting to reassert control and to try and get back to a state of normalcy as quickly as possible. One way they did this was to pass a law dictating that those city leaders who chose to remain outside of Florence and not do their duties would be subject to a very large fine. Those who remained behind were rightly concerned that the pyramid ruling structure might be turned upside down and the commoners might attempt to take power. They were right to be concerned because this is pretty much exactly what happened in 1378 after there had been two additional waves of plague in an event that is known as the Chompy Revolt. In a nutshell, this was an outbreak of violence instigated by a group of Florentine laborers who were not represented by any of the existing guilds. No guild representation, no say in government. 
The largest group among the Chompi, and the group from which it takes its name, were those who labored at the task of carding wool. Now, as you'll remember, the wool trade was one of the areas in which Florence had made its fortune. The carders were an essential part of this economy, and those who were at the top also thought it essential that they be contained in the lower orders of society and at low wages. Since they had no guild to represent them, they couldn't make a case for higher wages or better treatment. Starting in May of 1378, it started to become clear that something needed to be done to appease the chompi and those that had allied themselves with them. So, some reforms were enacted, but these were more window dressing than anything else—a sop thrown to the chompi in the hope that they would go away. They did not. They got angry, and in mid-July, in a wave of violence that swept through the city, the chompi took control. In August, the ruling elites, the signoria, managed to claw back some of their power. But from 1378, when the revolt broke out, to 1382, the Florentine government was essentially run by the chompi. In 1382, political pressures from outside the city, plus worsening relations between the factions of the wool dyers and wool merchants, meant that the chompi government was on the verge of collapsing. This situation made it possible for a group of people from some of the elite families in Florence to intervene and establish a new government. The revolt was put down, and a semblance of the old order was restored. But we see here one of the most important effects of the Black Death on the population of Florence. This narrative of underrepresented workers taking advantage of the massive depopulation. Caused by the Black Death to agitate for more power for themselves, would be repeated over and over again throughout the medieval world. For example, as we'll see in more detail in a later lecture, the Peasants' Revolt of 1381 in England was the result of similar pressures. But the important thing here is that the city fathers of Florence recognized the nature of this problem and took steps to try and deal with it, even if those steps. Were only partially successful in accomplishing their goal. Another aspect of this demographic devastation was that those groups who were in need of charitable assistance suddenly and dramatically changed. We all know that the medieval world was a place of high mortality rates, although that standard line that average life expectancy during the Middle Ages was around 37 years old or so. That's skewed by high infant mortality. It is simply not the case that healthy 38-year-olds in the 14th century might suddenly keel over and die. Well, unless they had contracted plague. But if you had managed to survive infancy and then the usual childhood diseases, so let's say you make it past the age of five, then you had every chance of living a long life, maybe well into your 60s and 70s. This presumes, of course, that war, famine, or plague. Didn't come knocking on your door. So for a long time, it had been the case that the highest mortality rates were among women and children, due to the perils of childbirth and infancy. But because plague did not discriminate, the heads of households, who had long been exempt from these particular mortal dangers, started succumbing to them. This means you suddenly have many more widows and orphans than you ever did before.
And given that we're in a patriarchal society, there's now a huge need for charitable giving directed at women and children who have no way of making a living because it has always been presumed that there will be husbands and fathers, brothers and uncles and grandfathers to provide for them. What is impressive here is how quickly the various governing bodies moved to provide for this newly needy population. By 1348, the Orsa Michele Fraternity, remember that beautifully decorated structure I mentioned a few moments ago that served as both religious and civic meeting place? Well, right during the first wave, this guild of guilds took steps to direct money from their very robust holdings of wealth to help needy widows and orphans. By 1350, other guilds were doing the same thing. Now, one reason that they were all able to do this was that the Black Death had, in yet another silver lining, made them even richer than they had been in pre-plague days. This was because wealthy individuals started making out wills in greater numbers, and given the rapid deaths of various other family members, including children who would normally have stood to inherit, in many instances, a whole lot of wealth and property was consolidated into the possession of a single individual. And then that individual specified that their guild or parish was to inherit their wealth because there was no one else to whom the estate could be left. So, suddenly flush with wealth, these civic and religious organizations started making larger and larger charitable gifts to those in need. At the same time that the Florentine leaders recognized that a new group of people needed assistance, they also recognized that what Florence was going to need more than anything was to have its population rebound. With that in mind, they adopted a formal policy of natalism. This means they were actively promoting marriage and childbirth. The main way to do this in Florence in the 14th century was to make sure that all marriageable women had dowries that would make them attractive to potential husbands. A dowry was property and or money that a woman brought with her when she married into a family. Especially among the upper classes, marriages often depended upon dowry negotiations between the families. No dowry, no marriage. And in post-plague Florence, no marriage meant no babies. And Florence needed babies. It's estimated that in the years immediately after the most virulent wave of the plague swept through the city, 20% of marriages were made possible by dowry grants that were given as charity by the confraternity of Orsan Michele. So given the issues and variables and the unexpected external impact of the plague, Florence was responding as best as one might expect under the circumstances. While social and family ties did temporarily break down during the worst of the epidemic, here's where you get the stories of the mass graves and people abandoning the city and their own family members. Well, once the worst was over, in about 1352, the social practices and customs that had been in place before more or less became the norm again. 
What's impressive is that quite soon after the first terrible outbreak of plague, the leaders of Florence were working hard to restore the city to its former grand state. They gave incentives to craftsmen and artisans who were willing to move into the city from elsewhere, so that production and services that had been disrupted by the plague could be restored. It's a problem if all your cobblers and butchers have died in the plague, because the people left behind still need shoes and meat. Those people still alive were able to buy up farmland in the contado for bargain prices. And they then made deals with those rural populations still alive, for a profitable sharecropping arrangement called mezzadria that would benefit both parties. The agricultural laborers were now living a much better, comfortable existence than they had before, because demand for bodies to work the land was high, and those urban citizens who had survived were prospering because there was more land to go around. In what is a truly stunning act of optimism, the city leaders also announced the refounding of the Studio Fiorentino, a university, in an attempt to repopulate the ranks of the city's educated elites. Guilds, monasteries, and other organizations made membership easier for those who were interested, trying to entice craftsmen, merchants, and other people with specialized skills to relocate to Florence. But despite the best efforts of the civic and religious leaders of Florence, population levels just couldn't rebound. This was mostly due to the fact that in the second half of the 14th century, plague would return to Florence on 14 separate occasions. None of these outbreaks was as serious as the one that devastated the city-state in 1348, but these recurrences made it impossible for population levels to recover significantly. In 1427, it's estimated that the population of Florence was only 37 percent of what it had been in 1347, and a true demographic recovery didn't happen until quite late in the 15th century. But because of all the changes civic leaders of Florence had implemented in the face of the onslaught of the Great Mortality, by the end of the 15th century, the city-state was in excellent shape once again. There was now a permanent five-person committee acting as a board of health. There were strict quarantine rules for travelers in and out of the city, and several new hospitals were constructed. One of which was specifically designated as an isolation hospital for those suspected of having contracted the Black Death. While the four years between 1348 and 1352 were indeed grim, especially within the city proper. It's remarkable how quickly Florence managed to recover and maintain its status and identity. And in that respect, the example of Florence during the Black Death is more than anything encouraging and inspirational. After all these horrors, people tried to get back to the business of living normal lives, and they largely succeeded. The story of Florence is one of terrible suffering and loss. Yes. But it's also a story of resilience and strength. We'll see this same story played out with some fascinating variations on this theme, as we continue to track the progress of the Black Death across Europe. And after Italy, the next hardest-hit area of the medieval world 
was the region that we today call France. What happened there is the subject of our next lecture. Lecture 7. The Black Death in France. By the end of 1348, pretty much all of Italy and huge portions of what is today France, Spain, and Germany were suffering the effects of a pandemic the likes of which no one had ever seen. The Black Death had even crossed the English Channel and was starting its reign of terror in Britain. In this lecture, we're going to continue to track the Black Death's progress on the European continent from the end of 1348 to the beginning of 1350. And we'll explore how several different communities dealt with the great mortality in different ways. The bulk of our attention in this lecture will be spent on the part of Europe that we think of today as France. But, as was the case with Italy in our last lecture, a unified French identity didn't exist in the 14th century. There were an array of powerful dukes whose power and wealth rivaled that of the actual French king, and many of them considered themselves and their realms barely part of France, if at all. The region of Burgundy is a prime example of this. And then there's also the fact that the cultures of the north and the south of France were dramatically different. I'm totally oversimplifying here, but to shorthand it, the south was more liberal, more cosmopolitan, and more diverse. The north, which obviously includes Paris, was marked by a more restrictive religious sensibility. If the South was the land of troubadours and courtly love, then the North was dominated by the religious and educational concerns of those attached to the government and the University of Paris. Now again, I'm oversimplifying here, but by way of illustration, we can refer to the famous and infamous relationship between Eleanor of Aquitaine and King Louis VII of France. Eleanor was heiress to the vast southern duchy of Aquitaine, and when she was married to Louis in 1137, her lands pretty much doubled the size of France overnight. But she was a southern girl, used to more freedom, equality, and liberty than was deemed proper in the north, and the marriage didn't work out. Eleanor had two daughters, so she was fertile, and we can assume that a son was certainly a possibility sometime in the future. But still, the breakdown of the marriage came, and it really came when Eleanor accompanied Louis to Jerusalem on crusade. And it became clear on this trip that while he was deeply pious and religious, she was not. She was super happy to see her uncle Raymond, who was in Antioch, and it reminded her of her happy youth. And there was a lot of fighting between her, her husband, and his counselors who hadn't liked her to begin with. Long story short, the marriage was annulled in 1152. In about a heartbeat after the annulment was confirmed, Eleanor was married to Prince Henry of England, who became Henry II, and thus her lands went from France to England. And that's the other thing we have to remember. Although English holdings on the continent had diminished by 1348, Part of what we think of today as France was, in fact, England in the middle of the 14th century. 
And complicating the matter of the Black Death's presence on the continent is the fact that the French, starting in 1337, were already dealing with another kind of attack, what has come to be called the Hundred Years' War, when King Edward III of England began to aggressively try and recover many of the territories on the continent that England had lost to France. So here's the basic picture to keep in mind as a backdrop. France at this time is, in theory, the greatest power on the continent, but it is politically and administratively fragmented with all these dukes holding power to rival the king. It's also divided in terms of cultural sensibility into North and South. And of course, part of it is actually English. Now, add one more twist. Starting in 1309, the seat of the papacy moved from Rome to the southern French town of Avignon. Given all these factors, what's going to play out in France when the Black Death arrives is pretty much every different kind of scenario you might imagine in response to the plague. It's kind of a microcosm of all the possible plague effects and responses, which is why we're spending an entire lecture on it. So as we already know, the plague made its way to Marseille quite early. As we've seen repeatedly, it was the port cities that were centers of trade that were hit earliest and hardest. And so it was with Marseille. At the very end of 1347, According to contemporary accounts, a ship from Genoa appeared at the harbor entrance. Since there were no fax machines or telephones or internet in the Middle Ages, the message had not made it to Marseille that Genoese galleys were starting to be recognized as carriers of the disease from the east, and many ports were forbidding them the right to dock. Indeed, contemporary accounts state that this particular infected ship had been turned away port after port, but somehow, while other medieval port authorities had heard this rumor about this ship, it hadn't yet made it to Marseille. Or perhaps whoever was on duty just didn't fully believe it. So the ship docked. Louis Eiligen, who was attached to the papal court at Avignon, and about whom we'll talk much more in the next lecture, recorded the event in a letter. Quote, Three galleys loaded with spices and other goods put into the port of Genoa after being storm-driven from the east. They were horribly infected. And when the Genoese realized this and that other men were dying suddenly without remedy, the ships were driven from the port with burning arrows and other engines of war. And thus, driven from port to port, one of the galleys at last put in at Marseille. And at its arrival, the same thing happened. Men were infected without realizing it and died suddenly, and the inhabitants thereupon drove the galley away. End quote. The plague burned through the city with horrible ferocity, but what's fascinating is how the response of the populace here differed so markedly from what we saw in our case study of Florence. There doesn't seem to have been the sort of mass exodus and flight out of the city that we saw in Florence. And while Florence's political infrastructure was temporarily threatened by the ravages of the plague, the same thing doesn't seem to have happened in Marseille, even though that community saw a mortality rate of around 60%. Aelian actually described the situation as being one in which 
four out of every five people in Marseille died, but we think now that that may be an exaggeration. Daniel Lord Smale commented on this interesting fact about Marseille in his study of that community. Quote, City residents accommodated the effects of the plague. Municipal institutions did not fold up. People stayed by their kinfolk, friends, and neighbors. End quote. From Marseille, the plague spread overland throughout France and then south into Spain through a series of what the great plague scholar Ole Benedictive has called metastatic leaps, later turning back northwest. It hit Avignon, Arles, Bordeaux, Carcassonne, and Lyon hard. But somehow Carpentras, which was so close to Avignon, managed to get through the pandemic pretty much unscathed. As the Black Death made its way through France and headed into what is today Switzerland, Belgium, and Germany, people began to look for someone to blame. As has been the case so many times throughout history, the convenient scapegoat that many communities lighted upon were the Jews. Now, we'll devote a whole lecture to this a little bit later on in this course, but what's important for us to understand here is that throughout most of the Western medieval world, the leading edge of the disease of plague was followed by a wave of anti-Semitism and a series of pogroms that resulted in the destruction of many Jewish communities and the horrible deaths of many Jews. But not in Marseille. As I said, I'm focusing mostly on France because it offers a kind of microcosmic picture of all the possible responses to plague. And while the town of Toulon, just east of Marseille, was the site of a horrible incident of Jewish persecution on Palm Sunday in 1348 and a harbinger of what was to come in other French communities, Marseille's response offers an affirming contrast to that all-too-common scenario. Scholar John Kelly puts it best, quote, The singular achievement of Black Death Marseille was to resist the wave of anti-Semitism and remain true to its Mediterranean heritage of tolerance. During the plague, the local Jewish community of 2,500 people experienced no harassment or attack. Moreover, as the pogroms mounted in ferocity, Marseille gained a reputation as a haven for Jews fleeing persecution elsewhere. End quote. The next community hardest hit after Marseille was Avignon, which, as we'll see in the next lecture, is a case study of how the papal community responded to what certainly seemed a punishment from God. By March 1348, we estimate that around 15,000 residents of that city had died from the plague, and over 11,000 of them had been buried in a new cemetery that the Pope had purchased and given to the city for the sole purpose of accommodating this tidal wave of death. When the plague didn't let up and Avignon ran out of land, the Pope actually went ahead and consecrated the Rhone River itself. Every day, hundreds of victims of plague were dumped in the river and their bodies made their way out to the Mediterranean, where they joined up with the corpses from other towns who had been forced to take the same action. It gives new meaning to the phrase, don't drink the water. From Marseille and Avignon, the plague went to Bordeaux. Bordeaux at this time was still part of England. It had originally been part of Eleanor of Aquitaine's lands, and it was considered one of the jewels in the English crown, in no small measure because of the wines that came from this region, 
which were in high demand in thirsty upper-class households throughout England. You'll recall that King Edward III of England had been actively campaigning to retake French lands for England starting in 1337. In 1346, Edward had launched an invasion into Normandy and had taken the city of Caen in the space of just a single day, catching the French totally off guard. On August 26, 1346, Edward's forces engaged the French army at the Battle of Crecy, and the English won a stunning victory, which was made possible in large part by the use of the English longbow. We could spend an entire lecture discussing Crecy, its origins, and its aftermath, but what's important for our purposes here is to understand how this victory was significant for Edward both in terms of territory, it led directly to the ultimate English conquest of the port city of Calais, which would remain under English control until well into the 16th century, and it was also important in terms of psychology. Edward and his advisors experienced quite an understandable burst of self-confidence. This may explain why, in 1348, when plague was hitting Bordeaux hard, he went ahead and made a decision that in retrospect seems absolutely crazy. He sent his 15-year-old daughter, Princess Joan, there for a stopover on her way to the Kingdom of Castile. This story demonstrates the very real way that plague may have actually shaped and reshaped the boundaries and powers of various nations. In case you haven't figured it out yet, Edward III was kind of ambitious, and his ambition stretched beyond just reclaiming French lands he felt were rightfully English. He was interested in expanding English influence into the Iberian Peninsula, and to that end, had arranged to marry his daughter Joan, to the heir to the kingdom of Castile, Prince Pedro. He sent his daughter and a suitable entourage across the channel to Bordeaux. Among her attendants were the high-ranking diplomat Robert Bourchier and Andrew Olford, who was a battle-hardened veteran of many wars, including the recent fight at Crecy. When the English ships put in at Bordeaux in August 1348, it must have seemed a strange sight to the citizens of that town, as for months they'd been suffering from an outbreak of plague, and there was death everywhere. As in the rest of the medieval world during the first wave of the epidemic, 50 to 60% of the population there had died of plague. In fact, the mayor of the town told the English entourage that they should not land in Bordeaux because, you know, they might die. But for whatever reason... Bourchier and Olford ignored this warning, and the royal wedding party promptly took up lodgings in the Palais de l'Ombrière, which was a stately castle with a lovely view looking right over Bordeaux's harbor. And I'm sure many of you are already thinking, hmm, aren't there usually lots of rats down on the waterfront, and isn't it the infected fleas on rats that transmit plague? And those of you who know a little more about Bordeaux's trading profile might be aware that, in addition to wine, wool was one of the major goods shipped in and out of the port. A perfect place for infected fleas to hitch a ride from one location to another. I think you can guess how this story ends. By all accounts, Joan and her escorts died horrible, agonizing deaths from plague. 
Only Ulford survived, and it was he who had the very unpleasant task of reporting to the king that his daughter had died of plague, and with her, England's chance for an alliance with Castile. Edward sent emissaries to recover his daughter's body and bring it back to England for burial, but that never happened. There are two possibilities as to why. One is that the Bishop of Carlisle, who had been paid a huge sum by Edward to go over and retrieve Joan's corpse, just chickened out and said, nope, not going to Plague Town. The more likely scenario is that there was no body to recover. In October 1348, Bordeaux's mayor ordered the harbor and all of the buildings on the waterfront to be burned to the ground in an attempt to eradicate the disease. It's probably the case that Joan's body had turned to ashes when the Palais de l'Ombrière was incinerated. Edward had already married off his other daughter, so his hopes for an alliance with Castile were dashed, and England's continental ambitions took a hit that would have long-ranging consequences. In a letter to King Alfonso, informing him of this turn of events, Edward wrote, quote, With what intense bitterness of heart we have to tell you this. Destructive death has lamentably snatched from both of us our dearest daughter, whom we loved best of all, as her virtues demanded. No fellow human being could be surprised if we were inwardly desolate by the sting of this bitter grief, for we are human too. But we, who have placed our trust in God and our life between his hands, we give thanks to him that one of our family, free of all stain, whom we have loved with pure love, has been sent ahead to heaven to reign among the choirs of virgins, where she can gladly intercede for our offenses before God himself. End quote. In the example of Bordeaux, we see both arrogant pride and then extreme sorrow. We see a community that continued to try and maintain normal operations despite the epidemic, until it was clear that drastic measures were called for. And if setting fire to the part of the city that is the hub of your economy is not desperate measures, then I don't know what is. And the example here also highlights what had to have become a fact by this point. If there were places in the medieval world that were not yet infected with the plague, they knew that it could only be a short time before the Black Death made its way to their own doorsteps. Indeed, in a few instances, we see how news of plague outbreaks in cities like Bordeaux and Marseille caused panic and violence and mass exodus and violence against Jews, in particular, in cities that hadn't yet been infected. The strain of knowing what must be coming caused some communities to crack under pressure. This is exactly what happened in Strasbourg, as we'll explore in greater detail later. Citizens in that city killed some 900 Jews while they were waiting for the plague to make its way to them. The plague made it to Paris relatively late, especially when we consider its early arrival in Marseille and the rest of the South in 1347. It was probably sometime in August 1348 that the Black Death found its way into the city itself, and the effects were, as everywhere, utterly devastating. If Florence was the most densely populated city in the medieval world at this time, Paris was the largest metropolis, with about 200,000 inhabitants. 
It might seem logical that we think of Paris as the capital of the medieval nation of France, but at this time the royal court did a lot of moving around and wasn't always fixed in one place. What is more important as concerns Paris during the first wave of the Black Death is that it was the site of one of the first universities in the medieval world, and it had, by the standards of the day, an impressive medical faculty, whom the French king called upon. To figure out just what was going on, the forty-six masters of medicine at the University of Paris produced one of the most important scientific works concerning the Black Death, the Compendium de Epidemia per Collegium Facultatis Medicorum Parisius, which is fascinating for the emphasis it places on how earthquakes, floods, unseasonable weather, planetary conjunctions, and bad air. Contributed to the outbreak of plague. It is a very lengthy tract, comprising multiple books, and while it provides fascinating insight into medieval medical theory, it was basically useless for those who were suffering through the Great Mortality. A fact that is underscored by the fact that pretty much all of the authorities who worked on the compendium died of plague themselves. In a later lecture devoted exclusively to medieval medical theories about and treatments of the plague. We'll examine this text in much greater depth, but for now, suffice it to say that it demonstrates once again the variety of approaches different groups of people employed when confronted with plague. Instead of fleeing the city or blaming a population like the Jews, which actually couldn't happen in Paris because all its Jews had been expelled some time before, here we see people turning to the greatest minds of their day to try and understand the Great Pestilence. And it wasn't just the medical faculty of the university who felt compelled to offer written commentary on the plague. It's estimated that between 1348 and 1350, there were some 24 plague tracts written by a variety of people, and some of these were decidedly quirky by modern standards. One medical treatise was even written in poetic verse. An English medical authority named John Cole. Taking the Paris medical faculty's statement about bad air as a starting point, theorized that the best way to counteract bad air that carried infection was with more bad air. This led to the totally bizarre sight of people gathered around public latrines, inhaling deeply, thinking that this bad smell would act as protection against whatever other bad smell was carrying the plague with it. As I noted, it was the French king Philip VI who commissioned the medical faculty to try and understand the epidemic. And I should note that a moment ago, when I said the majority of the population of Paris did not flee the city, there's an exception. The French king himself took a page out of the Florentine playbook and hightailed it out of there, moving around the countryside in a sort of bizarre game of hide and seek with the Black Death. He escaped the plague, dying of natural causes in 1350, but his queen did not. Now, those who remained in Paris chronicled the horrors of the epidemic. One Jean de Venette recounted how the hospital of the Hotel Dieu was particularly hard hit, seeing as its population was made up of those who were already ill or elderly, and the quarters were pretty close. Multiple patients sometimes shared a single bed. 
You can imagine that once the Black Death had a toehold there, there was no stopping it. Says Divinette, quote, The mortality was so great that for a considerable period, more than 500 bodies a day were being taken in carts from the Hôtel Dieu in Paris for burial in the cemetery of the Holy Innocents. The saintly sisters of the Hôtel Dieu, not fearing death, worked sweetly with great humility, setting aside considerations of earthly dignity. A great number of the sisters were called to a new life by death and now rest, it is piously believed, with Christ." These astonishing numbers are confirmed by a rather unexciting and pedestrian source, the Register of Parishioners' Bequests to the Parisian Paris of Saint-Germain-l'Auxerrois. The canon of that parish, Jean Morellet, had been doing a dutiful job of record-keeping, noting which members of the parish had made requests at which time, and it was only a few per month in the years before the arrival of the plague. So it seems like a not very onerous task. But then, between June 1348 and April 1349, poor Monsieur Morellet probably suffered writer's cramp, as he had to note an astounding 445 bequests, an almost 13-fold increase. Other sources similarly confirm the high mortality rates. In the words of historian John Kelly, quote, During the 18 months between June 1348 and December 1349, Paris seems to have lost the equivalent of a good-sized village almost every day, and on bad days, a good-sized town, end quote. This state of affairs eventually led to a new kind of response to the plague, indifference. We see it in Paris, in Marseille, in Avignon, and in scores of other communities once we're a good year or so into the first wave of the Black Death. Death has become commonplace. It's like that scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail in which a cart is rolled through a village with a crier announcing, bring out your dead. And the conversation that follows rather matter-of-factly reveals that he's got to hurry and get over to the Robinsons because, quote, they've lost nine today, and that the corpse cart's next round will be the following Thursday. Toward the end of 1349, Monsieur Morellet seems to have become rather haphazard in his record-keeping. Because after all, what's the point? We see the same weariness and resignation in Marseille, and especially in Avignon, as we'll explore in more detail in the next lecture. But in a few places, we encounter a response that seems awfully like tempting fate. One of these episodes is recounted in the Grand Chronique de France, or Great Chronicle of France, which was kept by the monks of Saint-Denis, just outside Paris. In this particular account, the chronicler tells that two monks from the abbey were traveling through the countryside at the behest of their abbot, when they encountered a village in which all the people were dancing to the music of drums and bagpipe. This seemed an odd celebratory moment in the midst of so much grim death, so the monks inquired as to what was happening. Quote, We have seen our neighbors die, and we are seeing them die daily, the villagers explained. But since the plague has not entered our town, we hope that our merrymaking will keep it away, and this is why we are dancing. End quote. This may seem a strange approach to take to an epidemic, but you have to admit, on many levels, it sounds a whole lot better than hanging out around a latrine 
and deliberately breathing in the fumes. But there's more to the story. On their way home, the monks passed through the same village, and everyone seemed very sad. What happened? They asked. Quote, Alas, good lords, the wrath of God came upon us in a hailstorm, for a great hailstorm came from the sky and fell on our town and all around so suddenly that some people were killed by it, and others died of fright, not knowing where to go or which way to turn. End quote. The merrymaking response to plague would show up throughout the medieval world as the Black Death made its way across the continent, as would a sort of intersection of that impulse and the resignation that everyone was going to die. A few communities figured, what the heck, we're all dead anyway, might as well enjoy the time we have left in an orgy of hedonism, and sometimes that was literally what happened. On other occasions, people turned the opposite way, and in acts of religious devotion, sought to further punish and humiliate their flesh in the hope that this would appease the wrath of God. As you might imagine, given that the papacy resided in Avignon at this time, the example of that city provides some key insights into how religious authorities responded to and even made use of the Black Death. In the next lecture, we'll do a case study of Avignon and explore many responses that might be expected, plus some very unexpected ones from no less a person than the Pope himself. Lecture 8. The Black Death in Avignon. In the last lecture, we focused on how the plague in what is today France offers a view of the whole range of human, social, political, and religious responses to the Black Death as it swept through continental Europe in 1348. In places like Marseille, Bordeaux, Paris, and others, we saw full-blown panic, exhausted indifference, people who abandoned their friends and neighbors, and others who resolutely and steadfastly stayed in their communities. We also saw the launching of pogroms against Jewish populations, and elsewhere, the explicit protection and offering of safe haven to Jews. And we explored attempts to understand the plague using science as well as attempts to reconcile what was going on with plague from the perspective of religion. In this lecture, we're going to do a case study of the city of Avignon. Located in the south of France, it was hard hit by the plague shortly after the Black Death came to Marseille. And in many respects, the experience of Avignon is very similar to what we see in other cities that were struck early on. But at the same time, Avignon is an exceptional case because at this point, it was not just another city in France or in continental Europe. It was the seat of the papacy, which means, as you might guess, that it is a special case that we need to consider carefully as there are all kinds of questions about mortality and religion and governance and medicine and literature, not to mention some very big personalities that intersect when an epidemic hits a religious and political center of the medieval world. 
But before we can get to all this fascinating info about how the plague affected the seat of the papacy, we need to understand a little bit about what it was doing there in the first place. I've touched on this in earlier lectures, but let's dig a bit deeper now. In the early 14th century, the French king Philip IV got embroiled in a nasty feud with Pope Boniface VIII that mostly centered around a by now familiar conflict over church powers versus state powers. Who had control over the clergy? Was it the king of the country in which they lived who could dictate their behavior? Or did they answer only to the pope in Rome as a higher authority? Philip thought it was he who should be the overlord of members of the clergy in France. Boniface thought that the papacy and its concerns overrode those of any secular ruler. Now, neither Philip nor Boniface were Boy Scouts. Philip is the king who famously rounded up the Knights Templar, tortured them to confess to hideous acts they certainly never committed, confiscated their considerable wealth, and then executed them. Boniface was interested mostly in power and money, and to that end made a brisk business selling church appointments and indulgences, acts for which Dante Alighieri famously put him in the eighth circle of hell in his Divine Comedy. So long story short, in 1305, following the death of Boniface's successor, who was pope for only a few months, the papal enclave met, and after a deadlock and some tense negotiations, finally elected as Pope Clement V, who was French, and who decided that he was not going to go to Rome. Instead, he would stay in France. One reason for this, some scholars surmise, is that he couldn't bear to leave behind his French mistress, which he would have to do if he were to go to Rome. Another reason might have been because of the influence of the French king, who certainly thought it would be to his advantage to have the leader of the medieval church in his own backyard, as it were. So all the infrastructure of the papacy suddenly had to be moved and overlaid and worked into the infrastructure of Clement's home base of Avignon. Scholar Morris Bishop describes this move as akin to taking the United Nations— and relocating it to a small New England town. While the new pope was French, many, many of the papal officials who would be continuing their service to the Holy Father were Italian. And not all of these officials were technically clergy. Some were lay people who served as lawyers and advisors and politicians, and indeed artists, musicians, household staff, etc. So pretty quickly, the population of Avignon more than doubled, and those who made up the new members of this community were mostly foreigners, many of whom eventually married into the local population. One frequent visitor to Avignon was the father of the Italian Renaissance, Francesco Petrarch, and he was just one of many Florentines who made their way west to France while the papacy was located in Avignon. There were a lot of cracks and a few collapses in infrastructure in the city during the initial years of this move, but for seven popes over the years of 1309 to 1377, the seat of the church in Western Europe was in Avignon. Thus it was when plague struck in 1348 during the reign 
of Pope Clement VI. Now, by all accounts, none of the Avignon popes were fans of the monastic virtues like poverty and chastity. Scholar Jean Kelly notes that in addition to an obscenely lavish and hedonistic lifestyle, the papacy in Avignon under the first 14th century French pope, Clement V, had, quote, transformed the church into a spiritual pez dispenser, end quote. Anything you wanted, any sin you wanted to commit or rule you wanted to break, could be had for a price. It was like the papal palace had become the medieval Costco of religious dispensations. And of all the Avignon popes, Clement VI was particularly notorious in this regard. Supposedly, when asked why he chose to live such an excessive lifestyle, even compared to his very profligate predecessors, Clement VI replied that it was because his predecessors, quote, did not know how to be popes. Life in Avignon during the time of the popes, what has come to be called the Babylonian captivity, was a weirdly bipolar existence of misery and hedonism. Avignon was crowded, dirty, and smelled bad. Working conditions were difficult because of the infamous Mistral wind of the south of France, which blew papers around and covered everything in a fine dust. This meant that if you were doing bureaucratic work, you had to be inside, in the dark, with the shutters closed to keep out the wind. So even during the middle of the day, you were working in the dark by candlelight. There was a famous saying from this time, Avenio ventosa, com vento fastidiosa, sine vento venenosa, which means windy Avignon, unpleasant with the wind, poisonous without it. At the end of the day, pretty much every church official alleviated this stressful situation by going drinking or to a brothel or usually both. It's instructive to note that Avignon had 11 whorehouses at this time, while Rome only had two. So this was the situation when the plague made its entrance onto the Avignon stage in January 1348. When it first showed up, interestingly, it appeared to be the pneumonic form that first attacked. Later, as the epidemic continued, we have documentation that indicates the bubonic form was also showing up. This suggests that people carrying the pneumonic form brought the plague to Avignon from Marseille first, and that the rats and their infected fleas made their way to the papal seat a little bit later. Now, what's great for historians is that because Avignon was the seat of the papacy, it was an incredibly high concentration of people who could both read and write in multiple languages. So we have thorough documentation as to what went on there. And we have not only official documents, but also personal letters, like the one that was composed by a musician at Clement VI court, a Flemish man named Louis Eiligen whose accountant was one of those that made it north to friends and family ahead of the plague and let people know what horrors were coming their way. I quoted bits from Eiligen's famous letter in the previous lecture, including the details of that infamous Genoese galley that had been refused entry at port after port until its final fateful docking at Marseille, and also that, in the face of so much death, the Pope had purchased a huge plot of land, consecrated it as a cemetery, by March of 1348, so not even three whole months after the Black Death's arrival, 
and over 11,000 people have been buried there. The unceasing onslaught of death is what led Clement to finally consecrate the Rhone River so that the bodies of plague victims could be buried there as there was no more room left on land. The river seems to have been a sensible solution that took care of another problem as well. Many accounts report that after a mass burial took place, in the evening, wild pigs and dogs would get into the cemetery and root around the bodies, dragging some of them, or parts of them, back out into the open. Imagine being a citizen of Avignon, and every morning, before you open your front door, having to steal yourself for what you might find in the street outside. Either someone who had actually dropped dead of plague right there, or a body that had been dragged there in the night by a wild animal. Eligan's letter also gives us some fascinating details about steps people took to protect themselves from the plague, and it demonstrates that even in an era long before the theory of germ transmission, people were smart enough to see cause and effect and take some steps to protect themselves. For example, he notes that, quote, no kinds of spices are eaten or handled unless they have been in stock for a year because men are afraid that they might have come from the galleys of which I spoke, end quote. This is a pretty sensible precaution, given that spices were one of the largest imports from the East, the area in which the plague first arose. He also describes reactions of the populace that, by now, have become expected. Priests refusing to visit the dying, family and friends leaving loved ones behind, people dropping dead in the streets, no proper burial services, whole neighborhoods empty and abandoned either because the people have fled or because they have died. And there was scapegoating. Eligan says, quote, Some wretched men were found in possession of certain powders and were accused of poisoning the wells, with the result that anxious men now refused to drink water from wells. Many were burnt for this and are being burnt daily, for it was ordered that they should be punished thus, end quote. And of course, there's the reaction of deeply religious people to what must have seemed like punishment from God. We know from Eligan and other sources that in March, when the epidemic was reaching full steam, the Pope granted a plenary indulgence, which was good until Easter, for all who died of plague. He even took the extraordinary step of decreeing that if someone found him or herself on the point of death, last confession could be made to anyone who was present, whether or not they were clergy, and it would count, even if the person hearing confession was <gasps> a woman. There were also extra church services and religious processionals throughout the town, many of which the Pope himself took part in. These processions were some of the first instances when we see the rise in the popularity of a religious movement that had first appeared in parts of Germany, Italy, and Austria in the 13th century, and which gained new momentum and adherence as a direct response to the plague. This was the flagellant movement. While religious processionals might, as a matter of course, be made up of some people who were weeping or some who went barefoot to show humility, the flagellants took this to a whole new level. Dressed in little more than rags, they beat themselves with whips and scourges until the blood ran in copious amounts. The idea being that 
they would punish their own flesh in an attempt to atone for the fleshly sins of all mankind. While at first the processionals were limited to Avignon, and eventually the Pope opted to only participate in processionals that traveled in the immediate vicinity of his palace, later on, the flagellant movement would grow, and its members would wander from town to town, making a public spectacle of themselves to warn and admonish others to seek forgiveness. Although he had tolerated the flagellants at first, in 1349, Clement VI issued a papal bull condemning their practices, and he sent the bull out to all the bishops in Western Europe. Despite this, the movement continued to exist and in some places flourish, especially during the years of the Great Mortality. What's very interesting here is that while the Pope, as the head of the church, was certainly expected to offer prayers for God's mercy and comfort to those in his religious flock, he himself doesn't necessarily seem to have viewed the epidemic as punishment from God. Or we could say that at the very least, he was hedging his bets. He preached many sermons encouraging people to repent and confess during these dark times, and he even wrote a special mass to address the plague. And this mass circulated and was sung throughout Europe, far beyond Avignon, and indeed was still in use by the Roman Catholic Church into the 20th century. This mass granted whomever heard it sung 260 days of indulgence. This is 260 days time off whatever sentence in purgatory one might have to serve in order to atone for one's sins. But even as Clement was attending to the spiritual needs and emotional comfort of his flock, he also was really interested in the scientific and medical causes of the epidemic. As you might guess would be the case with this pope, he had a huge medical and scientific staff on hand, and he consulted them as to what was to be done and what was the cause of the great pestilence. He was very interested when his astrologers explained the outbreak, in part, as being due to a planetary conjunction. Clement also issued a papal bull condemning the persecution of the Jews, noting that while, yes, it was lamentable that they were non-believers, they were one of God's chosen people. And Jesus had been born to a Jewish mother. He also pointed out that the Jews in Avignon were dying in numbers equivalent to non-Jews, which made it doubtful that they were behind the outbreak. And the Pope followed the main recommendation of his doctors, which was to confine himself to his chambers and have two huge bonfires lit at either end of the room. He was to stay between these bonfires as it was believed that the heat and the flames would destroy any bad or infected air that was the source of the transmission of the disease. And this is exactly what Clement did. And it may be why he did not contract plague. He had essentially quarantined himself from carriers of the pneumonic form who would not be allowed near him. You'll remember that people were able to recognize the symptoms of the cough and the fever. And at the same time, the heat in his chambers meant rats and their fleas, the carriers of the bubonic form of the Black Death, also stayed away. 
But finally, as Eligen tells us in his letter, the Pope decided to leave Avignon for the city of Étoile-sur-Rhône, where the plague had not yet arrived. And Eligen indicates that his immediate master, one Cardinal Giovanni Colonna, part of the papal court, was planning to go along, which meant that Eligen would be going too. What happened to Eligen, we don't know for sure, but we do know that Cardinal Colonna never made it out of the city succumbing to plague in July 1348. He was in good company. It's estimated that 50 to 55% of Avignon's population, so we're thinking around 60,000 people, died before the plague finally began to abate. And a quarter to a third of Clement's papal officials succumbed to plague, while others, understandably, packed up and relocated to other places. All papal business was officially suspended for some months, and life in Avignon sort of ground to a halt. Except, you know, for the very last part of life, the dying. That continued. And in one of those silver lining moments that is also a fascinating coincidental convergence of personalities and events, the death of one of the citizens of Avignon would help usher in the Renaissance. I'm referring to the death of Laura de Noves, wife of Hugues de Sade, whose family members were important figures in Avignon. The de Sade coat of arms graced the bridge of Avignon as early as the 12th century, a testament to their status and power in the community. On a fun side note, Hugues was most likely the ancestor of the infamous Marquis de Sade. In any event, Petrarch, by his own account, spotted Laura during church services in Avignon one day in 1327 and fell immediately and deeply in love. Because she was already married to another man, he could not fulfill any of his amorous desires. All the better for the rest of the world, who have benefited from the beautiful love poems, the canzoniere, that Petrarch composed to express his love and longing. Although it seems cruel to feel grateful that Petrarch endured such agonies just so the literary bounty of the world could be increased. Crueler still is the fact that Laura's death, most likely from plague, but possibly from some form of tuberculosis or complications from childbirth, continued to inspire Petrarch to compose still greater works of literary genius. Petrarch had left Avignon and returned to Italy, And when word reached him of Laura's death, he picked up his own personal copy of Virgil and wrote on one of the pages, quote, Laura, illustrated by her virtues and well celebrated in my verse, appeared to me for the first time during my youth in 1327 on April 6th in the Church of St. Clair in Avignon in the first hour of the day and in the same city in the same month on the same sixth day at the same first hour in the year of 1348, withdrew from life while I was at Verona, unconscious of my loss. Her chaste and lovely body was interred in the evening of the same day in the church of the minorities. Her soul, as I believe, returned to heaven whence it came. Somewhat surprisingly, Clement ultimately opted not to leave Avignon, and he eventually came out from between his fires to minister last rites, oversee burials, and essentially 
tend to the physical and spiritual needs of his flock. When Clement VI finally died of a non-plague-related hemorrhage in 1352, still in Avignon, his body was laid in state and he was memorialized as a man of fine taste and culture, a patron of the arts and education, a gentleman with excellent manners, but definitely not a saint. But you know, there are worse things. Another person who stayed in the city was the Pope's personal physician, Guy de Choliac. It is from de Choliac that we get detailed descriptions of the symptoms of the Black Death, including the nature of the buboes, which he calls apostames. At the end of his account of the plague in Avignon, he adds a startling personal anecdote. Quote, And I, in order to avoid a bad reputation, did not dare depart from Avignon, but with a continuous fear I preserved myself as best I could. Nonetheless, toward the end of the mortality, I fell into a continuous fever with an apple stain on the groin, and I was sick for nearly six weeks. And I was in such great danger that all of my friends believed that I would die. And the apple stain ripened and healed, as I have described above, and I escaped by God's command. End quote. De Choliac lived on into 1368, and his case is fascinating in that it is absolutely clear that he had contracted the bubonic form of the plague, and it confirms what other sources and scientific research have indicated. This form of plague was survivable, although the odds were not particularly good. Still, it could and it did happen. So in Avignon from 1348 to 49, you have half the population dead and another good chunk, especially those at the top, have fled the city for plague-free environs to the north. There is anti-Semitism and religious fervor. Whole sections of the city lie empty and daily life winds down into that kind of indifference we've seen so many other places. A few people like Guy de Choliac and the Pope choose to remain and yet survive the plague. But here's something new that you're not going to see in other plague-affected areas, and we see this novel thing happening precisely because Avignon is the seat of the papacy. And that thing is certain people coming to the town precisely because it is ravaged by plague. In the case of Princess Joan of Bordeaux, the royal entourage simply didn't understand the threat and thus they paid the price. But in March 1348, when the plague was approaching its peak, another royal named Joan, Queen Joanna of Naples and Sicily, who was also Countess of Provence, chose to enter Avignon not only despite the plague, but in some sense because of it. Allow me to explain. In a series of events that I'm really hoping someone will make a historical novel out of someday, Joanna was accused of arranging and perhaps participating in the murder of her husband, Prince Andrew of Hungary, in 1345. This story has everything you could want in a murder mystery. A beautiful royal who's been married off at a young age to a nobleman. The setting of an abbey in Naples, where one night the prince is lured out of his bedroom by a cryptic message delivered by a maid. 
While his wife supposedly slept nearby, someone tied a noose around Prince Andrew's neck and then threw him over the balcony. He was discovered hanging there and still struggling to stay alive by another maid. When this maid approached to offer assistance, a black cloaked figure leapt out of the shadows, yanked down hard on the prince's ankles, and broke his neck, thereby ending his life. Although Joanna was reportedly distraught and wept when told the news, Prince Andrew's family was suspicious, and they held her responsible for her husband's death. Thus, Joanna opted to travel to Avignon for a hearing in the papal court to clear her name. The fact that plague was well known to be ravaging the city actually acted in her favor, as she and her supporters continually pointed out that her willingness to go there. Was further testament to her innocence. She trusted that God would protect her and show the rest of the world that she had been falsely accused. Now, the evidence presented at the trial did seem pretty incriminating, and again, someone had better make a murder mystery novel out of this. But in the end, Joanna was not only found not guilty, but also declared above suspicion of guilt. The Pope embraced her. Before the entire gathering, the Hungarians gritted their teeth and bore it, but they did not forget. In 1382, 37 years after after Andrew's death, a Hungarian agent snuck up behind Joanna while she was kneeling in prayer and strangled her to death. One can understand their anger, as it just so happened that a few months after the trial, Clement cut a very favorable deal. To take possession of the city of Avignon itself, purchasing it from the title holder Joanna, Queen of Naples and Sicily and Countess of Provence, for the bargain price of eighty thousand gold florins. After this, the papacy and Avignon were even more tightly connected. But as we all know, since the Pope currently resides in Rome, this connection was not to last. In thirteen seventy seven. Pope Gregory XI moved the pontificate back to Rome. He died shortly thereafter, however, and this led to a struggle for power and an event known as the Great Schism, during which time there might be two or three rival popes in existence at the same time. Two of these anti-popes held their positions in Avignon in a sort of last gasp effort to cling to what had been established there, but we know how that eventually turned out. So we see in the example of Avignon how a small Provencal town, forced overnight to become the religious capital of the European world, was in a unique situation when the Black Death made its appearance in early 1348. The pandemic certainly disrupted life there from 1348 to 1350. After the plague had burned through its initial wave, however. Papal and secular administrators returned from where they had taken refuge, and life returned to something resembling normalcy. If anything, the example of Avignon shows us the range and complexity of responses to the Black Death, as well as surprising resiliency in the face of the Great Mortality. In our next lecture, we'll turn our attention to the West and witness the stunning ferocity with which the plague. Ravaged 14th-century England. 
Lecture Nine: The Black Death in England. As far as years in history go, 1348 was not a very good one, especially in Western Europe. The bubonic plague was ravaging the medieval world. The people who lived through it called it the Great Mortality, or the Great Pestilence, or sometimes Blue Sickness. It was only in later centuries that the term Black Death would be coined, but it seems so accurate a description that most scholars today use this phrase to describe what was happening between 1347 and 1350, even though it's a bit anachronistic to do so. While the three forms of plague caused by infection with the bacterium Yersinia pestis were certainly the major dealers of death here, many scholars wonder if other epidemics were raging simultaneously. Contributing to the high death toll, this certainly seems to be the case in the locale that is the subject of today's lecture, England. Contemporary accounts from England describe several instances of the telltale buboes appearing in the groin and armpits of infected individuals, but there are also rather shocking tallies of dead animals and specific references to a murrain that wiped out huge herds of livestock. We know that the plague affected both human and animal populations in Florence, but in England, the accounts are rather extreme, which leads some to wonder if there might have been some other agent at play, maybe anthrax, which can naturally occur in the environment, or some other disease that we haven't yet identified that went zoonotic, meaning it jumped from the animal to the human population. Or maybe there was some kind of viral hemorrhagic fever that we haven't yet identified, which was sweeping through the medieval world at the same time as plague. Maybe something like Ebola, or maybe even a virus like HIV. In a population that was already weakened by the occasional famine and poor health due to scarcity of arable land, such a disease would have had a considerable impact. What we do know is that prior to the arrival of the Black Death in England, there was a perfect storm of circumstances that made that region both an ideal incubator for disease in the physical sense and in a social and economic sense. Changes in daily life and infrastructure in the first half of the 14th century meant that the impact of the disease would be much more severe, whether it was just plague. In its various forms, or plague plus some other infectious diseases that occurred at around the same time. When looking at chronicle accounts of the arrival of the Black Death in England, one is struck again and again by how many people start out by talking about the weather. For example, Ranulf Higden in his Polychronicon. Begins his account of the plague years with quote, "In 1348, there was inordinately heavy rain between Midsummer and Christmas, and scarcely a day went by without rain at some time in the day or night." End quote. Thomas Walsingham, a monk at St Albans Abbey, similarly notes that quote, "This year was a great downpour, which lasted from Midsummer to the following Christmas, and it was speedily followed." By a mortality, end quote. John of Reading, a monk at Westminster, also chimes in with, quote, "In 
Rain poured down in the south and west country from midsummer to Christmas, scarcely stopping by day or night, but still drizzling. End quote. And there are dozens more chronicle entries just like these. This recurring pattern suggests that on some level, the writers of these documents saw a connection between the two. Now, to the medieval mind, this may very well have been something like things were miserable for six months, and then they got more miserable with this disease, and so clearly it seems that God was mad at us. But to the modern mind, and to scholars who study this event, it seems more likely that the bad weather created a situation in which the plague was perfectly poised to affect maximum damage. With so much rain, the harvest was poor, and as many crops started to molder and rot in the ground, if they weren't washed away entirely, this meant that nutritional instability, which was already present in an English population that had doubled in the space of a couple hundred years, was suddenly that much worse. In the years before the arrival of the Black Death in England, there are accounts of people grinding up tree bark and mixing it into their grain in order to produce bread with a bit more heft in order to fill their bellies. There are accounts also of people boiling shoe leather in order to give some taste or nutrition to what was surely some very thin soup. And with the bad weather and poor crops of 1348, it might have seemed like those days were back. People, of course, still had to eat, but the wheat and other crops may have been infected by mold, which could have contributed to outbreaks of illness. For example, we know with near certainty that the terror, which swept through the French countryside from 1793 to 1794, following the French Revolution, was fueled in part by the fact that the crops that year had been infected by a fungus. When consumed by humans, that fungus seems to have had effects similar to what happens when someone ingests the drug LSD. Imagine the whole countryside, tripping and paranoid, all at the same time. Some scholars wonder if something similar had happened in England in 1348, and the population was particularly vulnerable to whatever was coming its way in the form of the Black Death because of this. This situation might also explain why there was such a huge die-off of sheep and cattle. The unusual weather had maybe created a situation in which certain infectious diseases were made into superbugs. Or, as some have theorized, it may have somehow exposed people and livestock to new viruses with which they had not come in contact before. It's well known that the livestock diseases liver fluke and rinderpest flourish in damp weather, so these may be at least two of the culprits here. But science to this day is continually making discoveries about new viruses and bacteria and science is also discovering bacteria and viruses that have been around all along, but that we humans have not recognized before. And it's possible that the strange weather had unleashed something into the livestock population that was a novel disease. We also know that there had been an earthquake reported near York in late 1348, a natural disaster that may have displaced some rodent populations who were carriers of disease not just plague, but other diseases as well. 
So in a nutshell, the food situation was bad. Most of the population was already weakened by this fact and by the fact that in the first half of the 14th century, a land crunch had made the agrarian life of subsistence farming no longer a possibility for many people. And here's the thing that made the impact of the plague so devastating. By the middle of the 14th century in England, society as a whole had started to move into an economy that was more specialized and cash-based. Here's what I mean by this. When we imagine medieval people, many of us default to a picture that, some, that looks something like the early pioneers in America. For example, if you consider the Ingalls family from the Little House on the Prairie books, you've got a situation in which the family grows almost all their own food. Pa slaughters livestock and butchers them. Ma prepares the food, makes clothes for the whole family, churns butter, preserves foodstuffs for the winter, weaves sun hats out of reeds for everybody during warm weather. Pa builds the family's house in two days, taking a break only to dig a new well. And in the evening, he makes his own bullets for hunting while sitting in front of the fire. And later on, he might fix his plowing equipment or make his own reins out of the hide of an animal he slaughtered with his own two hands. You get the picture. Okay, this is not what England looked like in 1347. By this point, the land crunch was so bad that most people could not live by farming alone. So you start to have a real growth in what we might think of as specialized trades. People became tanners and blacksmiths and butchers and cobblers. We have the start of the rise of a merchant class who make their living almost exclusively as part of a cash economy. They might import and export wine or wool or spices, and with their income, they would purchase the foodstuffs they needed to survive rather than growing their own food. All of this would have been just fine, and the economy might have kept on chugging along in this fashion, except for the arrival of the Black Death, an event that's one of those external factors, something like what modern theorists call a black swan. Perhaps you're already familiar with this theory. Briefly, it uses the idea of a flock of swans as a metaphor. Most swans are white. Most of us expect swans to be white. When we imagine them, they're usually white. But then, sometimes, there is, unexpectedly, a black swan in the midst of all these white swans, and it disrupts the situation. So a black swan is an event that is beyond the normal range of expectations, that is, almost completely unexpected, that no one could really have anticipated, and which has dramatic and long-lasting effects. The arrival of the Black Death in England is certainly a black swan event. In England, the death toll in most places was equivalent to that found on the continent, right around 50%. But we do have evidence that in some communities, mortality might have been as high as 70 to 80%. And what happens when you have mortality rates that high is that all the practitioners of a certain specialized craft or trade get wiped out along with their apprentices and no one is left who has the knowledge of carpentry or barrel making or working the mill for the grinding of grain. If there was some catastrophic event in the modern world, a zombie apocalypse, an EMP that knocked out all electrical circuits or a major pandemic, 
how many of us would know how to go about the basic tasks of feeding and clothing ourselves? If you can imagine what that would be like, you can see what life was like for many people in the wake of the Black Death in England. As throughout Europe, the plague first arrived in England through a port city. The chronicle known as the Greyfriars Chronicle notes that the plague arrived in Weymouth sometime in June 1348 on a ship that had come from Gascony, the part of France that included Bordeaux, which, you'll remember, was the place where the Princess Joan had died of plague on her way to be married to Prince Pedro of Castile. From Weymouth, the plague was carried by ship south and west around Cornwall, breaking out in full force in Bristol in August 1348. Next was Gloucester. Although the leaders of this city recognized what was happening and tried to quarantine the city by shutting the gates against any travelers who might be coming in, it was too little too late. From this point on, the Black Death spread rapidly throughout England, due in part to the fact that, as a nation on an island with lots of navigable rivers, England's water-based trade networks allowed the plague to advance quickly both along the coasts and inland. Because fishing was a huge industry in England, it's pretty clear that fishing vessels were spreading the Black Death all along the coastal waterways as well. It's an interesting quirk that the great city of London was spared until relatively late. Plague didn't show up there in full force until the beginning of 1349. Once it arrived, however, it made up for lost time with its incredible virulence. From the bridgeheads of Gloucester and Weymouth, the plague was making what plague expert Ole Benedictive has called a three-pronged attack on the city of London. From Gloucester, the plague was heading overland, slowly but inexorably, southeastward along the road from that city to London. From Weymouth, it was heading along the main road that ran northeast, passing through Salisbury and Winchester. And as you might imagine, the third prong that was advancing on London came in through the harbor. In later 1348, we have the first indication that some deaths in London were occurring due to plague. By 1349, the three prongs of the Black Death had fully converged on London, crashing into each other, overlapping, and leaving a grim trail of death and destruction. One way we can track the plague's progression is through records about the need to fill vacant clerical offices. In the towns along the south and west coast, we see a surge in clerical vacancies in the autumn of 1348. As John Kelly has noted, this sudden loss of a huge number of priests could be the basis for an Agatha Christie murder mystery. Who is killing the priests of coastal England? While it's likely that other groups in the community also suffered losses, the priests were hard hit because they were visiting parishioners who were ill and in need of comfort and last rites. Other scholars point out that those in clerical benefices were likely to be older and more susceptible to illness to begin with, which might explain the high mortality rate in this population. And then there is the way that the plague burned through monasteries. When you have a lot of people living together in close quarters, it's a perfect recipe for an epidemic. The Abbey of Meaux lost 83% of its population, 
with 42 out of 52 monks and all of the lay brothers attached to the monastery perishing in the great mortality. The other way we can track people's panic about the growing epidemic is by examining the number of wills that were written and brought to probate. We see a sharp increase in wills written and filed in January 1349, which suggests that the noble classes had started to feel threatened by the epidemic in the late autumn of 1348. As you probably can imagine, once the plague had gained a foothold in London, there was going to be no escaping the Black Death in Britain. By 1349, it had swept through all of England and moved into Wales. The Scots on the northern border, at first spared by the outbreak, gleefully rubbed their hands and decided in 1350 that now was the time to invade the lands to the south. These plans, however, changed dramatically when the plague found its way into the ranks of the invading army and killed 5,000 of them almost overnight. The losses in England were staggering. Of a population of 60,000 in London at the start of the epidemic, less than half that number were still in the city by 1351, probably due to a combination of deaths and flight from the urban setting. Records from many of the manors show that in some cases, half of the families living and working on the land were completely wiped out. In other instances, whole villages were simply obliterated. Now, nobles were somewhat less affected than the peasants, probably due to the fact that many of their houses were built of stone, which was less easily penetrated by flea-carrying rats than the wood structures in which the peasant classes lived. Also, because nobles had access to better nutrition, they were healthier to start with than those who labored on the manors. The losses among the noble classes were probably somewhere around 25 to 30 percent, and among the peasants could run anywhere from 40 to 70 percent, with some places recording mortality rates as high as 80 percent. The priestly classes had losses of around 45 percent. As you might imagine, this produced some situations that had to be coped with in new and exciting ways. For example, whenever the head of a peasant family living on an English lord's manor died, his family owed the lord a harriet, or death tax, and this usually took the form of the family's best animal, a pig or sheep or goat or even a cow. The logic here was that this family was now short a body that had done labor for the lord, so now the amount of work in the fields and harvesting of crops, the production, was going to go down. In order to offset this loss of production, the family then gave one of their animals to the Lord to compensate him for the lost labor and so they could remain on the manor and enjoy the Lord's protection. Well, with the onset of the Black Death, suddenly the Lords had more animals than they could cope with. With this sudden influx of livestock available for the taking, the value and prices for such animals plummeted. Lords with more animals than they knew what to do with dumped them onto the open market, which, as you might imagine if you've taken an economics class, further depressed prices. In some cases, 
the lords would magnanimously decide to forego the Harriet or even return the animal to the tenant family in an act of generosity. If you were an agricultural laborer who had survived the plague, however, you really didn't need this generosity. As we'll explore in greater detail in a later lecture on the economic impact of the Black Death, those at the bottom of the social order suddenly found their services greatly in demand. And whereas in 1347 there had been a land shortage, in 1350 there was plenty of land for the taking. For example, on the manor of Farnham, losses had been hard the first year of the plague, but not so much that life as usual could not continue on. The death toll was somewhere around 20%. But in the second year of the plague, things got much worse. When a tenant died, it was the usual course of action that the deceased's name be read aloud in the manor court, at which time a family member of the deceased could present himself as the legal claimant of the tenancy. However, the manor records show that on 40 separate occasions in 1349, the name of a deceased tenant was read out loud in the manor court and no one spoke up. Whole families had been wiped out, and there weren't enough bodies to work the land, a situation that resulted in skyrocketing prices for labor, and one which would have significant economic impact with long-ranging effects. In the Chronicle of Rochester, the anonymous scribe notes with outrage that due to the plague, quote, Churchmen, knights, and other worthies have been forced to thresh their corn, plow the land, and perform every other unskilled task if they are to make their own bread." End quote. In terms of social order, the people of England coped relatively well, all things considered. Although London quickly ran out of burial space and had to consecrate new plots of land as mass graves, it was not the case that people were simply dumping bodies into a hole in the ground. Recent archaeological excavations of so-called plague pits show that even though they were mass graves, the bodies were usually laid out in orderly fashion, all oriented in the same direction, sometimes grouped together by age and gender. So this suggests that people were still trying to live through this horrific event with a measure of civilized dignity. As we'll see in more detail in a later lecture on the Church and the Black Death, religious institutions did not fare so well during the epidemic, and indeed, their status was weakened by more than a few factors. One of these is that members of the clergy were affected in numbers pretty much equivalent with everyone else, and God did not seem really interested in sparing his servants. Not only did the monasteries suffer huge losses, but England had two archbishops die of plague, one of whom succumbed just 40 days after his consecration, which itself had been hastily arranged because his predecessor had just died of the Black Death. What would have had an even more deleterious effect on the church was the fact that, according to many accounts, clergy refused to visit those who were ill and suffering so great was their terror of being sickened themselves. When they did perform their duties, like administering last rites, many of them did so both hastily and reluctantly, 
a fact that certainly would not have endeared them to the families of the people who were ill. To be sure, there were many devoted priests who bravely performed their duties sincerely and generously to the fullest of their abilities. But because they did this and were exposed to plague on numerous occasions, those good men of the cloth were some of the very first to die. As you might imagine, people were desperate to find some explanation for God's wrath. Apart from the pseudoscientific claims about the conjunction of planets and bad air spreading the infection, God's wrath was the obvious cause. In Henry Knighton's account, he blames the recent vogue in tournaments and the scandalous clothing worn by those in attendance. He writes, quote, Whenever and wherever tournaments were held, a troop of ladies would turn up dressed in a variety of extraordinary male clothing, as if taking part in a play. Dressed thus and mounted on chargers or other horses with elaborate trappings, they rode to the tournament ground. They neither feared God nor blushed at the criticism of the people, but took the marriage bond lightly and were deaf to the demands of modesty. Nor, in following these pursuits, did they remember how much favor and outstanding support God had shown the English army against all their enemies, and with what special backing he had carried them to triumphant victories in every place. But God supplied a marvelous remedy. He sent down heavy rain with thunder and flashing lightning." End quote. The message here is clear. God granted the English victory in battle. Certain nobles, instead of responding with humility and thanks, are off having a good old time at these silly tournaments, and now God is mad. He sent those rains first, and now we've got this black death. You can almost imagine it's the late 60s in America, and some old guy is shaking his fist and saying, Damn, hippies! There's a similar sentiment expressed in the Westminster Chronicle, in which the monk John of Reading blames the plague on the fact that the English have adopted fashions from the continent. He says, quote, The English have been madly following outlandish ways, changing their grotesque fashions of clothing yearly. They have abandoned the old, decent style of long, full garments for clothes which are short, tight, impractical, slashed, every part laced, strapped or buttoned up with the sleeves of the gowns and the tippets of the hoods hanging down to absurd lengths. The sin of pride manifested in this way must surely bring down misfortune in the future. This passage leads me to ask if there has ever been a time in history when the older generation actually approved of the younger generation's fashion choices. The more things change. While these critiques may seem somewhat humorous to us today, we can't forget the horrors in response to which they were written. Most scholars agree that England took a particularly hard hit from the Black Death, with some citing an overall mortality rate of 60%. Although the first wave of the plague finally slowed down by the end of 1350, there was no way for the populace to know this. In 1348, when the plague arrived, it may have seemed like a one-time epidemic. Because the black rat fleas go into hibernation in winter, the rate of infection of the bubonic type seemed to slow down. 
but then it came roaring back with a vengeance in the summer of 1349 and again in the summer of 1350. There was no reason for people to doubt that this was now going to be the new normal. So it must have seemed like an answer to a prayer when 1351 was mercifully almost plague-free. However, the plague kept coming back once every six to ten years or so. There were over 15 recurrences of the Black Death in England between 1351 and 1485. The plague outbreak of 1361 was an incredibly traumatic recurrence, as the majority of the victims were the children of survivors of the first pandemic. It must have seemed cruel indeed for them to have lived through that horror only to see their children succumb to it. In the long term, this meant there was a combination of high mortality and low birth rate, since many women delayed marriage and childbearing after the first outbreak because they were needed in the labor force. England's population would not recover to pre-plague levels until well into the 16th century. It was a demographic catastrophe with effects that can be felt down into the modern day. And speaking of catastrophe, in the next lecture, we'll perform a case study of a community in England that was deeply affected by the Black Death, the town of Walsham. With an estimated mortality rate of 60 to 70 percent, the example of this community helps us understand the extreme stresses of the Black Death and the sometimes necessarily extreme responses of those who had to endure it. Lecture 10, The Black Death in Walsham. As you'll recall, in addition to our general examination of how the Black Death moved through the medieval world, starting with port cities in Italy, Spain, France, and England, and then moving rapidly inland, we've also paused in our overview to zero in on particular communities at particular moments in time during the years of the Black Death. Florence offered a fascinating look at how city government struggled to maintain order in the face of massive depopulation, both from death by plague and from the number of citizens who fled the city. We saw how the powerful guild system played a role in the way in which the plague was managed, and we discussed how the city tried to return to normal in the aftermath. In Avignon, we saw how the seat of the papacy attempted to cope with an enemy that undermined the very authority of the church. Florence and Avignon were both very important cities, and I picked them because they demonstrate very different types of communities, and so give our picture of the Black Death a little more depth and breadth. In this lecture, we're going to examine another community that is very different from these two. This is the rural English village of Walsham in Suffolk. I imagine many of you might have been expecting that we examine London. It seems a pretty logical choice if we're going to pick a spot in England. But while we know a fair amount about what happened in London during the Great Pestilence, there's more that we don't know. This is because pretty much all records pertaining to London at this time 
have been lost, most of them in the Great Fire of 1666, which we'll discuss a little bit in a later lecture. We do have some wills and some archaeological evidence, but not as much as we would like to in order to do a sustained analysis. We'll be focusing on Walsham in this case study for a couple of reasons. One is that, in many ways, Walsham is quite a typical English community. It was, technically speaking, a manor. The manorial system of social organization was found throughout Western Europe, but it was particularly entrenched in England. Under this system, the manor and the lands around it, sometimes known as the fief, were owned by a lord, and on that land lived peasants who were bound to the lord by oaths of service and the promise of protection. The peasant population worked their own fields and owed a certain number of days of service to the lord to work his. The manor had its own church and ecclesiastical officials, its own legal court, and its own mini-economy. Often, the relationship between the family of the lord who presided over the manor and the peasants who lived and worked on the land went back years, if not generations. Thus, these relationships were both hierarchical and familiar, something that's always important to keep in mind when we're talking about the social makeup of the medieval world. Yet another reason we're focusing on Walsham is that it's one of the few communities that has really reliable records that precede the onslaught of plague and continue during the worst of the outbreak. This, as you might imagine, is a godsend for scholars who are trying to understand exactly how the plague transformed medieval society, as in this case, we have a basis for comparison. And because of this fact, the definitive case study of Walsham has pretty much already been done, and part of what I'm going to do today is share the groundbreaking work of scholars who've investigated this community during the Great Mortality. One of the most famous and innovative treatments of Walsham was written by the great medieval and early modern scholar John Hatcher of Cambridge University. Hatcher's treatment of Walsham is so innovative because it takes an approach somewhere between historical analysis and historical fiction. Now, if you're like me, the experience of poring over tables and figures and other forms of raw data can be a struggle. By the same token, very strictly fact-oriented historical writing can be dry and uninteresting. Recognizing this and desiring to produce a valuable text that would help bring Walsham to life, as it were, Hatcher wrote The Black Death, An Intimate History, in which he relies as much as possible on concrete facts, events, and numbers to paint a picture of what happened at Walsham in 1348. In his preface, Hatcher notes that he has set out to write a work that is, quote, more docudrama than conventional history, and as such, it will be a hazardous project for a professional historian to undertake, end quote. But undertake it he does, inventing dialogue and reconstructing events that must have taken place even when he's not entirely sure of all the details. Indeed, while Hatcher knows quite a bit about parish priests and their activities in England during the plague, and he knows that 
Walsham must have had a priest who more or less carried out his duties, that priest's actual name has been lost to posterity. So in his book, Hatcher goes ahead and makes one up for him. Hatcher's experiment in writing about the Black Death this way, not to mention the widespread attention his work has received and the wealth of information he brings to light, means that it is impossible to talk about the Black Death and not talk about Hatcher's analysis of what happened in Walsham. Now, Walsham is a little unusual as far as the manorial system goes in England in that there were essentially two noble households in control of the lands, making this area two manors run side by side. There was High Hall and there was Walsham Manor. The bigger of the properties was Walsham Manor, and for the period in question, this belonged to Lady Rose de Valogne, who had inherited it from her father. Lady Rose married twice and held the property on her own after the death of her second husband, who died of plague himself. She was not in residence there, however. Her family had had many holdings, and she primarily lived elsewhere. So the running of her estate would have been the domain of a reeve or professional estate manager. The other estate, whose seat was High Hall, was smaller and occupied by Sir Nicholas Walsham. When he died in 1347, his widow, Marjorie, and her brother, Edmund de Wells, took over. When the Black Death came to Walsham, that community looked a lot like the rest of the medieval world at this point. It was enduring a land crunch as the population had risen and available land was scarce. There were a few families who held large numbers of acres and were thus relatively well off. Most members of the community, and there were over 1,000 in 1340, held just enough land to scratch out a bit more than subsistence living. At the bottom of the hierarchy were peasants who had to pay relatively high rents for very small garden plots and who were forced to hire themselves out for manual labor, usually for very low wages, whenever another family needed an extra hand getting their plowing done or the crops in or providing required days of service to the Lord. The community was primarily agricultural, so crops and animal husbandry were the main concern of most people living there. But Walsham was also part of a con commercial network that included nearby Barry St. Edmund's Abbey, and there was a thriving market culture. Fairs and markets were held regularly, and local English goods, as well as exotic items like luxury fabrics and spices, could be purchased. This was because Bury St. Edmunds also had one of the wealthiest monasteries in England. This monastic house was Benedictine, so the monastery was deeply engaged in the activity and business of the community in which it was situated. As opposed to the reform movements of the Cistercians or the Franciscans, which tended to try and separate themselves from the activity of the secular world, one of the hallmarks of Benedictine monasticism was how much interaction there was between the abbey and the village. The original town and gown situation, you might say. On the eve of the arrival of the Black Death, the monastery of Bury St. Edmunds was a thriving scholastic community that housed some 70 to 80 monks. It had one of the finest libraries in the land, and scholars and 
church officials regularly traveled there to study and consult the manuscripts that were held in its library. These regular visits by people who traveled throughout England and came from abroad meant that there was a stable communication network in place. And that meant that this was one of those places that would have received the horrifying news about the Black Death long before the plague actually arrived. Hatcher, in his study that hovers somewhere between history and fiction, imagines that the parish priest of Walsham, given the name Master John by Hatcher, most likely would have made regular visits to Bury St. Edmunds, and that this is where he would have first heard the news, most likely just before Christmas time in 1347. It's very likely that Master John and the inhabitants of Walsham held out a reasonable hope that whatever this disease was, its outbreak would be over soon or it would pass their community by. In 1348, however, the news became ever more dire. The archbishops of Canterbury and York each wrote letters about the plague that were to be circulated throughout England and read out in the various parish churches. In these missives, the writers stressed that it was by now common knowledge that a deadly plague was making its way across Europe. Its arrival in England was to be expected at almost any moment. It's important to note here that these letters were written in English, which was an extreme step indeed. Most correspondence and ecclesiastical matters got recorded in Latin, which was the language of learning in the church. It was expected that religious leaders would perform masses and read important missives in Latin, and then would translate and comment for the benefit of those listening. This ensured that everything important, from biblical stories to sermons to political matters, would be mediated by the church. In other words, it was expected that the church would explain to people not just what was being said, but how it should be understood. The fact that these letters skipped this mediating step is one of the clearest indicators of just how worried those in power were. For a period of several months, the people of Walsham played a waiting game. Rumors of infection began to filter back to the city, first from locales far away, then from London. And then, in February 1349, came the news that there had been about 20 sudden deaths in the nearby manor of Lakenheath, which was just 30 miles west of Walsham. Lakenheath had trade connections along the River Ouse, which is probably how the infection found its way in. During the months that followed, the rolls from the manor courts, which were held regularly, usually around once a month or so, in the villages and communities surrounding Walsham, more and more sudden deaths were recorded in these manor court rolls. The manor of Ake recorded 24 deaths between early February and late March, an unusually high number. For the same period, the manor of Aldham recorded 10. Layham Manor had noted an extremely high 32 deaths by April. And then it was time for Lent. The religious rituals of fasting and prayer, of asking for forgiveness of sins, must have seemed to be of particular urgency during the Lenten season of 1349. Ash Wednesday fell on February 25th that year, right around the same time that nearby communities 
started to record plague deaths. From what we can tell, Walsham managed to avoid the plague for most of Lent. But just before Easter Day, disaster. At the Walsham Manor Court of March 6th, it was recorded that there had been no deaths since the last court hearing of about two months before. At the next session, which was held on June 15th, there were 103 recorded deaths. This doesn't sound too bad. After all, if the population is around 1,000 to 1,100 people, then this would seem to be a mortality rate of around 10%. Pretty good in a world where elsewhere, half the population was dying of the Black Death. But here's the thing. Those numbers only record heads of households. If the evidence of plague we've seen so far is any indicator, then where one family member succumbed to the Black Death, so did most others. One scholar estimates that a way to get a conservative estimate would be to take the figure of 103 and multiply it by four to get an actual body count. Other scholars actually suggest multiplying by a factor of six or even seven. And here's where the orderly running of the manor gets really complicated. In normal times, after the death of a tenant, that tenant's heir would have the right to step forward and claim the tenancy or negotiate with the Lord, maybe giving it up for a sum of money or claiming it and then renting it out to someone else who could work it. And there would also be the matter of the number of days the tenant had owed for working the Lord's own fields, etc., etc. Now, if it so happened that no heir was to be found, the situation could usually be managed. A vacant tenancy here and there was actually kind of desirable, as that land could be reassigned or rented out, and this would help ease the land crunch, at least a little bit. But in the aftermath of the plague, in June of 1349, the supply and demand graph at Walsham was turned upside down. In his book, Hatcher paints a vivid picture of what must have happened at the manor court meeting of June 15th. The surviving tenants would have most likely gathered in Lady Rose's barn. Just three months before, they had met here to conduct the usual business of the estate. Manor officials like the Reeve, the clerk of the court, the manor steward, and others who filled administrative roles would usually oversee the court business and deal with matters both legal and economic. But on June 15th, the crowd gathered at Walsham would have noticed that most of the people they were used to seeing run these meetings were absent. And it's because they were dead. We can imagine that the people gathered there were relieved to see at least one familiar face in the room. The steward, John Blakey. Their relief most likely turned to horror, however, when his first announcement was that Sir Hugh de Saxum, Lady Rose's husband, had died of plague. Before the assemblage had had much time to digest this, what happened next would be very similar to what was happening all over the medieval world. The attempt to get on with business as usual. So the next step would be to read out the role of those who had died. The family of that person would be expected to identify what they plan to offer as the Harriet, or death tax, to the estate. In most instances, as you'll recall, this came in the form of the family's best beast. After that, 
there would be the matter of deciding who could claim a vacant tenancy and what terms of transfer, a payment, a commitment to provide a certain number of days of service, etc., would be required to complete the transaction. A group of respected citizens of the manor would serve as witnesses, and a young clerk, pressed into hasty service because the old clerk had died, would also record the proceedings with quill and parchment. Now, according to the records of that day, the first of these death announcements and transfers went smoothly. The name of a tenant named John Sire was read aloud by Geoffrey Rath, the estate Hayward, a Hayward being the manor official in charge of fences and enclosures, and in particular, the animals that were grazing within those enclosures. John's son, Adam, was named as heir. Adam came forward, agreed to pay a Harriet, and then knelt before John Blakey with his hands clasped together. Blakey, acting as the agent of Lady Rose, placed his hands around Adam's sires as the latter swore an oath of fealty. While this first transaction went smoothly, the next one did not. Adam Hardon, who had held the tenancy of a cottage with a garden, had his name read. No one stepped forward. Someone stated for the record that Adam had a brother, William, who should be the heir, and furthermore, William knew both about his brother's death and had been aware that the court was scheduled to convene that day, but William had not shown up. Maybe William was thinking, travel to a plague-infested village? No. Thank you. The court decreed that William was to be tracked down and compelled to take over his brother's holding and pay all the taxes that were due. And after that piece of official business, the process really did not go smoothly at all. As each name of the dead was read aloud, the assembled group would probably have turned collectively to look for the heir to the dead man to step forward. After all, on a manner of this size, everyone probably knew everyone else's business and relations. But even as they turned to look, they might have all realized, oh wait, he's dead too. We can only imagine the thought process that took place next, as in their minds, people rifled through the family trees of those they knew. They would progress, branch by branch, until, more often than not, they reached a dead end, or a stump. This was the case with the Dennis family, whose patriarch, Walter, had been one of the first to die. His property had passed to his son, Robert, but then he died too. So it had then passed to his son, John, who stepped forward on June 15th to pledge loyalty to Lady Rose and claim lands that had, until recently, been two generations removed from his possession. Another member of the extended Dennis family, Nicholas, is an example of how the plague could confer great good fortune in the midst of horrible bad luck. Nicholas already had a significant portion of land, and upon the death of his brother William from the plague, he gained an additional eight and a half acres. Nicholas was also the heir of his mother, Avis Dennis, and the official court rolls record that he was granted her five acres as well. The court was not done with Nicholas yet, and announced that he was also the heir to a distant relative, Juliana Dennis, who had been the tenant of a cottage and garden. In 1340, the transfer from Juliana to Nicholas would have gone smoothly as people would have gladly accepted any property they might be lucky enough to inherit. 
On this day, however, Nicholas Dennis said, "Thanks, but no thanks. I've got more than enough land. I don't want to be responsible for fixing up my distant relative's rundown cottage and garden that's overrun with weeds. Plus, I'm kind of busy with my own affairs since my wife died of plague, and I'm taking care of all this other stuff on my own." For one of the first times in its history, but certainly not the last. The court adjourned without reaching a satisfactory settlement in the case of Nicholas Dennis, who refused to take over Juliana's holding, even when John Blakey tried to shame him into it. This was a sign of things to come. In a few cases, heirs of heirs of heirs had become aware of the situation and moved into Walsham from villages not too far away. Others, like William Harden. Opted to stay away from Walsham, so there would be new faces in the crowd. People come to step forward and claim a tenancy or pledge to dispose of property in some fashion. In other instances, the heirs of a deceased tenant were found to be young children who had been orphaned by the plague. The court proceedings of June fifteenth spent a great deal of time identifying several orphans who were also heirs, and then trying to find suitable guardians for all of them. While the guardianship issue seemed to have been satisfactorily resolved that day, the labor issue most definitely was not. How could a nine-year-old, or worse, a three-year-old, be considered a head of household responsible for the heavy labor of farming? Even when there were heirs to take over a tenancy, many were so young and inexperienced that they couldn't have fulfilled their obligations to the manor, even if they had wanted to. Looking at the court records for that day, we get a picture of the manor administrators trying to sort out very complicated inheritance issues, persuade or bully people to accept holdings they didn't want, and then restore a little bit of normalcy by paying attention to things that were the typical fare in the manor court. For example, it was announced that two women, Olivia Cook and Alice Paddle, had given birth to children out of wedlock since the last court assembly. Olivia Cook was fined just over two shillings for her crime, which was formerly known as child white. But Alice Paddle, who had just inherited quite a bit of land due to the deaths of family members, and who had just given birth to twins, was fined double that. Other tenants that day were fined token amounts for selling substandard bread and ale and some other minor offenses, and then the court adjourned for the day. In the weeks that followed the June fifteenth assembly, those still living at Walsham attempted to get things back to normal as quickly as possible. This proved easier said than done, as the shortage of laborers everywhere not only made working the land difficult, but made filling key positions on the manor hard as well. The key to a successful and profitable manor was an honest and competent reeve or overseer. Walsham's reeve, along with several other officials. Had died, according to court records in the High Hall proceedings in 1350, one John Packard was elected reeve of the estate. He refused to accept the position for reasons that have been lost to us, but it may have had something to do with the fact that, in the aftermath of the plague, getting a manor like Walsham up and running at full strength again was likely to be an overwhelming endeavor. 
What happened at Walsham is a microcosm of what was happening throughout England and the rest of the medieval world at this time. As we've already discussed briefly, in the wake of the plague, it was a laborer's market. There was lots of land and not enough people to work it, which meant that for the first time in centuries, a peasant could decide to head down the road to another estate and ask for higher wages if he or she didn't like the compensation offered at a particular manner. As we'll see in a later lecture, the English government tried to step in and stop this from happening by passing a law known as the Statute of Laborers in 1351. This statute froze wages at pre-plague levels and forbade people from moving around the countryside without license, among other things. The records show that in 1353 there was a huge pushback from the peasant population at Walsham. At harvest time, 14 tenants refused to perform their required days of labor on the manor's fields. An additional 34 tenants refused to perform the post-harvest activity necessary to get the fields and farming equipment ready for the winter. And 10 people, all of them women, refused to perform their usual assigned duty of winnowing the grains. What's more, it seems clear that many of the tenants left the manor and relocated, and when ordered back, according to law, they refused to return. What's really interesting to me here is that, compared to many other places, these acts of defiance against the lords of Walsham and the seizing of opportunities for economic and social advancement didn't happen until relatively late. Remember, the Statute of Laborers was in place by 1351, and similar laws had been decreed as early as 1350. But it's not until 1353 that we see the tenants of Walsham engaging in the behavior the Statute was intended to arrest. I don't think it's a coincidence that 1353 is also the year that Lady Rose died. What this suggests to me is that the Walsham tenants' bonds to the manor were not just about land, but also about a personal relationship. When that personal relationship was over, then the desire to adhere to earlier loyalties evaporated. Now, I can't be sure of this, but to me, it seems very likely. It was a new world, and the old standards, practices, conventions, and loyalties had fallen by the wayside. Society had been transformed, and here we see the beginnings of the medieval world starting its transition into the early modern one. In the next lecture, we'll start to finish up our analysis of how the Black Death progressed through the medieval world during the first wave in the mid-14th century. We'll turn our attention north to Scandinavia, where the arrival of the Great Mortality produced some very interesting psychological, religious, and economic effects. Effects that are, in many ways, significantly different from what we've seen so far, as Northern European society was markedly different from Italian, French, English, and other European societies in several key ways. Lecture 11, The Black Death in Scandinavia. In 1346, on the steppes of Asia, the pandemic that we now call the Black Death reared its ugly head. By 1347, 
it had moved west and south, striking the Crimea and, most importantly, the great city of Constantinople, which was a center of trade and culture and a political and religious capital. By late 1347 and into 1348, the plague continued its progress in a mostly clockwise direction, striking port cities like Messina, Venice, Genoa, Pisa, Marseille, and the island of Majorca. From these cities, what the great plague scholar Ole Benedictive has called bridgeheads, the great mortality began to move overland in a generally northwest direction. But at the same time, it was continuing to move much more rapidly over various waterways, hitting Britain in 1348 and ravaging it right through 1349 and into 1350, and then moving north into Scandinavia, striking Sweden in 1349 as well. What's important about understanding how the plague moves through the medieval European world is that it is exactly the trade routes, especially the sea routes, which were part of newly burgeoning and flourishing economy, the likes of which hadn't been seen since the days of the Roman Empire, that would help the plague move so quickly and affect such great devastation. If you look at a map that's color-coded according to the date the plague arrived in various locations, you can see just how true this is. Basic logic suggests that if the Black Death arrived in England in 1348, pretty soon all of Britain would be overcome, including Ireland, which was infected through its various port cities and trade networks. The fact that the Irish city of Dublin and the English city of Bristol were both affected around the same time suggests, though, that Ireland and England were both infected via trade from the continent and not that Ireland was infected via England, which might seem like a logical conclusion given their proximity. Even more interesting is that Scotland, which is physically connected to England, doesn't suffer from the Black Death until 1350. By contrast, Norway, which lies on the other side of a vast expanse of water, gets hit with the plague earlier, in 1349. It's from Norway that Sweden's infection comes. Denmark was infected in 1350, but most likely by a separate wave of plague that was creeping up from the south. That wave would crash into another current of plague that entered Denmark via trade networks with Norway. More than one scholar has likened the movement of the plague to the tightening of a noose that moved clockwise around Europe until it finally ended up pretty much back where it began. In 1352, it struck much of Russia, including Novgorod and Moscow in 1353, while the distance between the steppes of Asia, where the plague began, and Moscow and its environs, where the first wave ended, is actually quite short. For the Black Death to get there, it had to take this really circuitous route, making a huge loop. There can be no clearer example of how established trade routes trumped simple proximity as the means of infection. In the next lecture, we'll examine the end of the first wave of the Black Death and the Russian experience of plague. But first, we're going to focus on Scandinavia and its experience of the Great Mortality. Now, as I just noted, 
Different parts of Scandinavia were infected at different times and by different routes. So by one measure, it might not make sense to talk about the Scandinavian experience of plague. But by another, it makes total sense because the Scandinavian experience was marked by this really fascinating folktale response in which the Black Death was anthropomorphized variously into an old woman, a pair of children, an old man, and in some cases depicted as really frightening animals from hell, like a three-legged goat with blazing eyes. And these depictions seem to be found nowhere else. They are culturally unique to Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and Finland. The fifth Scandinavian country, Iceland, had a different experience with plague. Because Iceland, you see, completely escaped the first wave of the Black Death and didn't experience plague until 1402. This is very important information to have if time travel is ever invented and you find yourself transported back to the second half of the 14th century. If that should happen, and that in fact is the main plot of one of my favorite sci-fi slash historical novels, Connie Willis's Doomsday Book, if that should happen, get yourself to Scotland, where you'll be good until about 1350, and then from there, book passage on the fastest ship to Iceland you can find. While I'm sort of joking here, I'm also kind of serious. I've often said that one of the best ways to learn about a particular period to get the details and dates cemented firmly in your brain is to read a really good historical novel and then expand and deepen that knowledge by reading histories. For example, the Brother Cadfell murder mysteries by Edith Pargeter, also known as Ellis Peters, were incredibly helpful when I was trying to understand Benedictine monasticism or the conflict between Stephen of England and his cousin Maud, and I got the basics of cathedral building and schematics from Ken Follett's The Pillars of the Earth. And by the way, if anyone is working on time travel to the Middle Ages, I'd like to offer myself as a test subject. But for the present, let's get back to Scandinavia. Now, first off, we have to deal with a controversy, and that is, could the Black Death actually have afflicted Scandinavia, or was it something else? The reason for doubt concerning the source of the epidemic that struck the north of Europe is that the main carrier of the infected fleas, the black rat, or ratus ratus, if you want to use its scientific name, wasn't much to be found in northern Europe. In fact, a different species of rat, ratus norwevicus, is the most popular in the north, and its ancestor, and that of ratus ratus, diverged from one another about 1.2 million years ago. Ratus norvegicus, or the Norway rat, as you may have guessed its name means, don't tend to host the fleas that carry Yersinia pestis. But at the same time, as many scholars have proven, the fleas that carry plague can live without a host for anywhere from 30 to 50 days and were easily transportable in merchant goods like cloth or grain, and thus the infection could have come into Scandinavia that way. Another thing that seems to be more and more clear is that pneumonic plague could be spread from person to person, and it doesn't necessarily seem to be the case that the bubonic form of the plague needed to also be circulating at the same time. For example, 
you know, recall the evidence from Avignon, which was struck fairly early on, and suggests that pneumonic plague might have actually arrived first and was followed later by an outbreak of the bubonic form. In any event, the question is pretty much settled that various forms of bubonic plague are what caused most of the high death rate in Scandinavia between 1349 and 1351. The source of the infection has been identified by many sources as a specific ship carrying wool to Norway that departed London in May 1349, probably intending to arrive and unload its cargo in Oslo. Somewhere en route, plague swept through the ship. One of the crew must have been infected, but didn't know it before embarking. Numerous accounts say that the whole crew died and the ship sailed on and drifted until it ran aground somewhere near Bergen. Other accounts say the ship didn't run aground at all, but was spotted drifting by people on shore somewhere on the west coast of Norway. Curious, they rode out to see what had happened and then brought the disease back with them. Still other accounts suggest that some of the crew had died, but the remainder made it to Norway, where, while they were still alive, they infected the local residents. The image of the rudderless ghost ship, with all hands lost to plague, is certainly one of the most compelling images to come out of the story of the infection of Scandinavia, but some doubt that a drifting ship could have made it all the way to Bergen without running aground earlier. If you look at a map, you can see that navigation of the fjords on the way to Bergen would have probably required someone to be paying attention. Still, it's not impossible that the infection happened this way. According to one of the chronicles, Lawman's Annal, quote, At that time, a ship left England with many people on board. It put into the Bay of Bergen, and a little was unloaded. Then all the people on the ship died. As soon as the goods from this ship were brought into the town, the townsmen began to die. Thereafter, the pestilence swept all over Norway and wrought such havoc that not one-third of the people survived. The English ship sank with its cargo and the dead men and was not unloaded. More ships, cargo vessels, and many other ships sank or drifted widely around. And the same pestilence visited the Shetland Islands, the Orkney Islands, the Hebrides, and the Faroe Islands, end quote. No matter the details, what is certain is that the plague came to Norway from England via ship in late spring 1349. And from this account, it seems clear that plague was striking the islands off of what we think of today as Scotland before becoming a presence in the interior of that realm. Again, it's the route via the sea that's so important in understanding the spread of the Black Death. And this is how it almost came to Iceland. In August 1349, a ship was ready to sail from Bergen, Norway, to Iceland. Iceland's major trading partner was Norway. Indeed, Iceland had been settled primarily by exiles from Norway in the second half of the ninth century and was very dependent upon Norse exports for much of its goods. The ship preparing to embark was an Icelandic one on its way home. But just before the time of departure, one of the crew on board became ill. Recognizing that this was plague, the Icelanders canceled their journey and chose to remain in Norway, a decision that most certainly doomed them, but that spared their homeland the ravages of plague for another half century. 
When it comes to the spread of plague through Scandinavia, once again, it's the trade routes that are the culprits. Now, in general, the Scandinavian socio-political system was somewhat different from the rest of Western Europe in that feudalism was not as strongly or deeply pervasive. While still a primarily agricultural society, the land was mostly freely held rather than in fee or vassalage from the king or a lord. And there were many who lived in mountain settlements where agriculture could not offer a subsistence existence. Those who lived in the mountains were dependent on extensive trade networks running down to the coast for many of the goods they required for survival. And it's along these routes that the plague made its way inland through Norway and then to Sweden and finally to Denmark, which was also suffering from plague coming up from the south. Interestingly, plague struck Denmark, Norway's neighbor to the south, before it struck much of the German-speaking lands, including Austria in the European interior. Another thing that's important to know about the socioeconomic structure of Scandinavia as it relates to plague is that the agricultural system here was particularly dependent upon young, unwed men, known as umkarl, plural umkarlar, as labor. This was different from a place like, say, England, where agriculture was performed by a family unit, with the oldest male, the father or head of the household, being arguably the most important component of the feudal manorial structure. So important was the head of the household in England when it came to agricultural production that if the father should die, it was considered a great loss to the lord of the manor as he no longer had one of his most valuable and productive workers. To make up for this loss in productivity, the family of the deceased would pay a death tax, known as the Harriet, to the lord of the manor. As I've mentioned in previous lectures, this tax usually took the form of the family's best beast, a pig or goat, or maybe even a cow. Now, this is practically the inverse of the case in Scandinavia, which was not heavily manorialized or feudal, and whose society, the Unkarl, was the most important source of labor. What this means is that while it was necessary for young men to marry and reproduce, in order to carry on the production of society, marrying too young was not ideal because that took a man out of the Unkarl labor pool. When the Black Death swept through Scandinavia, it carried off many young men and women who were, of course, the producers of the next generation. The Scandinavian agricultural system was further damaged when, in response to the onslaught of the Black Death, there was another demographic shift. People started marrying younger, which once again diminished the Unkarl labor pool. Interestingly, this seems again to be the opposite of what happened in response to plague in England and other parts of Western Europe. There, we see a delay in marriage, and the average age at which people chose to marry went up. In the case of England, since there were more opportunities for those who survived the plague and suddenly plenty of land to be had and people willing to work it for a wage rather than as part of some sort of system rather like sharecropping, people deliberately kept their family sizes small and didn't reproduce as quickly, perhaps because they were enjoying the benefits of a society in which land pressures had ceased to exist and there were plenty of farm animals for the taking. And yet, 
once again, we see that perhaps the most terrifying thing about the plague was that even those in as yet unaffected regions knew it was coming. For example, in 1350, King Magnus of Sweden issued a letter to his people warning them of the great mortality that was moving their way. He wrote, quote, God for the sins of men has struck the world with this great punishment of sudden death. By it, most of the people in the land to the west of our country are dead. It is now ravaging Norway and Holland and is approaching our kingdom of Sweden, end quote. The king goes on to call for fasting on Fridays, processionals through the cities, and other acts of penance and atonement, all in the hope of appeasing God, of getting him to stay his hand and keep the plague from coming to Sweden. We all can guess how that worked out. Once Sweden succumbed in 1350, the Black Death's conquest of Western Europe was pretty much complete, as that was also the year that the Great Mortality finally made its way up north from the Italian peninsula. After hitting Budapest, Munich, Vienna, Strasbourg, Mainz, and other cities in that area in late 1349, it moved in the start of the new year of 1350 into Nuremberg, Prague, Hamburg, Cologne, and the environs of those cities. The northern wave, brought to Scandinavia by boat in 1349, headed south and east and crashed into another wave of pestilence, moving north and west overland. From Italy to Ireland, from France to Denmark, the Black Death's conquest of Europe was complete once Sweden fully succumbed in 1350. In 1351 to 1353, the plague would complete its deathly journey by heading east and south through Poland into Russia and ending up almost exactly where it had begun. While we're all well aware at this point of the many accounts from Italy and France and elsewhere in which the speaker or writer talks of family members abandoning ill loved ones or neighbors out of fear of the plague, in Scandinavia, this did not happen at first. And in the first few months of the outbreak at least, people continued to observe the custom of gathering at the home of the deceased with friends and neighbors to pay respects. Some relatives also showed up quite promptly in case there were any matters of inheritance that might need to be attended to. As plague expert Ole Benediktov puts it, in the case of the Black Death in Norway, this meant that quite a number of persons would normally come together in the houses of the diseased and deceased, which were swarming with dangerous rat fleas that would bite them and jump onto their clothing and ride with them back to their farmsteads. Medieval people's profound social values in relation to illness and death and their thirst for inheritance were their own worst enemies. End quote. Eventually, as we might expect, people wised up and saw the writing on the wall, and many fled from infected towns in a pattern that we've seen repeated all over plague-stricken areas. But in Scandinavia, when they did flee, they tended to go en masse as a community rather than in family units or small groups. They were fleeing the place in which plague had broken out, but they were not actually fleeing the cause. Indeed, in most cases, they were bringing it with them. One well-known account relates how a large group of people from Bergen fled into the mountains to a place called Tusidedel, where they started to build a new settlement for themselves. Unfortunately, 
The plague had hitched a ride with him, and within a short while, everyone who had fled to the new community died, with the exception of one girl. According to tradition, these facts only came to light some years later, when visitors to the area encountered this girl running wild. Although she seems to have been quite feral at first, she was eventually redomesticated, as it were, and married into a good family. She was given the name Ripa, which means wild bird. As the last survivor of this community established in the mountains, she was the sole inheritor of all that land. According to plague expert Philip Ziegler, for centuries after the Black Death, the Ripa family were one of the largest landholders in the area, proudly tracing their claim on this territory back to the days of the Great Pestilence. Well, all of this is very interesting. The most fascinating thing about the Black Death in Scandinavia, to my mind, is the very particular kind of folklore and mythos that arose in relationship to the great mortality ravaging the land. In Norway and Sweden, these legends tend to take the form of stories about a single surviving old man or woman who sometimes becomes the anthropomorphized embodiment of the plague itself. Or in other cases, the stories are about lone survivors who light fires or ring bells in an attempt to find other survivors. For example, quote, After the plague, there was only one person left in Valsgard Parish, and that was a girl. She was the only living person on the northern side of the fjord. She went and cried out and heard that a man yelled the same way from the southern side of the fjord. They moved in together and were married, end quote. This kind of story makes sense in that it's a folk tale about the ability of the community to survive and propagate itself. In several variations of the story, there is either yelling or bell ringing or the setting of fires to try and help the survivors find one another. And this is a particular Scandinavian custom that has been transplanted into plague stories. It was a regular thing in many Scandinavian communities for bell ringing and fire setting to take place as a means to guide lost travelers back to a town or community, especially in places where heavy mist, difficult terrain, or early nightfall and winter could pose problems for those who are away from a settlement in finding their way back home. Now, what's really interesting to me are the characters that become literal embodiments of the plague. In a folktale from Sweden, we have the following account, quote, there the plague went from farm to farm in the shape of a little tiny woman. She always carried with her a little broom. And there where she went in and swept in front of the door, all the people in the house died. But at those farms where some people should survive, she hit the door with the broom handle as many times as the number of people who would die in the house. End quote. In some versions of this legend, the so-called plague hag is accompanied by an old man, and he, too, has an implement that identifies him. Quote, When he went forth with his shovel, some people were spared. But where she went forth with her broom, not even a mother's child was left alive. Sometimes the old man and woman are actually children. In one version from Sweden, we hear that, quote, The plague first came as a girl with a broom, there death cleaned house, and a boy with a shovel. Where he came, some people remained alive. End quote. Apart from being a folk motif that I'm sure has inspired any number of horror movies, 
Many scholars believe that the many stories about children wandering around and bringing plague with them may have some basis in reality. Given the high death rates, Scandinavia certainly matched the rest of Europe in terms of plague mortality of around 50%, there were certain to be plenty of orphans who had no choice but to wander the countryside, begging. And indeed, some of these may have brought the plague with them when they left the plague-infested houses of their dead families. In any event, one of the most important things to note about this is that the motif of the plague anthropomorphized as a traveling pair, whether old or young, carrying shovel and broom, does not occur anywhere outside of Scandinavia, at least to my knowledge. Another thing that's fascinating in terms of the variation of these Scandinavian plague myths is that in Norway and Sweden, we almost always see the plague described as a person or people wandering through the land, bringing death and disease with them. This doesn't happen so much in Denmark. In Denmark, the plague is most often associated with a mist. This may have something in common with the standard European medical theory about infected air or miasma being the source of plague, but at least one scholar contends that this preference for one form of folktale over another is because of the, quote, suitability of the landscape in Denmark. Quote, one can see from one community to another because the horizon is relatively open. A drifting localized fog easily could be seen and imagined drifting over the Danish fields. End quote. By contrast, however, the same scholar, Timothy Tangerlini, contends that, quote, the anthropomorphic form was better suited to the Norwegian landscape. As the disease migrated inland, the unsuitability of a wandering fog to the rugged landscape precipitated a predominant emphasis on anthropomorphic representations of the plague, end quote. When I initially heard this theory, my thoughts turned immediately to the old English poem Beowulf. As many of you know, although this poem is the first epic in English that we know of, and was probably composed in England sometime in the 9th or 10th centuries, all the action actually takes place in Denmark, in the homeland of one of the Germanic tribes that immigrated to England sometime in the 5th or 6th centuries. And of course, the fearsome monster Grendel, who attacks the great King Hrothgar's meat hall for 12 winters running. He comes in the night, in the mist, to commit his foul deeds. But perhaps the most horrible of all the horrible things that happened when the plague struck Scandinavia was a temporary return in some places to human sacrifice in an attempt to appease the plague. Here's one example. Quote, During the Great Plague, many people died here in the parish. The plague was stopped in a town called Gravamala. It happened because they buried a pair of live children in the ground. Nobody knew whose children these were. Their parents had died from the plague, and they wandered from farm to farm and begged for food. End quote. And then there's this account. Quote, when the grave was finished, they told the girl to get into it to see if it was deep enough. The girl did as they asked. However, when she got into the grave, they reached for the spade and buried the girl alive in the grave with the heaped up dirt. From the next day on, no people in the town got sick, and the plague had disappeared. End quote. Timothy Tangerlini cites both of these as plague legends, and I hope they are only folktales. 
but a number of other scholars concede that such things may indeed have actually taken place in some instances. One reason that the Scandinavian reaction to the plague is seemingly so different from that we see in places like England or the main part of the European continent is that Scandinavia took longer to be Christianized. And even after it was officially Christian, in many places this was only nominally the case. The pagan folk traditions continued to exist and persist well into at least the 13th century in many places. While there was a Christian response, you'll recall the letter of King Magnus of Sweden, this seemed to exist alongside a more primal pagan folk belief system. Many of you probably know that in Iceland, to this very day, belief in elves and other magical creatures is commonplace, and before roads or buildings are constructed, people take into serious consideration whether these projects will in some way negatively impact the hidden folk, as they are called. And now that we've explored the phenomenon of the plague in Scandinavia, we're almost to the part of this course that traces the final movement of the plague across Central and Eastern Europe. In the next lecture, we'll spend a little time reviewing how the plague made its way slowly overland to finally hit most of what is modern-day Germany, Austria, and the Czech Republic in 1350. From there, it turned east to Poland and continued into Russia, where by 1353, it was back where it had first begun its journey almost a decade earlier. Join me next time when we'll close the loop on the deadly progression of the Black Death. Lecture 12, The End of the First Wave Sometime around 1346, the Black Death first made its presence known on the borders of what most of us think of as the Western world on the northwest shores of the Caspian Sea. From there, it made a hesitant push northward into what we think of today as Russia, but any more progress in that direction stalled by 1348. Instead, the plague picked up a serious head of steam moving south and west in a generally clockwise direction, devastating most of Italy, France, Spain, England, and Ireland. You'll recall that Barcelona was particularly hard hit, as was Valencia and Roussillon. The Kingdom of Granada, the last of the major Muslim territories on the Iberian Peninsula, also suffered major losses, as did Lisbon in what is today Portugal. Ireland was actually struck around the same time as England in 1348, but the plague didn't make it to Scotland until 1350, which is clear evidence that it was through port cities that traded with the continent that the plague first made it across the English Channel. At this time, Scotland was much more Scandinavian in its worldview and trading relationships. It was looking north instead of west, which is why both it and Sweden and Norway get infected around the same time. The plague reached Sweden by 1349 and then continued the loop in 1350 by pushing further into Scandinavia and from there south through the Baltic states into what we think of as Germany. At this time, some of these territories and those adjacent, including the modern-day Netherlands, Switzerland, the Czech Republic, and the territory known as Bohemia, 
were considered part of the entity known as the Holy Roman Empire, which, as most of you know, was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. More or less an artificial construct, especially as we move from the medieval into the modern world, the Holy Roman Empire was a loose confederation of territories, and within and adjacent to its borders were numerous free and independent city-states. But we can use the term Holy Roman Empire as a kind of shorthand to describe this region of Europe in the 14th century. Or, as one of my students once put it, it's a region that's mostly German-ish. At the same time that the Black Death was moving from the north southward into the territories of the Holy Roman Empire, another wave was moving overland more slowly in a northerly direction to these same locales from the Italian peninsula. Around 1350, these waves crashed into each other. Or, in the words of the great scholar Ole Benedictov, these territories were caught in a pincer of disease coming from multiple directions. The spread of infection was made all the worse by the fact that this territory has a huge system of navigable rivers and port cities. And as we know by now, where do rats like to hang out? On the waterfront. And the goods that were being transported along these networks were of the sort that fleas might hang out in for some time. Also, back in the 13th century, trade along these routes had been made easier and tariffs, etc., had been standardized by the formation of what would become known as the Hanseatic League, which would become a confederation of city-states that worked together to secure their common economic interests. Alas, this spirit of cooperation would often prove to be fatal, as it allowed for easier movement of goods and people among infected locales, especially along the rivers Rhine, Elbe, Vistula, Oder, and other waterways, and their tributaries. Compared to other European regions, especially Italy, France, and England, texts discussing the Black Death in German and its dialects tend to be sparse and also rather succinct in their discussions of what was happening. There is no German equivalent of Boccaccio describing the horrors that the great pestilence wrought on the population. At the same time, however, as far as we can tell, the devastating impact was pretty much the same as throughout the rest of the medieval world. Mortality rates of around 50%, with all three forms of plague appearing. And then the Black Death turned east, pushing into Poland in 1351, hitting Russian territories from Kiev in the south and up the Dnieper River in 1352, and fully devastated Moscow by 1353, ending up almost back where it began. For a long time, historians were puzzled as to why the plague had to take such a long route to get to Russia. Russian chroniclers were fully aware of the epidemic raging to the south of them as early as 1348 or 1349, but they didn't really feel its impact until 1353. That's a long time to be holding your breath in anticipation of some horror that might rain down upon you at any moment. The best scholars can figure is that there was this lag of plague making its way into Russia via a northwest overland route because the Russian steppe was thinly populated and the presence of the dreaded Mongol Golden Horde to the south meant that 
no one was really inclined to move in that direction. And we can say that in 1353, the first wave of the plague had fully crested and burned itself out. If you'll allow me to mix some metaphors here, while the plague would return again and again to the European world at least once or twice a generation, from 1353 onward, its virulence was greatly diminished. Never again would the medieval world see such a devastating event in such a short space of time. Let's pause for a moment and think about this. By our best estimates, the medieval world had a population of around 150 million in 1346. Seven years later, the population had dropped to around 70 to 75 million, and for many communities or countries, there would be no serious demographic recovery until well into the 15th century, and in some cases, it was well into the 17th century. Before population numbers had fully recovered, and so I want to spend some time here on the particular and unique aspects of the responses to this last gasp of the Black Death, as it completed its first deadly pass through the medieval world. One thing that we have to remember is that by this point, most people were well aware that the plague was coming. It was just a matter of when, not if, the great pestilence showed up on your doorstep. As we'll discuss in great detail in several later lectures, this knowledge led some desperate people to take preemptive action and to be willing to believe all kinds of rumor and conspiracy theories. The most famous and infamous was the popular belief that the Jews were causing the illness by poisoning the wells of various towns. In a series of horrifying atrocities that both recall the pogroms of the Crusades when they marched through the Rhineland two centuries previously, and which also anticipate the horrors of the 20th century Holocaust, several communities like Strasbourg and Bern executed or expelled a large portion of their Jewish community before the plague had even reached their town. This particular brand of anti-Semitism didn't tend to recur, however. Since even though all their Jews were exiled or dead, these towns still were some of the hardest hit by the plague, and there was no one left to serve as a scapegoat when the great mortality made its appearance. In the previous lecture, I talked a bit about how the Scandinavian countries were differently affected than most of the rest of Europe, because they were not fully feudal or manorialized. More people in these countries were free landholders, and there wasn't the same sort of intensely hierarchical system of servitude and protection—what we might call vassalage—that was so predominant in a place like England and France. And in today's lecture, we're going to move further east and talk about Russia and parts of Poland, which had a social infrastructure that was slightly different from that of both Scandinavia and the non-Scandinavian parts of Western Europe. In what we think of today as Russia, the effects of the Black Death at first seem to be similar to what we find in the European West. The people hardest hit were the aristocracy, who might have all kinds of land, but a shortage of bodies to work it. The nobility or great landowners were, for the most part, considered subject to a central ruling elite in Moscow, and in this very centralized structure, Russian social order was somewhat like what we saw in feudal England. With its hierarchical structure leading back to the king, but what's different here is how those affected in Russia look to Moscow for help, 
whereas the towns and villages in most of England, and indeed places like Florence, Italy, sought to cope with their community's problems on their own. So in Russia, we have a familiar pattern start to play out. Landowners needed more bodies to work their farmland after the first wave of plague had passed, and suddenly cash wages went up because laborers could pick and choose when and where they would work. When the population began to recover, however, the Russian aristocracy found itself in a bind. Economically, they were now in a pattern of having to pay much higher wages in order to have their land plowed and harvested. And once the numbers of their own class finally began to increase again after the first wave of the plague had passed, there simply wasn't as much in the way of resources as a Russian nobleman might expect or want. This, in turn, led members of the aristocracy to start flocking to Moscow in an attempt to find power, status, and money there. So Moscow and the Kremlin princes found themselves under considerable pressure from the aristocracy who were seeking security. While Moscow was the center of power in Russia, in the mid-1350s and the decades after, it was not quite powerful enough to cope successfully with the extreme social and economic pressures the Black Death brought with it. Scholar Gustav Aleph argues that, quote, had the great plagues of the 14th century not arrested the growth of the population when Moscow was small and more vulnerable to pressure than it would become a century later, and when the powers of the Kremlin princes were far weaker, no doubt the history of the Russian Northeast would have turned out far different. End quote. Meanwhile, monastic houses in many parts of Russia started to gobble up all this unclaimed land that was suddenly available because the owner and all his heirs were dead or had fled to Moscow. These vacant lands that got snapped up and consolidated became known as pustoshi. As these monasteries began to acquire more and more land, they also became very important economic and trading centers, and soon they began to pose real competition and a problem for independent merchants and traders who had survived the plague. Many of these monastic estates pushed for and received tax-free status within certain zones, which put them at an economic advantage and the independent tradesmen at a serious disadvantage. As the Russian population began to recover in the early 15th century, it looked for a time as if the powers of the monastic states might start to be checked a bit and the countryside would return to more of a balanced state, something like it had been before the plague. But then, when later waves of plague struck in the 15th century, this produced a famine which in turn created more population loss, which then cemented the powers of the monastic estates. As scholar Lawrence Langer puts it, quote, in effect, the Black Death forced the Russian princes to rely increasingly upon the monasteries to develop rural agriculture and manufacture. Plague and famine gave form and direction to the growth of monastic estates and to the political tensions that later occurred between the monasteries and Russia's rulers. What was really devastating for the Russian countryside and urban centers is that prior to the arrival of the Black Death, they had had to deal with a series of invasions by the Mongols. From 1237 to 1240, 
Mongol armies had swept out of the east and established their rule over several Russian territories. They completely devastated the principality of Kiev, and in the aftermath of this invasion, most of the other Russian principalities had become subject territories of the Golden Horde, having to pay taxes, supply able-bodied men for military service, and so on. A few territories in the West had elected to make themselves subject to the newly developed state of Lithuania, and thus escaped the yoke of Mongol rule. But then something happened to turn the attention of the Mongols away from Russia and focus it on the south. In 1313, a new Khan assumed the throne of the Mongols, and this man, Utsbeg, was a recent convert to Islam. He worked hard to get the elite of the Mongol horde to join him in practicing this religion, and he was much occupied for most of his reign with putting down rebellions and dealing with assassination attempts. But in the end, he was successful, and when Yanibeg Khan came to the throne in 1342, Islam was the official state religion of the Mongols. Now, Yanibeg's name might sound vaguely familiar to you from one of our earliest lectures. That's because he, during his reign, was preoccupied with getting Christian merchants out of the territories near the Black Sea that were controlled by the Mongols. Who were these Christian merchants? Why, most of them were Italian. They were represented, in particular, by the Genoese, who had long established trading posts and fortifications along the Black Sea and in the Crimea, including, you guessed it, the infamous city of Kaffa. You'll probably recall that in 1343, the Genoese merchants fled from their trading center of Tana to the fortified city of Kaffa. And Yanibeg and his forces then laid siege to it. During that siege, the plague found its way into the Mongol ranks, and then, in 1346, it supposedly found its way into the city of Kaffa when Yanibeg launched the corpses of plague victims into the city via trebuchet. The Genoese fled back to Genoa, stopping off in the port of Messina in Sicily on the way, and the rest, as they say, is history. The great irony here is that it was the appearance of the Black Death among the Mongols way back in 1346 that finally gave Russia's political and social systems some breathing room and a chance to recover from over a century of Mongol rule. By 1353, a sense of normalcy and a stable population with a reliable supply of craftsmen and laborers was just starting to get itself back in place in most of Russia. But then. Along came the, back, the Black Death, again the very thing that had oh so briefly allowed for some recovery and growth. The reappearance of the plague in Russia dealt the struggling labor, economic, and political systems another serious blow that would have repercussions for centuries. Now, as we've seen in our discussions of communities in Western Europe, and as we'll see in some detail later. The sudden lack of labor meant that those who did survive were usually better off, as they were able to command much higher wages than they had previously. In part, they were able to manage this because prior to the arrival of the Black Death, most craftsmen and tradespeople were part of a firmly established guild system that had long existed to protect their interests. 
Remember how the Chompy Guild took over the rule of the city-state of Florence on the Italian peninsula in the wake of the plague? Well, in Russia, there was no established guild system, but instead, in a rather spotty, non-institutionalized fashion, a slave system. So desperate were towns and monastic communities for skilled artisans that they actually tightened their grip and used their power and influence to more or less enslave the workers they needed to keep their societies running. And given that the monasteries were the ones snapping up all the free land that was available after this demographic plunge, it's not a surprise, really, that in post-plague Russia, the church became one of the biggest de facto slaveholding entities. Now, I say de facto because by church law, they were not actually officially permitted to own slaves. But they needed blacksmiths, goldsmiths, iconographers, silver workers, and basic agricultural laborers. So they purchased craftsmen from the political entities that owned them, officially granted them their personal freedom, but then they quote-unquote held them in service, even though they had officially liberated them, which is kind of a polite way of saying they made them indentured servants of a sort. The effects of this system would be felt well into the modern day, as eventually people began to see the trade-off of personal liberty for security and stable community as worth it. Eventually, monasteries didn't need to purchase and liberate slaves they then held in service. The children of this blacksmith or that laborer learned his father's trade and took over his craft when his father passed and tended to stay on the monastic land where he had been born and raised. As we've seen in previous lectures and we'll see in enthralling detail later in the course, the Black Death produced all kinds of psychosocial responses. Some were understandable, a turn toward religion or abandonment of one's friends and loved ones in the face of death, or engaging in hedonistic activities like drinking, gambling, and sex to go out with a bang, as it were. Others were more extreme, like the flagellant movement, whose adherents traveled from town to town, engaging in public displays in which they whipped themselves and each other, an attempt to atone for the sins of the soul of mankind by punishing the flesh. Last time, we talked some about the Scandinavian folk tales of the old man and woman, or orphan children, traveling with broom and shovel as symbols of mortality. And we heard, too, about some occasions of human sacrifice, in which a live person was buried in order to prevent the rest of the community from contracting the plague. In many parts of Russia, there was a psychosocial plague response called the One Day Votive Church and it's one I've encountered nowhere else. Although these are documented as being constructed during outbreaks of plague that were slightly later than the initial wave of the mid-14th century, I think they're worth mentioning here because they're just so interesting. So as I noted a moment ago, as was the case in every other country or community that was hit with plague, the losses were devastating. From Russia, we get the by now familiar stories of plague sparing no one, whether peasant or noble. The Archbishop of Nogorod was called upon by the citizens of Skov to come to their community and perform some religious services in the hope that this might appease God and that he would have mercy on them. The Archbishop granted their request, traveled to Skov, performed the services, 
and then died of the plague on his way back to Novgorod. And it was all for naught as the plague continued to rage in Skov. Most of the ruling elite in Moscow also succumbed, which in the short term appeared to cause a serious destabilization of the political infrastructure. Within one week of the plague's arrival in Moscow in 1353, the metropolitan of that city, and this is a rank somewhat akin to bishop, was dead. And so was the Grand Prince Semen Ivanovich and his two sons, and then his brother and successor, Andre. In the countryside, as we've seen, agricultural practices were severely disrupted by the sudden population loss. Mass graves became the norm, as there was no time to give all the victims a proper burial. Having tried everything else, many Russian communities came together and decided that they would build structures that have come to be called, and forgive my pronunciation here, I'm not a Russian scholar, Obidenya Khami. What's really interesting is that although there's clearly a religious impulse behind their building, there's this idea that by doing something dramatic, the people could get God's attention and maybe some measure of mercy. It's usually the secular community leaders who organize the building effort. We have documentation that at least 19 of these wooden structures were built, most of them in Skov and Novgorod, with a few in Moscow and some in other cities. They were all constructed within the space of 24 hours, and what is most important in terms of the psychosocial aspect is that they were built with communal labor. There were some fascinating conditions, one might rightfully call them superstitions, attached to the building of these structures. First, the community would choose a location on which no structure had ever existed prior to that time. Then they gathered all new materials. The idea was that this building would be completely new from the ground up. All the able-bodied people of the town arrived at the designated site in the pre-dawn hours on the appointed day. Because it was still dark, they would set up numerous torches around the work site so they could get started before the sun was properly up. Then everyone labored until midnight, hauling wood, putting up walls, constructing a roof, etc., etc. The idea of performing a remarkable feat in a single day is attested in much of the folklore tradition of Eastern Slavic peoples, and this is probably the source of this impulse. Also implicit in the act of building was that there would be no pause in the labor. It had to be continuous, all day long, with no breaks. Certainly some of the individual laborers might pause for food or to rest for a bit, but the labor focused on the votive church itself could not stop. The idea here was that the continuous activity prevented Satan and other demons from finding a way in to contaminate the holy structure. As long as pious people labored on it without pause, Satan was held at bay, and then when it was completed, there was no way for him to access it or defile it because consecration would happen immediately. You can imagine how attractive the idea of building the structure might be for those people suffering from plague. There was no way to stop it. It was killing nobles and archbishops. So what could they do in the face of such an implacable enemy? It's human nature to want to do something. And the one-day votive church, the Obidenya Khami, provided exactly the kind of psychosocial outlet people were desperate for in the face of the Black Death. 
Building these sites remained fairly popular up until the 16th century or so. It's no coincidence, I think, that as this is the time when people started coming up with more rational, practical responses to plague, quarantine, for example. And since the outbreaks were less virulent, there was less of a need for such a dramatic, extreme response. Nonetheless, examining the popularity of constructing these one-day votive churches offers a fascinating window into the psyches of the common people who, because they were mostly illiterate, were unable to give us a sense of their reaction to the Black Death via words. These were mostly peasants who labored with their hands, and it seems fitting that they would respond to the threat of death in a fashion similar to how they had made their living. While we have these fascinating details about things like the Archbishop of Nogorod's ill-fated journey to Skov, the growth of Pustoshi and monastic estates, and the brief frenzy of building votive churches in a single day, we don't have much more in the way of evidence for how exactly the plague spread through Russia. But we do know that just as it had everywhere else, the Black Death brought great devastation on multiple levels, social, economic, religious, agricultural, political, you name it, the plague affected it and changed it. Although the people living through it cannot have known it at the time, with the end of 1353 came an end to the second great pandemic of plague the world has seen. The first had been the plague of Justinian in the late 6th century. The third pandemic would be in India and China at the very end of the 19th century. And it was the third pandemic that helped modern scientists figure out what those earlier two pandemics had been. But of the three, the second, which struck the medieval world with full force between the years of 1346 and 1353, was by far the most destructive event that recorded history had ever seen. The plague would return continually every decade or so, sometimes striking this area or that population, old or young, sickly or in the prime of health, some more than others. But the world would never again see anything like the plague at its worst, which was between 1348 and 1350. The Spanish influenza epidemic of 1918, with a death toll of around 500 million worldwide, sounds like it far exceeds the death toll of the plague. But remember, we have to think in terms of population percentages. The Spanish flu is considered staggeringly devastating because it killed between 3 to 5% of the world's population. But consider that during its peak in the UK, for example, for every 1,000 people, there were 25 deaths. Now think of the Black Death. For every 1,000 people, there were 500 deaths. It can't really compare. Now that we've made our way through a definition and understanding of the etiology of plague and a more or less chronological analysis of its progression from the east through the medieval European world and then back east again, we're going to turn our attention to exploring the issue of plague from a more thematic perspective. As we've already briefly discussed on numerous occasions, one of the worst things about plague was people's inability to understand what was causing it and to come up with some way to combat it. In the next lecture, will examine a variety of medical and scientific responses from throughout the medieval world. 
And here's a spoiler alert. While many of these theories are interesting and dare I say entertaining, they are also pretty much dead wrong about everything. But in examining them, we get a better view of the medieval mindset, which in turn offers a richer picture of that world than we would otherwise have. Lecture 13: Medieval Theories About the Black Death. When the Black Death devastated the medieval world in the middle of the 14th century, people were by turns resigned, repentant, hedonistic, and terrified, sometimes experiencing each of these responses in quick succession or almost simultaneously. In addition to all of these, however, was a desperate desire to understand just what the hell was going on. Where had this thing come from? Why now? Why these people and not others? What could be done to stop it? How could you survive it or avoid getting infected in the first place? The greatest minds of the day turned their attention to these questions, and in the years immediately following the first outbreak in the West in 1347, dozens of plague treatises were composed and circulated. As you might guess, however, at a time when the theory of germ transmission did not yet exist and there were no antibiotics, there was little written that was of any real help. But looking at these medical and scientific theories offers a fascinating window onto the medieval world, not just regarding the plague outbreak, but in terms of how certain fields of knowledge were understood and valued and how the medieval mind saw connections and parallels between individual people, humanity at large, and the whole cosmos. The most authoritative commentary on the plague came from the medical faculty at the University of Paris, who were charged by the French king, Philip VI, with coming up with an explanation for the crisis that was confronting medieval society. The text is quite long, and it has two parts. In the first section, the medical faculty offer three chapters that detail the causes of the plague. In part two, they spend seven chapters offering suggestions for remedies or steps one might take in the hope of having some effect on the plague. They start their tract in the way that innumerable college students have been taught to start their essays. They begin with the general and then get a little more specific. Quote, we say that the distant and first cause of this pestilence was and is the configuration of the heavens. End quote. They note that on March 20th, 1345, there was a conjunction of three planets in Aquarius, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And this conjunction somehow caused a, quote, deadly corruption of the air around us, end quote. They cite no less an authority than Aristotle, plus earlier medieval philosophers such as Albertus Magnus, who had argued that, quote, the conjunction of Mars and Jupiter causes a great pestilence in the air, especially when they come together in a hot, wet sign. For Jupiter, being wet and hot, draws up evil vapors from the earth, and Mars, because it is moderately hot and dry, then ignites the vapors, and as a result, there were lightnings, sparks, 
noxious vapors, and fires throughout the air, end quote. They go on to say that the effects of this are only intensified because Mars was in the sign of Leo just before the key period in question. Now, it's necessary to pause here and point out what is pretty obvious. The fields of astrology and astronomy, which we consider separate things today, were one and the same in the medieval world. While today, astronomy is a science practiced by highly educated and extensively trained specialists like Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrology is usually performed by an underpaid copy editor who types up a very generalized horoscope prediction for each sign, and it then gets printed in the daily newspaper next to the crossword puzzle and advice columns. Astronomy is science. Astrology is, for lack of a better word, bunk. But this was not the belief in the Middle Ages, and you can imagine why. People had developed the ability to identify different planets and their orbits and to map the night sky, and it must have seemed impossible that something so mysterious, awe-inspiring, and yet observable by those who were trained to do so could not have an effect on the Earth. Indeed, in the medieval educational system, one of the seven liberal arts was astronomy, and in the Middle Ages, astronomy included within it what we think of today as astrology. A popular and useful scientific device in the medieval world that was used to calculate the positions of planets, the sun, the moon, and latitude was something known as the astrolabe. Its origins go back to ancient Greece, but it was quite popular in the medieval world. And during the time of the plague, many scientists and scholars were consulting their astrolabes to try and get a handle on what was happening in the heavens. Indeed, Geoffrey Chaucer, the father of English poetry, composed a treatise on the astrolabe. And that infamous pair of star-crossed lovers, Abelard and Eloise, actually named their son astrolabe. And of course, if you know anything about astrology, you'll know that different astrological signs are associated with certain assigned qualities, not unlike the idea of the four humors that were assigned to the human body in the Middle Ages. And like the use of astrology, the theory of the four humors also was of great importance as medieval people tried to figure out how to deal with the plague most effectively. So in medieval medicine, which was based on the theories of the Greek physician Galen, basic health was determined by the balance of the humors in the body. These were considered the four main substances that regulated everything the body did. Blood was associated with air, phlegm with water, yellow bile with fire, and black bile with earth. And they were also connected to ideas about appearance and personality types. In turn, based on your personality type or dominant humor, a certain course of treatment for disease might be prescribed for you that would be different from the course prescribed for someone else who was suffering from the same affliction, but who had a different dominant humor. For example, if you had too much blood, or in medieval medical terms, you were too sanguine, your physician might actually perform bloodletting on you to try and bring your humors 
back into balance. If it sounds horrifying to think that you might try and heal a patient by draining blood out of him and thereby making him weaker and less able to fight off infection or disease, consider the fact that most medieval physicians also believed that blood circulated through different channels on different sides of your body. So sometimes he might be bled on the left side, sometimes the right, and sometimes both. If you had too much phlegm, and thus your body was too moist and too cold, your prescription would be to get yourself warmed up. Indeed, it's from this idea of the four humors that we get our modern use of the term phlegmatic. If someone is described in this way, it might seem because they are rather cold and self-centered. Too much yellow bile and you were choleric or given to fits of anger. So if you had too much yellow bile and thus you were dry and hot, the prescription might be to give you a cold bath or make you sit out in the snow. In other words, the prescription might be the opposite of that given to a phlegmatic. Again, you can imagine that taking a person who is ill and immersing them in cold water is probably neither comfortable nor conducive to helping the immune system do its job. Also, there would probably be some bloodletting, no matter what your humor type, just because that was almost always the go-to to get your humors back into balance. If you had too much black bile, then you were melancholic or given to sadness. In order to cure you of this, laxatives would be the way to go. And again, probably more bloodletting. The same idea or kind of approach applied to the 12 astrological signs. Aquarius was an air sign, not a water sign as some might expect given the name, and Leo was a fire sign. If you put air and fire together, they burn hotter. Then you've got Mars, which is already considered a hot and dry planet. You can see how medieval people might have taken what they believed to be true about the nature of astrological signs the nature of individual planets, and then looking at the attributes and the fact of a planetary conjunction, make some deductions that these things were related to the great pestilence that was raging through the medieval world. Besides the medical faculty at the University of Paris, plenty of other great minds of the day weighed in on the astrological causes of the plague. Oxford scholar Geoffrey de Meaux wrote his own plague treatise on the conjunction of the planets in 1345. But he says the Paris medical faculty is wrong to focus on Jupiter as being a contributor. It's really Mars and Saturn that we should be worried about, he says. Jeffrey goes on also to assert that eclipses have played a role in the current outbreak. Once again, 1345 is the key year. Quote, it has been and is known by all astrologers that in the year 1345, there was a total eclipse of the moon of long duration on 18 March. At the longitude of Oxford, it began an hour after the moon rose. At that time, the two planets were in conjunction in Aquarius, and Mars was with them in the same sign within the light of Jupiter." End quote. He goes on to explain that, quote, when the sun is directly opposite the moon, as occurs in a total eclipse, then the power of each of them reaches the earth in a straight line 
and the mingling of the influence of sun and moon with that of the superior planets creates a single celestial force which operates in conformity with the nature of the superior planets, which have drawn to themselves the powers of the sun and moon. He observes that, on their own, the sun, moon, and planets would have minimal impact on the world. But when all their energies are combined and aligned, well, the earth is in trouble. So activity in the heavens, whether it be planetary alignment, eclipses, certain planets being in certain quadrants of the sky, was regarded by multiple great minds of the day as the ultimate cause and source of the plague. But these writers also felt compelled to identify what they called the near cause or immediate cause of plague on earth. So while the general or primary cause is the bad air produced on earth by this conjunction of planets in an air and a fire sign, according to the medical faculty at the University of Paris, the near cause is that the pure air everyone breathes gets infected by these noxious vapors and spread about through gusts of wind. The Paris medical faculty suggest poisonous air from places like swamps, lakes, and unburied or unburned corpses probably contributed to the epidemic. And any medieval person who had had any experience with warfare or surviving a siege of a city knew that having corpses lying around was not conducive to the continued health of the population. This is why there were so many mass graves during the plague. It might have been easier to simply leave the dead where they fell or inside their homes, but enough civic leaders recognized the threat to sanitation if this were permitted to happen. Those people who were willing to take on the job of transporting and burying corpses were able to command very high wages during the plague years. While most medieval people believed that they were affected by astrology, some scholars of the day completely discounted the planetary conjunction slash eclipse explanation. In fact, the Paris medical faculty added that in addition to the planetary issue, quote, another possible cause of corruption, which needs to be borne in mind, is the escape of the rottenness trapped in the center of the earth as a result of earthquakes something which has indeed recently occurred, end quote. Some scholars felt quite strongly that this was the whole answer right there. In a chronicle from Germany, one scribe makes the argument that astrological conjunctions happen all the time and there's not usually a plague occurring in the aftermath. But what's less common are earthquakes, and the scribe finds this the most plausible explanation on the following grounds. Quote, when air that is full of vapors and earthy fumes is enclosed and shut up for a long time in the prison of the earth, it becomes so corrupted that it constitutes a potent poison to men. This is especially marked in caverns or deep inside the earth, as is often seen in the case of wells that have been unused for a long time. For when such wells are opened in order to be cleaned out, it often happens that the first man to enter is suffocated, and sometimes in turn, those who follow him. End quote. This seems logical 
as far as it goes. And then the scribe offers this commentary, quote, And the common people are so ignorant that they blame this on a basilisk lurking inside, end quote. The anonymous chronicler notes that, quote, It is a matter of scientific fact, end quote, that earthquakes are caused when noxious fumes build up inside the earth and finally burst out and that there was an earthquake in Germany on St. Paul's Day in 1347. And after this, numerous people began to die from exposure to these vapors and fumes, which were then spread by storms and wind and lightning. Also, this cause makes more sense, because the planets should affect everyone on Earth the same. But from his own experience, the poor were being struck down much more quickly and in greater numbers than the rich. He has an answer for this, however. In the same vein as the medical theory of the humors, the chronicler argues that this is because the higher classes consume rich food and drink, which makes them hot and fumous, and, quote, what is inside them leaves no room for such fumes and blocks their entry. Still, even they won't be able to avoid it forever, he concedes. So while many medieval experts disagreed on the source, they did agree on the fact that there was some sort of bad air that served as the means by which the infection was transmitted, and they even came up with a name for it, which we still use today, miasma. Making the outbreak and the spread of miasma that much worse, according to almost every expert, was the fact that for the last few years, the weather across Europe had been really unpredictable. The Paris medical faculty affirmed that, quote, last winter was not as cold as it should have been, with a great deal of rain. The spring, windy and latterly wet. Summer was late, not as hot as it should have been, and extremely wet. The weather very changeable from day to day and hour to hour. Autumn, too, was very rainy and misty. Now, what's really interesting about these claims is that they are partially right in their identification of the precipitants of plague, but they get the mechanisms totally wrong. So, for example, you recall from our lecture on England that every chronicler starts out by mentioning how much rain there had been before the plague broke out in Britain. Unusual weather patterns like this seem to have been the initial cause in Asia, when climate shifts caused the black rat population to move out of its traditional habitat and come into greater contact with human populations. Earthquakes, too, could disrupt rodent habitats and send the rats into greater contact with human populations. And we know that a few earthquakes took place at this time. In addition to the St. Paul's Day earthquake noted earlier, there was, in particular, in January 1348, on the Italian peninsula, a quake known as the Friuli quake, which scientists estimate registered 6.9 on the Richter scale and which was felt all across Europe. And then, not too long after that, there were additional smaller quakes in both Italy and Germany. Just a couple months later, boom, the Black Death shows up. When there are a series of earthquakes followed by pestilential disease, it's pretty hard for the medieval mind not to see a connection. But it's interesting to note the way in which the scientific explanations, planets, earthquakes, eclipses, weather, are able to stand right alongside a belief that the Black Death was also a punishment from God. 
That interesting juxtaposition of beliefs is one we'll be talking about quite a bit in the lectures ahead. The weather also probably played a role in that the winters leading up to the plague outbreak were unusually warm, as the Paris medical faculty observed. The black rat flea usually goes into hibernation in the winter, but if the weather was unseasonably warm, some of the fleas might not have hibernated, which means that what we might call infection season was extended. And of course, the comment that infected air from unburied corpses might be a contributing factor is absolutely correct, as I mentioned a moment ago. The Paris medical faculty and the other scholars who weighed in on the plague didn't offer much in the way of optimism about avoiding the great pestilence. Here again, they turned to the theory of the four humors to explain their reasoning. Quote, the bodies most likely to bear the stamp of this pestilence are those which are hot and moist. The following are also more at risk. Bodies bunged up with evil humors because the unconsumed waste matter is not being expelled as it should. Those following a bad lifestyle with too much exercise, sex, and bathing. The thin and the weak and persistent worriers. Babies, women, and young people. And corpulent people with a ruddy complexion. End quote. However, they went on, if you were lucky enough to be mostly dry in your humors, that is, with more yellow bile and black bile than blood or phlegm, and if you had regular bowel movements so your body was purging excess waste, plus you didn't overexert yourself or overeat and lived sensibly, well then, you just might make it. But what's the best thing to do when you have actually contracted the plague? We know that around 18 to 20% of those who came down with the bubonic form survived. But almost no one who contracted the pneumonic or septicemic form had a shot at beating the disease. Given the statistics, it's not much of a surprise that any medical advice about actual treatment tends to focus on the buboes. A scholar named John of Burgundy offered just such advice in his treatise written around 1365. So after the first wave and then a couple of subsequent smaller ones had made their way through the medieval world. And he describes his treatments with the full confidence of someone who has managed to cure many of his patients. The first thing to do, he says, is to examine the buboes and figure out which organ is trying to expel the poison. Remember now that according to many medieval scientists, there are three principal organs at play here the heart, the liver, and the brain. Quote, if the infected blood is driven to the armpits, it can be deduced that the heart is oppressed and suffering, and so blood should be let immediately from the cardiac vein, but on the same side of the body. If the liver expels matter to the groin, and it becomes visible next to the privy member, towards the inside of the leg, then a vein should be opened in the foot on the same side of the body, between the big toe and the toe next to it, end quote. John then goes on to describe what to do if there is evidence of plague near what he calls the emunctories of the brain, in this case, just below the ears or under the tongue. Quote, if the poison appears at the emunctories of the brain, let blood from the cephalic vein above the median vein in the arm on the same side of the body. 
Next, a medicinal mixture should be administered to the patient, with some variation depending on the infected person's humors. If he is more choleric than sanguine, then, quote, a pennyweight of camphor should be added to a mixture of sandalwood, candied rose petals, and cold tragacanth, which is a kind of tree resin or gum sap. And this should be made into pills to be taken by the sick person several times a day. The buboes or tumors should also be treated directly. Many medieval physicians lanced the buboes on the logical assumption that they must be the site of concentrated poison in the body and that getting the poison out might affect healing. Some accounts indicate that a foul-smelling pus emerged from these lanced buboes, and the stench was so bad that other people in the room often vomited. John of Burgundy doesn't advise lancing the buboes, but he does offer a recipe for a kind of plaster to be put on them, the theory being that this would help both to draw all the poison into the bubo and then to calcify the bubo so that the poison stays there and can't get back into the rest of the body. Now, as you might imagine, the mortality rates for those who came in contact with plague-infected persons was pretty high. Priests and doctors were especially likely to succumb, which presented a problem. Since the prevailing theory was that the plague was spread by infected air, or miasma, many medieval medical experts recommended countering the bad air with something sweet-smelling. Hence, the reference to the pocket full of posies in the children's rhyme. We have evidence that people walked around holding flowers or spices in front of their faces, or that they sewed strong and pleasant-smelling herbs into the sleeves of their clothing, which they could then hold up in front of their faces. You may recall from an earlier lecture that there was a belief in some parts of England that one type of bad air could be countered with another, which led to the weird spectacle of people deliberately seeking out public latrines and gathering around them to inhale deeply. Obviously, neither the good-smell approach nor the bad-smell approach had any sort of real effect on the plague. But in an attempt to make the good-smell anti-miasma theory workable, plague doctors hit upon an idea for a kind of medieval hazmat suit that probably accidentally offered some protection against plague. The earliest full-scale drawing we have of a plague doctor's costume comes from the 17th century, but we do have references from the 14th century to the fact that the plague doctors looked like beaked birds. So we can be reasonably sure the later drawing reflects the reality of the 14th century costume in its most important detail, which is the mask. Now the mask comes into usage because it's pretty much impossible to treat a plague patient while holding good smelling herbs in front of your face with one hand. So a beak-like contraption was invented. The doctor could fill the long beak with flowers or herbs and spices and strap it onto his face so that he could have the benefit of the good air while keeping his hands free. In the early days, there was probably just a simple cutout for the eyes, but later versions seemed to have actually had glass inserts there. Before he put the mask on, however, the doctor would first don something kind of like hip waders, that would be used in fishing today, and over that, he would fasten a long coat. He would complete this fashionable look with some gloves and boots. All of the material was probably made of some kind of oiled leather that was infused with more sweet-smelling herbs and spices. 
The plague doctor would be easily identifiable by the fact that he carried a long pole, which served many purposes. It could be used to remove or set aside the clothing of the infected, and it could also be used to disperse people or push them out of the way. A broad-brimmed hat would top it all off and also serve as an identifying marker for his occupation. I imagine some people with ill loved ones would seek him out, and others, upon seeing the distinctive costume, would run the other way. But for the doctor, at least, this outfit actually provided some real protection. There was a physical barrier between the physician and the fleas or the bodily fluids of the infected person. And so I don't doubt that plenty of medieval plague doctors beat the odds, but I'm guessing that most would put it down to the good air they inhaled through the beak. Once you see a contemporary image of a plague doctor dressed in full regalia, I imagine you'll have one of two reactions. Either you'll be freaked out and start having nightmares, or you'll have a great idea for next year's Halloween costume. Or maybe both. And speaking of freaking out, in the next lecture, we'll meet the flagellants who responded to the Black Death by traveling from town to town and publicly whipping themselves. We'll also look at other psychosocial responses to the plague, including hedonism and good old dogged pragmatism. If you thought plague doctors were interesting, just wait. Wait.